Hello and welcome to the 400th episode of the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff for the 400th time, Sean, which sounds like that's that's a lot of podcasts. Is that is that too many podcasts? It's it's too many podcasts because that's not even the number of podcasts we've done, right? Like we have done no, more really. than 400 uh, podcasts. This yeah. is just sort of how we've grouped together with our weekly Gundam and blah, 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 blah. We, we, this is 400. This is the 400th numbered episode of the Mainline Weekly Stuff podcast. You know, it's how it goes. Um, yeah, it's a lot. It's 400. It's big. We are going to have a fun one today. I think this is going to be a really fun sort of celebratory episode because it's going to have kind of a little bit of everything we do here. We're going to have a little bit of news, including catch up on some of the DC fandom stuff, which really broke too late for us to talk about it last week. Um, and we're going to have some stuff, some video game stuff, some movie stuff. We both saw the new Dune. We're not going to do like a full two-hour breakdown of the new Dune, because I don't really know if there's that much to talk about there. Yeah. But we are going to we're going to talk about it and maybe set a hard limit on how much we talk about it, because we have other stuff to get to. Uh, we have a big bag of listener mail and comments that I've been inviting for a couple of weeks, just as a 400-episode celebration thing. And then to end, our sort of experimental fun topic thing for this 400th episode is Sean and I uh, are going to be interviewing each other. We know nothing about what either of us has come up with. Mm -hmm. It's we, we, we basically said 20 questions and then we get to decide each of us what that means. So I'm excited but also slightly intimidated because I don't know exactly where we're going with this. Yeah, I, this this you know that section will either be fantastic or it'll be the worst thing we've ever done on the podcast. Uh, it, it, I think it it is the only two possibilities. Like either we hate each other after this because you know some <laughs> we ask a question they're like, oh, I thought this was fine. It's like this is very personal, Jonathan. I can't believe you asked me what my favorite color was, you bastard. Um, or it's <laughs> somehow that's funny. very triggering for you. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. Well, I think I think you're right, Sean. I think it'll be one of those two things. We'll find out what it is. But uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna hold the Dune thing for a little bit. We'll do that after the news. There'll be timestamps in the episode. Obviously, you want to jump around. We'll be spoiling Dune, but it's based on a like book that is as old as my mom. So like, I don't think that's a spoiler. Yeah. It's right? also it's it's the one half of a book. Yeah, that was published in 1965. Yeah. So that has had we'll a movie and first... a miniseries adaptation already. We'll be spoiling the first 30 minutes of David Lynch's Dune yes. by talking about the two and a half hours of Dennis Villeneuve's Dune. Um, anyway, so that'll be later, but if you don't want to hear about it, you can timestamp. We have all of those. You can jump around. Um, but Sean, what have you been up to? What's what stuff you got for us? Uh, I've, I've, I've been kind of poking around with stuff. Um, I have uh, watched all of the anime Overman King Gainer, um, which is a Yoshiki Tomino show, uh, which I watched a couple of episodes before... Um, we did our Rekongisa in G podcast because it's the show that Tomino did between Turn A Gundam and G Record. I just wanted to see a little bit of it. Turns out it was really fucking good, so I just binged the shit out of it over the past week because uh, that show yeah. rules. Uh, it's phenomenal. Like I don't want to go into super in-depth about it. I would not be surprised if we eventually do a podcast on that show in some sort of future 
um, by Overman King Gainer is phenomenal. But I did also, I, I played a game um, kind of in between chunks of watching episodes of Overman King Gainer. Uh, and that game is Far Cry 6, a game that I bought entirely because my dad really enjoys playing the Far Cry games. Um, it wasn't really the thing that huh. I went out and, and had a big urge. But since I owned it anyways, because, it's, because my dad can only play like certain kinds of games and he spends like a lot of time on games usually. So he likes to have big open world games that he can really sink his teeth into. And there hasn't been a lot of stuff that like has appealed to him because there haven't been a lot of games that came out this year, certainly in the big AAA space. So it's been a long time. So I bought the game for him, but then that means I also had a PS5 copy. So I probably, probably put maybe like 10 hours in Far Cry 6. I think I'm basically done. I got what I wanted out of it. Um, <laughs> but it's... That game, I have to yeah. say, that had the most muted like reception yes. of any AAA game, I feel like. in like Although Ubisoft's had a couple of these. Watch Dogs Legion also was one that just came and went. Like, But Far Cry 6, it was like critics just were like, no fuck this and then like no one talked about it i don't think i saw a single person like on social media playing that game yeah i th i think like ubisoft's entire like design philosophy at least certainly like in terms of the critical space is just nobody gives a shit anymore and i think for a pretty yeah. good reason like also obviously for all of the like awful shit that came out about ubisoft over the past couple of years um that also sort of like makes it not super exciting to play they're games which are very like turn your brain off kind of games and that's like a lot harder to do when you're also thinking about you know all the fuckers that are still you know making money at that company um but but i have always really enjoyed the far cry franchise at least going back to two so i played far cry two three four five um and and i i tapped out at about 10 hours or so of six and i do think that the weird thing about six is it absolutely feels like it is just another Far Cry game, while at the same time, it is by far the most they have changed Far Cry since they did the jump from 2 to 3, which is a pretty significant change. Um, Far Cry 6 has a shocking amount of destiny in it. It has a, like gear mechanics. They have taken out the skill tree and replaced it basically with gear. So gear, like you have a head piece, a chest piece, gloves, pants, and shoes, and each of them have a perk on it. Um, and most of the perks are basically just things that you used to unlock on the skill tree, um, which is a very weird design choice because it means that you have to pick whether or not you want to be able to do th some things that were pretty kind of like felt like fundamental things like the different kinds of special takedowns, like stealth takedowns you can do um, that they started in Far Cry 3 and 4 and 5 also have. Those are all things that are like attached to gear that you put on, which is very weird. Um, but it has that. It's got, as Ubisoft has done for a while now, it's got the full Destiny menu treatment, but it's another AAA game that has uses the Destiny menu but doesn't understand why the Destiny menu works at all. Um, it should just be a normal D-pad menu, but they just decided to put a Destiny cursor on it for no discernible reason. They didn't yep. <laughs> organize it the way the Destiny menu is organized. They haven't done any of the fine-tuning to, like, you know, the magnetization of the cursor in Destiny feels very satisfying. The Destiny menu is very efficient with, like, the way it handles its dropdowns and all of that. This menu is a normal menu. You just click into sub-menu after sub-menu after sub-menu. It doesn't do the, like, you know, dropdowns that are built into the inventory the way that Destiny does, which makes the cursor make more sense. It's just, we just put a fucking cursor on it. I thought Deathloop had that problem, too. Yes. Like... Totally was like, I wanted to use the D-pad every time, and it made me use the cursor, and it was terrible. Yeah. At the very least, Deathloop has, like, a lot of, like, nonsense. Like, right? Like, it's got a lot of stuff going on, so you have 
a bunch of different kinds of upgrades and things like that. So I can at least see why you would go there, right. even if I don't think it was the best choice. It's way more justified than Far Cry 6. There's just no reason why. The game's menu system is not so complicated. It's no more complicated than Far Cry 3, 4, or 5, which all had just like normal menu types. Um, there are also, on the Destiny thing, there you have this really pointless thing of there are like base camps that you go back to where you can get some missions and stuff. Although it's like, I don't really know why these base camps are like this different than the other like outposts you unlock in the game. But they've decided each region, I'm assuming, I only ever went kind of to one major region of the game, but each region has like one kind of base camp, which is where that kind of faction lives. And the structure of the game is you go to three different regions. Each region has a major faction that you have to win over to do your like sort of you know, revolution in the sort of like fake Cuba or whatever it is called Yara um, to overthrow the Giancarlo Esposito character. Um, and the base camps are all in third person. And I don't know why other than it huh. to make it look like it's like the tower at destiny. But this isn't a thing where you have other characters show up. It's not like a, like there are other people living in the world. You can do two person online co-op like you've been able to do in Far Cry since four. Um, but that's like a, you go into co-op mode. It's not a seamless thing. So I have no idea why they decided to do the third person thing. Other than I guess that your character has cosmetic gear on them. A thing that did also technically exist in Far Cry 5. It was just purely like gloves because you were a first person character. So they're like, oh, well, let's pull the camera out. And so you can see how dumb your character looks because um, your character looks very dumb. Um, and, and there's also like these weird bullet type things where characters have almost what is like elemental affinity. Only it's like, this is a character that you need to use soft target rounds on. This is armor-piercing rounds. These are incendiary rounds. And they have that which kind of feels like the the like three elemental types that Destiny has. So there's like a weird amount of Destiny that they have like slopped over the top of the Far Cry 3 <laughs> model. But they haven't changed anything fundamental about the way that Far Cry plays. So it is this like weird fusion of where like... It, it feels like they have some ideas of where I can imagine a much more interesting Far Cry game that takes those kind of Destiny-influenced elements and pushes it a lot harder and and finds a kind of new game to make rather than making the same game that they already made and then just sort of like finding weird places to add a Destiny-like element onto it without changing anything essential about the gameplay loop. And so it's this thing that is very similar to how Far Cry 5 felt to me that like they... Are these games are not made with any kind of like vision or idea for what they're supposed to be like which you know i have my issues with far cry 3 i like far cry 4 part quite a bit but even far cry 4 is far from a perfect game but those games at the very least felt like there was like a core creative vision that the game design was trying to express about this like kind of survivalist fantasy and all the different elements of the game were meant to reinforce this environment this survivalist fantasy of you starting as like the hunted and becoming the hunter over the course of the game which goes back to a lot of what far cry 1 and far cry 2 is like and they have just like lost any of that completely the game doesn't have that vibe at all but all the gameplay systems that existed to communicate that vibe are still in the game and so it is this bizarre kind of Frankenstein's monster game that reminds me a bit of what kind of like happened with the Dead Rising franchise where it just has kind of lost the core identity without having found a new core identity to move on to so it's just like stuff piled on top of stuff piled on top of stuff um and that's kind of what Far Cry 6 feels to play like and and underneath all that like the shooting is still fun like the far like doing the Far Cry stuff is still like 
momentarily entertaining enough for me to have played like eight to ten hours of the game but it is not anywhere near enough to like sustain what i have to imagine looks like is the biggest far cry game they have made so far because the map is fucking gigantic um so that's far cry that's far cry that's all the ubisoft games i mean like so assassin's creed is the one where it's felt like they've actually been trying to make concerted efforts to evolve it and we know now they're making a very big concerted effort to redo that series with their whole kind of remaking Assassin's Creed as like an ongoing platform thing. We know that's going on in the background, but that's probably still a couple years away. Like, what do they do with all these other friggin' zombie series they have up and walking around? And they're just fucking dead, but they, they're they still moving. I assume Watch Dogs is dead forever. I can't imagine there's going to be another Watch Dogs after Legion, because that... That's a game you can get for like five bucks routinely at Best yeah, Buy. Yeah, that was something. a game that you could get for like twenty dollars. I, I think about a month after it came out. Like, I yeah. yeah, I don't know what the sales numbers for it were, but it feels like a game that must have bombed pretty hard. Yeah. Well, if we don't have sales numbers, there's a reason. Yeah. Like, we do know, like Valhalla sold well because they told us. <laughs> but yeah. like, yeah. Oh, well, here's if one one thing on Far Cry Six. If people are playing it or are or do want to play it, because again, like if you do just don't give a shit and you want to turn your brain off it's like it is it is like a game that is like satisfying to play in that kind of far cry-ish way if you don't give a shit about the rest of it so i think it's like you know there are there are people who will enjoy this game if you are playing it though absolutely put on the spanish language dub because oh my god the fucking like fake spanglish is so obnoxious it is very video game spanglish um it is really annoying as fuck um and so after about like 30 minutes i had this revelation of like well whenever i play a game that's like a japanese game i just go and turn the japanese language on and even though this obviously was made with the english dub as like the main thing there is a spanish language dub that they have made for spanish-speaking territories so just go to the menu turn on the spanish audio it makes the game like if you if i were rating it on like a out of 10 scale that legitimately just moves the game up like one to two points on that scale because it makes all the story stuff (laughs) far more tolerable the main character danny if you play the female version of danny is actually pretty good um i enjoy her a lot um like not enough to kind of make me want to keep on pushing through the story stuff which is otherwise just utterly unmemorable and it's not good but it is not annoying and feels way more kind of authentic because it's like the actual language of the region that they should be speaking if you're playing it with the spanish language so that that would be my if you are playing it or interested in playing it i think that is like absolutely a mandatory thing to do is turn the spanish language on probably just makes it more immersive too because of the setting and everything so yeah that's cool well, at least that option is there. Um, is Spanish Sean Carlos Esposito still cool? Yes, yes. It's. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how. I, well, I, I would say much. like the Jean Carlos Esposito side of the game is like completely whatever. Like it's not that he he you know he does what he does. It but it feels like it is Jean Carlos Esposito showing up for a paycheck very much. Um, yeah. But like this, but I don't. I never felt like I was missing anything. I guess by not getting his vocal performance. Um, by switching over to the <laughs> yeah. Spanish language version, it, it was a good sounding, like evil Spanish dictator man, I guess. Yeah. I mean, luckily we are not like wanting for good Giancarlo Esposito performances. Yeah. So it's, it's not like we needed him in Far Cry 6, but yeah. Oh, well. All right. Um, I've been playing some games too, Sean, but I've been playing them on a new piece of kit because I did last week pick up, uh, at Best Buy an Xbox Series S. Yes. I, um, I saw this on Twitter. Yeah. I side upgraded i don't know how you would quite call it but my xbox one x 
I put out to pasture. Uh, Your Cyberpunk I, 2077 I, Xbox One X. Just, let's talk about that for a second. John, <laughs> mother... Yeah. I bought that thing. I bought that thing in part thinking, I think reasonably so, that a limited edition, they didn't make like a ton of them, like a limited edition Cyberpunk Xbox One X would hold its value pretty well. And that I would be able to sell it later on down the line, possibly for a profit, which is true for like the vast majority yes. of special edition game consoles. Like that was not a crazy assumption of mine, right, Sean? Yeah, like I could get a good profit if I sold my Spider-Man PS4 Pro. For yes, instance. exactly. Yeah. Even though that's not like the latest and greatest piece of hardware, you could, right? Okay. Um, no, the Cyberpunk, the collapse of Cyberpunk 2077 also very much collapsed the value of that console. I did sell it to pay for the Series S, and I did make everything I paid for the Series S, but not that much more, and less than I bought the thing for, and uh, there's just, there's no way around it, just the value had completely collapsed. Um, I actually got a pretty good price compared to like other sales I'd seen on, on eBay and stuff, it just, no one wanted it, because that game was a giant fraud that should probably be criminally prosecuted, and uh, there you go. Yep. But... The Xbox Series S itself, like, I'll tell you my logic for getting it. My logic being that my PS5 is sort of my primary, you know, game console at the moment. Um, at least home console. The Switch sort of lives between, right? Um, and then I have my PC laptop, which I like to play um, certainly anything that I would use a mouse and keyboard for, obviously, like an FPS or something. And it's pretty powerful for what I can play on my... Like, I usually don't hook up my laptop to a TV or anything because my laptop screen can do like 240 hertz and my graphics card is good for like 1080p gaming but won't really go above that right. necessarily so i like that and so i thought what i wanted a series s for was like i did still want an xbox like box in my entertainment center for all their back compat stuff um for various like console games that i don't want to like really play on my pc and would just rather have on the tv and all that and my Xbox One X is, it was fine, but like definitely we were already seeing that I think Xbox's promise of like, we're just going to keep everything on everything forever was already sort of breaking down in this first year mm -hmm. because that's not really possible. Um, and the Series S through the first year has seemed to be pretty rock solid in delivering what was promised, which is you're not going to get full 4K resolution, but you are going to get parity in terms of like frame rates and loading times and all of that stuff. Yeah, and um, like features and stuff. You're not going to get like right. the like 64 player versus 128 player battlefield or anything like that yeah exactly so it is it is very much a next gen console just lower res and i was like i'm totally fine with that because if i list and i'm sure you agree with me sean if i list all the things i care about in graphics resolution is the bottom of that list mm -hmm. i it's nice but i would rather have hdr and frame rate and loading times and all of those other technical bells and whistles before you get to uh, resolution which can scale pretty well on modern tvs so anyway, uh, and especially if it's not going to be my primary thing. So Series S, three three hundred bucks, nice little thing. Picked it up. It's also the only console you can regularly find right now. Uh -huh. um, it's not available like one hundred percent of the time, but if you keep an eye out and you want a Series S, it is on sale much more often than a Series X or a PS Five. Um, so if you want a next gen console, it's by far the easiest to find. So anyway, I got the Series S. Um, first thing, it is hilariously small. I love it. I love the design. It is so much what I hoped that, you know, back when they did the Xbox One S digital yes. version, uh -huh. but what it was, was it was just the Xbox One S without the disc drive. Yes. The, the this Xbox is why One SAD, um, which yes. was, it, is the best acronym for any video game console. Yes. The Xbox One S all digital, which, yeah, sad. Um, but that was just the normal S without a disk drive. 
this is actually like an Xbox that has been a, like developed around the idea of not having a disk drive. So mm-hmm. it's very small. It's honestly, it, it's kind of like the size of two of my little standalone Sony Blu-ray players stacked on top of each other. It's tiny. It's about the like length of two Xbox controllers next to each other. It is a very small little thing. Um, so it'll fit, you know, in any space really well. It's white. It looks really nice. Um, it's got the white Xbox controller. I am someone who came into Xbox with the 360. So I have always associated the Xbox brand with the color white because that's just how I grew up playing video games was with my white 360 controller and the big white 360 tower that would have a red ring of death every summer uh, uh-huh. when I needed to play games the most. Um and so I kind of like having that again. But anyway, the Series S is great. Um, it is a, it, it is as I said, kind of exactly what it is as advertised. You get all the sort of next gen bells and whistles, just without necessarily the the highest resolutions. The game I am playing right now on it is The Ascent, which is one I had really been excited to play. That is the game by oh, I forget the name of the the studio, but they're sort of an indie studio. The main team on The Ascent is just like a twelve person studio. Um, but it is the cyberpunk 2077 game that is not cyberpunk 2077. Uh-huh. So There's a cyberpunk game without the 2077. It's the one that you saw probably at Xbox shows the last couple of years because it is an Xbox exclusive. Um, and it is the top-down, like, isometric Diablo view twin-stick shooter um, in a sort of cyberpunk setting. And I'll talk about that game in a second because it is fantastic. It's one of my favorite games of this year. Uh, and it is the better cyberpunk game of the last year. It is, like much 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 more what i would have wanted out of like an actual cyberpunk video game so it's very good um but that game runs at like 1440p it's got the 60 fps loads not as quick as like a ps5 game but loads very quick all of that good stuff so it's kind of exactly what i would hope for the game looks gorgeous um i've tried a couple of other games out on it um halo the master chief collection does load extremely quickly now it loads more on par with like how my pc has done it maybe even a little quicker because this has you know more of the dedicated ssd thing in it um i haven't tried a ton of like because honestly there's not like a ton of series sx exclusive games right now so i've looked at a couple that were on game pass um but some of them are also very big and i haven't downloaded them yet like i do want to download at some point and try uh, microsoft flight simulator and see how the heck that works on a yeah. controller on a tv uh, but it is also a big download um, but the coolest thing, honestly, is people have talked about it. That quick resume thing that Xbox has is no joke. It's really cool. It doesn't work with every game. It doesn't work with the Ascent. I think the reason it doesn't work with the Ascent is because the Ascent is sort of an online game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even in single player. I think it keeps a connection to the server for some reason. So they just don't do it. I don't really know why that is. But for the games it does work with, I mean, one thing is, and I think this is an update they did to the UI over the last year. It wasn't there at launch, but it signals very clearly when you hit the Xbox jewel and you bring up the little menu, it shows you exactly what is in quick resume at the time. And you can jump between them. You can close games out of quick resume. Um, and it stays between like turning your console off and on and everything. So it's really neat. Um, I have had a couple of games in there just for fun. The one I've had, because the other game I've been playing a little bit of, because it was on Game Pass and I realized I hadn't played it yet, is Cyber Shadow, which is the new game, uh, Yacht uh, uh, Yacht Games, whatever, Yacht Club Games published. They're the publishers of, or they're the creators of Shovel Knight. Right. This is a game, I don't think they made, but they published it. And it's another sort of like 8-bit throwback game. This one is more of a throwback to Ninja Gaiden. Really good game. And it's very funny with the, the quick resume. I just 
I, I keep kind of going back to it, and it just always throws me right into the middle of the level where I was. That's very neat. Um, it even works on some of the like 360 and Xbox original backwards compat games, which is crazy because those didn't have any kind of suspend resume on the Xbox One. Um, for whatever reason, that must be how the emulation worked. But they do now for some of them. Like I've had the Symphony of the Night port open, and just can open right back into, I'm at the beginning of the game where you're talking to Dracula, and he's saying, What is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. But and, enough uh, talk. How about you? Yes, and just quick resume right into that. Uh, it works with the Master Chief collection. I'm not entirely sure how that will work. I think it'll, like, I was in campaign, so I'm sure it'll jump you back into the campaign. But I don't know about, obviously it's not going to jump you back to your multiplayer match. Yeah, so it that just turns every, all, like, the seven other Xboxes that were in that Team Slayer just, like, turn on magically. Is like, we yes. got to get this multiplayer match back up. Jonathan's just turned it on. <laughs> yeah, but it's a neat feature. Otherwise, the UI is, it is the Xbox One UI that we were used to. It runs faster, it's snappier, all of that on Series S. And all of the refinements they've made over the years. I mean, it is a really good UI. It's I think it's a better UI than what the PS5 has. It's it's deeper, it's richer, it's you know, it's more fully featured, all of that. But that's partially because it's the UI that they've been developing for a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very mature and it's very good. Um, the controller on the Series S and X is a very minor upgrade to the Xbox One controller, but it is a good one. Like there are some nice things. It adds a share button, which is great. And from my use of the share button, it's very fast and snappy. It is, um, it's not quite as fast as like where on the Nintendo Switch, the moment you hit the share button, you get the confirmation like immediately, like you're taking a screenshot on your iPhone or something. The Series S is like maybe a second, like a half second later than that, whereas the PS5 always takes a couple of seconds to give you that confirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never been sure why that is. PS4 always gives you a little bit of the delay there. Um, but the Xbox is very quick about that. Um, so the share button's great. They've uh, added some like grippy material on the underside and on the triggers. They've kind of re... It's slightly redesigned ergonomically around the sides, and I do think it feels probably a little bit better in the hand than the original Xbox One controller did. Um, not like a ton, but it is a little noticeable where your hands like sit on the triggers and the bumpers and all of that stuff. Um, so it's very good. The biggest upgrade is the D-pad. I, I think the, as the Series XS controllers now have the best D-pad on any... like controller being sold right now first party controller it is what they've done is they've kind of raised it up a little bit kind of like the 360 d-pad was and they've given it sort of the the little circle points on the controller sort of like the elite controller has but they've kept the like main four quadrant points very sharp and clicky and so it is just an extremely like clicky deep d-pad that feels super satisfying to use like i downloaded several just side scrolling games to play with because it is such a fantastic d-pad i honestly i think i like it even more than the d-pad on the um elite controller which is like this big stainless steel thing that i love the thing that i think makes the series s d-pad even better is just that it's elevated out of the controller enough that there's none of that mushiness you sometimes get with like mm-hmm. the ps4 slash ps5 d-pad i think you would get that on the xbox one d-pad um it's a little bit more like a classic nintendo d-pad in that way but with those sort of radial points on the sides that i I haven't played like a fighting game or something, but I imagine if you loaded up like Dragon Ball Fighters or something on this, it would be a phenomenal way to play that game. Um, it's a very, very good D-pad, and I was very impressed by that upgrade because Xbox has had a weird like history with D-pads because mm-hmm. the 360 had 
kind of a terrible one, but also it was like at least memorable. And then the Xbox One was good, but very basic, and I think a little too recessed into the controller. And then this is like, nah, perfect. I, I really like it, and I've been kind of gaming with that just because I like that D-pad so much. Um, but it's a very, very good controller. So, you know, it does not have all of the bells and whistles of the PS5, and I do think the DualSense is the most ergonomically comfortable first-party controller right now. Um, I think it's it leapfrogged the Xbox controller for me, which I would have put the Xbox ergonomically above the DualShock 4, but I would now put the DualSense above the Xbox one. But um, it is good. It's a good little controller that they've, they've um, you know, it's, it's a tried-and-true formula. Right. They've basically been iterating on this since the 360 came out for good reason. It is a very good controller, but it's good. Awesome, yeah. It is. I, I've been like thinking about getting a Series S. I think we talked about this a while ago where my Xbox, my original Xbox One is the only of the consoles to have like died somehow in the transit from Colorado to Texas. <laughs> I've got a fucking Sega yeah. Genesis we've had literally since before I was born. That thing's still fucking kicking. Uh, but that Xbox yep. One, I don't know what it was. That, that, that Xbox One was always like finicky. Um, so I think it, it, because it was pretty early, I think we got that about a year after that console came out. It was the console that my dad used for a long time. Um, but since that died, I don't have a like good, easy way to play Halo. Like I can obviously hook up my Xbox 360 and play the old Halo games that way. Um, but it would be convenient to be able to just use the Master Chief Collection, which I did have. And I would play it sometimes to play old Halo stuff on that Xbox One. Um, so I've been thinking about potentially getting a Series S, mostly just for... To have an easy to use Halo machine, even if nothing else. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, if nothing else, you know, the Master Chief Collection looks and runs great. It's probably not like it's probably not native 4K, but you do get all the HDR stuff, which looks really nice on the Master Chief Collection yeah. now. Uh, you know, and 4K it's... Halo would be nice, but I don't need it. You know, I pl I played fucking 480p Halo for years. So yes, exactly. Um, and it's still again, all the upscaling is still very nice, especially with modern TVs. Um, I think the only like big hesitation I would have at all about the Series S is that the hard drive is small. Right. It's 512 gigs, and you get about 400 usable gigs, maybe a little less than that. And I think if you, I think if you're in our position where it's not going to be your primary everyday console, I think that's pretty easy to manage. Honestly, um, you know, like a couple of big games will eat that up, but you're probably not going to be playing too many of those at once. And it does work with hard drives. So if you didn't necessarily care about the Master Chief Collection loading as fast as possible, you could just play that. Like I hooked in my hard drive I had connected to my Xbox One, and all my games worked on there just fine. Um, they would just load slower. So all of that is possible. Um, it's a good little console, and I think it is, especially if you are someone like us who it would be your sort of secondary or tertiary gaming thing, it's a really good answer for that. And I think it's also a great answer for someone who's maybe been away from gaming for a while or hasn't owned a console before. It's a very good entry-level platform, is, is my experience with it so far. Awesome. Yeah. And I have been playing, like I said, The Ascent. The Ascent is a, a game I'd wanted to play. It came out like in August or something, and I'd been really interested in it because it did get very good reviews when it came out, if a little bit muted because it had some technical problems, which again isn't the most like con uh, surprising thing in the world because it is a small team that made this game. Um, but 
it's pretty it's been pretty good for me so far i'm sure they've patched it in the months since and it's running very well for me um but the ascent like i said it is a sort of it, it on the surface will look like a diablo because of the isometric view but it is basically a twin stick shooter um where you run around on the map and obviously you would sort of aim the gun with the right stick and move the character with the left and you shoot and you all know what a twin stick shooter is um and it is set in a very you know cyberpunk cyberpunk inflected world where you are the whole like lore of the game is that there are all these indentured servants servants who basically come to this big city that is the area you are in in the game which is this like big like massive it honestly reminds me a lot of final fantasy 7 and midgar it's this like big giant tower with like multiple levels and basically you get to come live in this cool city but you have to work for one of the corporations and so you become an indent or an indentured servant um and you are running missions for your like corporate masters and then over the course of the game stuff happens and you're you're doing different things um and it is like first and foremost it is one of the most gorgeous games you will play this year it is an incredible feat of art direction and graphical design it is like i honestly was never that impressed with cyberpunk 2077's visuals even in trailers and stuff it never despite its name never kind of like screamed cyberpunk to me personally from like what i'm interested in like the blade runner ghost in the shell like that like foundational cinematic text kind of thing mm -hmm. um and i don't think its world was that interesting this game the ascent honestly looks like you have just stepped into one of those movies and it is so cool there's so much detail in the world the way it uses like lighting and color is incredible especially because it's actually the game does not use hdr but it can honestly fool you because of some of what it does with like neon lighting is so intense in, and really really cool the environments are just so neat to run around in it's it's not like a game with like a super compelling story i don't think and if you can feel the like smallness of the main team you kind of sometimes feel it in some of the writing and dialogue design where there's like not a lot of actors and a lot of it is not voiced and i'm fine with that but some people might be jarred by that um but there is a lot of good lore writing where like whenever you arrive in a new area or meet a character or something it'll pop up in your upper left like hey you have a new codex entry and you can hit the menu button and it'll bring you right to that and you can read it and the font is too small because it's a game in the year 2021 yeah. um but you can still you know squint and read it and i think all of the it's just it's very in tune to the like just grimy dehumanization of this world um it is not like the deepest cyberpunk thing i've ever seen but it definitely like scratches that itch and then the main reason to play it is it just plays like a fucking dream it is such a good game to play the basics of like getting and trying the different guns and running through the levels because the main thing you do in most of the game is shoot people and you're running around on these levels and there's like a cover system where basically you can crouch and get behind different pieces of cover it's not a snap to cover thing which is good because that would be really hard in a game like this um and then you can sort of hold the left trigger and you can like put you have your two positions for your gun you're sort of like straight ahead and then also aiming up if you want to be behind cover um and they just send a boatload of enemies at you and it is often a really hard game where you will die a lot um but you have a lot of tools you have your main guns you have different powers that you can put on left and right bumper you have a type of grenade you can use you have certain um and, and i say grenades some of them are also things like you can put on an auto turret you have different passive abilities and it is the kind of game where when you're having trouble on a boss it's really fun to just like completely rebuild your character a little bit and put on different things and then go in and just decimate the boss because you've sort of figured out what you need and you have a lot of tools and it is just incredibly fun to play i have been having a lot of fun with it the music is also fantastic um it is very much in the like sort of blade runnery vein um with like maybe a little bit of like kind of reminds me a little bit even of like what Hans Zimmer did with Blade Runner 2049 
um, of like kind of a little bit more modern version of it, but it is very cool. There's definitely some Ghost in the Shell music in there um, in terms of like the some of like when you're just running around the world. Definitely some of that kind of like weird eerie music that will play in like Ghost in the Shell when they're mm-hmm. just moving through the world. I think it takes from that a little bit, um, but it is super cool and I really like it. It's not a perfect game. It definitely has some limitations in. I think mainly like traversal is a little weird. There's your character moves kind of slowly and that's totally fine in combat but when i'm running through the world i this is a game where i desperately want a sprint button and there is no sprint button so you do wind up doing the ocarina of time thing of just having your character roll everywhere Uh um to go a little tiny bit faster um maybe even not faster i don't know it just makes you feel like you're moving and then i think the map in the game is bad and tells you nothing the main like arrow that it will point you around is good and does tell you where to go but when you open up like the actual map of the city it's very hard to find things and all the fast travel is done through going to taxis or train stations and i actually like that i like any kind of fast travel that is like grounded in the world but sometimes it's a little confusing to find exactly where to go but you know i think especially for like kind of a debut effort by a small team it's a really freaking cool game, and especially if you have Game Pass, it's a it's on that. It's a no-brainer. I'm really happy to be trying it. Um, it's kind of one of the things I wanted uh, one of the Xbox consoles for because it's very much a you know game you would play with a controller, hence the term twin stick. Yeah. Um, and it looks really good on the TV and everything, and it is it's definitely a good um, showcase for the Series S versus Series X split because looking at like uh, what Digital Foundry has said about the game and then playing it myself. It is the exact experience from Series X, just at a lower resolution. And honestly, it's at a 1440p, which is nothing to sneeze at, and is totally acceptable on 4K TV. Like, we've all been playing 1440p games for years. That was, like, the high end on a lot of PS4 uh, Pro stuff, honestly. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, it's a cool game. I'm really enjoying that. That's sort of the main thing I've been playing the last week, and I would definitely highly recommend that one. It's cool. Awesome. Yeah, I feel like the twin stick shooter thing was like super popular in the Xbox Live Arcade days. And then I feel like it kind of like went away in favor of like, I feel like the roguelike kind of took over what the twin stick shooter like game used to be um, in that kind of indie game space. And it's nice to know that that there's someone out there still doing that because twin stick shooters are really fun. I have a lot of fondness for that genre. And especially when you put it in a setting this cool, Mm -hmm. like... Yeah, I because that's the thing. That's it's like how well does it play, but then also it is a genre with a somewhat limited amount of things you can do with it. So the cooler the setting is, the cooler the game. Yeah, for this kind of thing. So yeah, it's neat. All right, you want to hit some news, Sean? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? So we're going to talk about DC fandom stuff mainly here, but I did want to start with one sad piece of news that hit really close to home for me this week that I, I saw on Twitter, which is that um, Christopher Ayers, who was an English mm-hmm. voice actor who among lots of different roles, and he did directing of, of ADR and all that kind of stuff too, he played Frieza in the Dragon Ball Z Kai dub, and then in the Dragon Ball Super movies and some parts of the, the Dragon Ball Super dub. Um, but he was basically the new voice of Frieza since Dragon Ball Z Kai. Um, he had had a long battle with COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. He actually is not in all of the Dragon Ball Super TV dub. Um, he was play- replaced by Damian Mills for parts of that because he had a double lung transplant. Um, and, and he passed away this week um, after that long battle. He was 56 years old. Um, and that was sad for a number of reasons, you know, in terms of the career side of things. I just, I think without any 
shred of doubt in my mind. His Frieza is the best translation of a Japanese voice to an English dub I have ever heard. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's even any question about that. Um, but on a personal level, I mean, I have seen this for years. This this was a great guy. This was someone who was so open with fans, loving to them. They were loving to him, especially during all of his illness and stuff. You just saw the best side of, I think, fandom around that. Um, and from everything, this is another person who they passed away and you just, you know, every word you heard was amazing. Um, and very, very, just tremendously sad. Um, because a, a real talent and you know we obviously don't talk about the dub space a whole lot on this show um, but obviously this was someone who was very beloved in that community and I think even beyond it because I think there's a lot of people like us who generally wouldn't watch a dub of Dragon Ball who like his work as Frieza just is unbelievable um, I've, I've never really heard anything quite to that degree of someone taking something like a, a performance like a Ryusei Nakao in, in Japanese and really like not just imitating it but also then making it their own um above and beyond anything i've honestly ever heard in an english dub and and i that's not me damning with faint praise that's me saying chris ayers was really fucking good at this yeah no 100 percent. because i mean i had because i watched the dragon ball z the english version of dragon ball z kai before i did my big like watching all of dragon ball in the dub in the japanese language starting with Dragon Ball, going through Dragon Ball Z. Because the trouble I had always had is, and I think this is common for a lot of people who started with the English dub, as I think it's hard to start with Masako Nozawa playing adult Goku, because it's hard to have the buy-in on the voice yet if you haven't started with Goku as a kid, because the voice sounds too much like a woman playing it if you don't have the sort of connection to the character yet. Um, and so that is a thing that was like kind of hard to get used to. Um, so I had tried to watch Dragon Ball in Japanese for a long time and enjoyed parts of it, but could never like sustain it all the way through. But there was that big resurgence of Dragon Ball in the English speaking community when Kai came out that then kind of segued into then, you know, Toei doing the Dragon Ball on Battle of Gods movie and stuff of this feeling of like Dragon Ball coming back. And definitely the English speaking community, I feel like Chris Ayers was like a big part of that because his Frieza made Dragon Ball so worth revisiting because i have some nostalgic fondness for the linda young version of the character which is the original version because it's the version i watched as a kid but it's it's not a good interpretation of the character it's because terrible. because and it's not her fault like nothing about that version of dragon ball is a particularly good version like interpretation of dragon ball when you know what dragon ball is um and you've experienced the original or you've read the manga or watched the japanese version or if you watch the the english you know kai dub which is a really like in most in the the worst parts of it are just like respectable it's like oh this is a good attempt and the best parts of it are i'm with you are like amongst the best performances i've ever seen in an english language dub of a japanese um property and, and chris harris's frieza is is the best part of that and yeah and it always felt like for the english side of things and especially for the dub side of things he was like almost like the poster child for it because he wasn't part of that original team um, because most of the other roles were not recast. There were some roles like Gohan and stuff that were young Gohan that were recast, but you know, Goku, Vegeta, Piccolo, all those were the same. Um, so Chris Ayers coming in and being this new Frieza that's so powerful and like frightening and interesting and compelling a character the way you would associate the character if you watched it in Japanese, like it felt like this sort of like lightning rod or something for the English language Dragon Ball community and kind of re coming back to Dragon Ball reassessing it in many ways for for me like 
reigniting my interest in it enough for me to like commit to watching Dragon Ball all the way through in Japanese, which was also coincided with me starting to study Japanese was the other reason I did that because it was an easy thing to start watching and, and kind of practice that way. Um, but it, but I do kind of associate it a little bit with my kind of not I wouldn't say rediscovering Dragon Ball because I always really loved Dragon Ball, but coming back into Dragon Ball with like a desire to look at it fresh like what he did with Frieza was a big part of that for me personally. So yeah, this definitely hit, yeah. hit pretty hard. And you know, for me, because I was someone who did watch Dragon Ball in English as a kid, because if you were a kid in the US, you had to, because that's what yes. was on TV. Uh-huh. Um, but I was primarily from a young age more interested in the Japanese version, and I had watched like all of DBZ in Japanese like before you had. Um, and so I very much, by the time Kai came out, came to it with the all right, well, prove it to me. Like, I would like you to do a good dub because that was the whole thing was Kai was this opportunity to do it from the start because also, like, the Dragon Ball Z dub that, like, if you go buy the sets right now that exists is this weird patchwork of, like, dub work they did from, like, a a 10-year span out of order. The Vegeta stuff is, like, the last thing they did. It's it's very weird. And Kai was like, okay, we're going to do it fresh from the beginning. Um, I actually, I wish there were more recastings in Kai. Like, I wish they had done Kaiosama differently. There's a couple of those. They did do a different Cell, and I do like Travis Willingham's Cell, although Cell was not a, the, the problem in original Dragon Ball Z. I do like original Perfect Cell's English voice also, even if he does sound like Plankton. People have done those videos <laughs> yes. on YouTube, and it's very true. Anyway, um, but yeah, so I very much came into that Dragon Ball Z Kai dub with kind of the prove-it mentality, and I was definitely impressed with what was in the Vegeta saga because I do think Chris Sabat got a lot better at Vegeta in that arc. I think a lot of the other actors, like I liked the Colleen Klinkenbeard Gohan, I like her a lot. Um, all of that stuff was good. But then then Frieza comes in and Chris Ayers sends chills down your spine. Mm-hmm. Like in the same way Ryusei Nakao does, but I don't, it's almost disrespectful to say in the same way because it's not just that he like captures what Ryusei Nakao did, he does also kind of make it his own. I think there's there is that same quality of like polite menace to Frieza that is the core to like the Ryusei Nakao thing. But I think there's just, there's such that like extra layer of like, it's a really good example actually of writing in a dub too, because so much of why Frieza works in Japanese is the way he's written and what kind of polite Japanese he's speaking. And I think what they lean into with the Chris Ayers version is he's like this like noble spoiled brat who like has had a silver spoon in his mouth his whole life. And he does a really good job with that. And it is a funny performance. It is a menacing performance. It was the great joy of like Resurrection F in Japanese and in English was mm-hmm. hearing either Ryusei Nakao or Chris Ayers do the part. It's why like, um, you know, Resurrection F showed in theaters only in English. And I remember being like, well, I would prefer to see it in Japanese, but actually that means I get to go see a movie of Chris Ayers doing Frieza. That's going to be fun. And it was. Um, and then he also did do it in, in Broly which uh, wound up being his, his final turn as the character. Um, and, you know, the, the the understudy who wound up taking over for him on the super dub, Damian Mills, if you hear him, is also good. And he's doing... It's it's very much meant to be in the vein of what Chris Ayers was doing. So Frieza is, is in good hands. But, man, um, it was an incredible performance and there's not enough of it because he, he just... He killed it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that is the case. Um and I am so, so sad to hear of, of his passing and of all the, the medical problems he had because he was uh, a great talent and just, by all accounts, a deeply good person. And, you know, it's, it's so sad. Yeah. All right. 
You want to move on to some stupid DC stuff? Yeah, let's talk about stupid some stupid shit. All right, um, we'll hit the good one last. Uh, so DC Fandom was a big marketing event where they had a bunch of. This was a weird one because like nothing they showed at DC Fandom last year has come out other than I think the Suicide Squad, the James Gunn movie. Mm-hmm. So it was really all taking looks at things we already knew about again. Um, but we did get some interesting stuff. So, okay, brief teasers for both the Flash movie and Black Adam, both of which are filming. They are happening. Black Adam is the movie with uh, Dwayne Johnson, which this teaser very clearly signaled is going to be connected to Shazam. So even though Black Adam is not in the Shazam movie like he probably should be, it is still like a Shazam spinoff. Yeah, so for we got a little bit of that. For people who don't know, Black Adam right. is Shazam's like Lex Luthor, basically. I mean, he, yes. he's he's or he's like Venom to Spider Man. He's the evil version of Shazam. He's Shazam, but with a black costume is a very like you know reductive take on the character. But it, I mean, that's literally what he is, right? Yeah, and for people who don't know the long production history in the like many years leading up to them making that Shazam movie with Zachary Levi. For a long time of that, the villain of that movie was going to be Black Adam, and he was going to be played by Dwayne Johnson. Eventually, I think because Dwayne Johnson is so famous, they decided to spin him off and make a separate Black Adam movie. I think it was probably a shitty decision. I think Shazam 1 would have been better with Black Adam in it, because the villain in that movie does not work. Um, but this is the result of that. It got delayed several times, and then COVID delayed it also. But they have made their Black Adam movie... The teaser was a very, very much a teaser. You basically like saw him in the costume from like the neck down. You didn't even see Dwayne Johnson's face. But they're doing that. Um, I'm, I'm curious about it. I, I think it could be good. I think the decision to split these separate is weird. But yeah, I mean, I'm. I don't think it's impossible to make a good Black Adam movie. I'm just like confused by the choice. I just and I, you know, I don't know so much about the character that I think it's. There's a chance that there's a lot about the character I just don't know that makes it more feasible to do a standalone movie. But my exposure to the character, I just can't even fathom how is he the protagonist of the film? Like, what is the, what is the like? What are you even going to do? I'm very curious. Like, what is the rest of the cast? What are like the what's the plot going to be? And this teaser doesn't hint at any of that. It's just here's Black Adam. You don't even see Dwayne the Rock Johnson's face. He's wearing like the hood, and I feel right. like. If I were doing that teaser, even though everybody knows, anyone who knows that they're making this movie knows the only reason they're making it is because The Rock wants to play the character, I still would have just finished with him putting the hood down and seeing like an evil Rock and being like, hey, that's the reason why this movie's being made. This is the reason why most people will see it. There he is. It's The Rock. Yeah. I mean, so they did also show a behind the scenes video for Shazam 2 Fury of the Gods, which they are currently filming, so there's not a trailer for it. So they're making Shazam 2. This one, it does look fun. It's got like Helen Mirren as the villain, so there's some good casting in it. Um, But this was behind the scenes stuff. But this and Black Adam are coming out around the same time. My assumption is that there's going to be like a Shazam 3 slash Black Adam 2 that puts them together. Because I don't know why you would do all this and never, never have Shazam and Black Adam meet. But who knows. Um, I, I did like Shazam 1 fine, so I'm curious about a Shazam 2. It does look fun. But then we also got a brief teaser for The Flash, which was narrated by Michael Keaton reprising his role as Batman from the 1989 movie. 
and this one the flash has they very clearly lay out a like flashpoint scenario where the flash has gone back and saved his mom and time has gotten fucked up and now the flash is in an alternate universe we all kind of suspected that because that's how you're going to bring in the michael keaton batman but the throwing us for a loop is that there are multiple ezra millers in here and it looks like the flash in this movie is not the flash from the Zack snyder films and justice league so it is a it is still Ezra Miller, but we're resetting the Flash at a new universe. I just, I really, I really wonder how you're going to be able to sell this to a mass audience, uh-huh. Sean, where you are so fucking in the weeds with like flashes and you're starting with Flashpoint and all of that. And like the Michael Keaton side of it is fun, but I think it's telling that this was way more a Batman trailer than it was a Flash trailer. And this is supposed to be the debut of the Flash movie. It feels like maybe this movie being developed for like 20 years with a bajillion screenwriters maybe wound up in a kind of confused place. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like if you told me that that movie, that if you showed me that exact trailer and you said this movie is basically the like what this that new Ghostbusters thing is but for Tim Burton's Batman, I would believe that that's a trailer for that movie basically because it is 100% yeah. like... It's Michael Keaton, Batman. He's back in the cowl. Um, there's, you know, they have like teased the fucking Batmobile. It's like it's 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 just that, and it's like in the delivery vehicle to get to that is some time fuckery with the Flash. Um, it's like I would believe that that would be what this trailer was. Like, I'm 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 I have I don't feel like the the CW Flash TV show is popular enough to justify the choice. That the only live action Flash movie that has it has yet to be made is going to be a story about the Flash traveling through time and meeting Batman feels crazy to me. Like that's fucking, that's fucking utterly insane. That would be like if the first Thor movie was Thor Ragnarok. Like nobody would be able to even process what the fuck was <laughs> happening, you know? Because nobody knows who this character is. Like what what is ha- Like you know, it's a great story. But you kind of need to have a broader audience buy into the concept of the character. Because when people think of the Flash, all they think of is, uh, he's the guy who runs really fast. And that's it. They don't think of, he runs really fast and that means he can also travel through time and go to alternate dimensions and shit. That's, while that is a thing that has been true for the character for decades, it is not the thing that anybody knows about the character that isn't a fucking nerd. So I right. have no idea how they're going to like sell this movie and what a general audiences would even think of it. Yeah, I I mean, clearly the strategy is they're going to sell it as a Batman movie. Yeah. Starring The Flash, which is a weird choice. Uh, we also got a behind-the-scenes video for Aquaman 2, which is called Aquaman in the Lost Kingdom. Looks good. I liked... Aquaman 1 is underrated. It's a good movie. People should watch it. I like Jason Momoa. Uh, I say people should watch it. It's the highest-grossing DC movie of all time. It has made more than any Batman movie. It. No one needs to be told that. That movie was a hit among hits. Um, let's see... Peacemaker, the the spinoff of the Suicide Squad movie, got a trailer that I thought was terrible. Yeah, I like James Gunn, but this looks bad. What did you think, Sean? I yeah, the you know it. I was very confused about the choice to make a Peacemaker spinoff miniseries thingy, uh, based on seeing James Gunn's Suicide Squad movie, which was a movie I thought was fine, and I am still confused by the choice having watched that trailer to do this. Like I just don't I think I'm more confused. Him. Yeah. Like I don't understand why this project exists at all. HBO Max needs subscribers. Yeah. Um speaking of which, they they did detail two movies that they are making 
exclusively for HBO Max, so these will not be in theaters. One of them is the Batgirl movie, which has been gestating for a while. That was one Joss Whedon was going to be doing before Joss Whedon, Joss Whedon himself. Uh -huh. um, well, he Joss Whedon a lot of other people, sadly, but ultimately he Joss Whedon his own career, too. Um, that is being directed by Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falah. They are the directors uh, most recently of Bad Boys for Life, the Bad Boys 3 movie. Uh, it will have a Batgirl who is Barbara Gordon, played by Leslie Grace, who most recently was Nina in the in the Heights movie, if you've seen that. Uh, and it will have J.K. Simmons as Commissioner Gordon. He played Gordon in the Justice League movie. So I don't know if this is supposed to be the same universe, or it's just J.K. Simmons is good, so let's use him. Yeah. I, it is this thing of where I just feel like I have no idea what the fuck Warner Brothers is doing with their DC. Like, I can't tell. Do they want to just do... A bunch of standalone movies that are set entirely their own universe or do they want to continue to try some sort of cinematic universe it's very confusing both the answer is both uh and i don't think you really can have it both ways so that's why it's confusing sean um for some reason i am confused that at no point in this process has wb had women on board to make this movie it was a joss whedon vehicle previously now it's two men okay i i feel like batgirl is a pretty easy gimme to maybe hire a woman to direct a superhero movie but okay yeah. is Will Batman exist in the universe of Batgirl? And if so, which Batman will it be? Is it Michael Keaton? I, I don't know. Is it ben I Affleck? mean, if it's J.K. Simmons, it would be Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck is also going to be in the Flash movie. We didn't see him in the trailer. But yeah, I'm. I don't know. I don't know, Sean. The answer is maybe they don't know. I, yeah, but they're making that. Like, I would like a Batgirl movie, but yes, a Batgirl movie should be written and directed by women. Um, yeah. Least, yeah. Anyway, th th this is a long ways off. This is a movie they were announcing. It hasn't been made yet. They also announced they are making a Blue Beetle movie uh, being directed by Angel Manuel Soto. He's a Puerto Rican director whose uh, latest film was Charm City Kings, which was released on HBO Max. Um, it was like a festival movie, and then that's where it, it came out. I've, I've heard it's really good. Um, and it will star Jolo Mariduena who plays Miguel on Cobra Kai, the main kid on Cobra Kai. He's great and also ha like has some actual like martial arts chops, which is cool for Blue Beetle. Um, I don't know a ton about that character, but that sounds like if you're going to make like a little HBO Max movie, like a fun one to do. Yeah, and, and Blue Beetle is like one of, if not maybe like the most prominent Hispanic superhero. Um, it's like specifically yeah. that version of Blue Beetle, which is the version that anyone cares about. I think there's like a super old version of the character that, that DC never really uses. Um, yeah. yeah, Blue Beetle's cool. Um, I remember the version of that character that's in season two of the Young Justice cartoon is really awesome. Um, if people want to don't know that character but want to see what he's like, um, Young Justice is a great show, and that that interpretation yeah. of the character is probably my favorite um, of any like the animated versions of the character they've done. Yeah, but that sounds like a cool project. I don't really love the message that women and uh, uh, Latinos can have HBO Max movies but not theatrical movies. I think that's a little weird. But okay, um, you know, DC has other points of diversity, I guess, but still. Um, we also got word of a straight-to-series green light from HBO Max and Cartoon Network. They're co-producing a new animated series called Batman Caped Crusader that is being executive produced by Bruce Timm, J.J. Abrams, and Matt Reeves. Matt Reeves is the director of the new Batman movie. Bruce Timm is the original creator of the animated series. Um, and the, the key art they've released for it and what Bruce Timm has said is that it sounds like this is sort of him revisiting ideas from the animated series but doing them without some of the content restrictions that you would have had in the 90s on on syndicated tv so this is years off but it could be cool yeah and it looked like they're like sort of the 
Batman is very like golden age Batman in terms of like the design they're going for, which I thought is a cool choice to kind of differentiate. You know, we're very inundated with a lot of Batman media. um, And I thought that was a very smart point to kind of like get something that attracts fans, but also like has a very clear visual signifier of like, this is a different take on the character that we're doing something different with. Um, Yes. That sounds cool. Uh, for video games, we got a new trailer for Gotham Knights and Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League, which have been completely MIA since the last DC fandom. The Gotham Knights trailer was fine. The Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League trailer was somehow even worse than last year's. That game, you could have put out three minutes of someone scraping a cat's nails on a chalkboard and it would have annoyed me less than this trailer. I fucking hate it. Yeah, I, I feel the same way about both those trailers. The Gotham Knights one is like whatever um i i think it is a mistake for them to try so hard to market that game on the idea that batman is dead when batman will be in the third act of that game he's absolutely (laughs) not dead like he has obviously faked his death and infiltrated the court of owls like that's not even the plot of the court of owls story in the comic books but that's obviously what they're doing in this game it is like when they tried to insist so strongly in arkham knight that arkham knight was not going to be jason todd everyone saw that character was immediately like well, that's just fucking Jason Todd. And then Rocksteady's like, no, it's not. It's an original character. He's the Arkham Knight. It's like, no, it's Jason Todd. And it was Jason Todd. Um, right. But on the Suicide Squad game, I just... I, I echo what we t- said like a year ago about this. I just don't understand why DC as a like brand is going so fucking hard on Suicide Squad. Like, why is it they're making all the fucking DC Suicide Squad animated movies. They're doing the fucking live action movies. Now it has to be like their like premiere video game um, by the team that made, you know, the Arkham games, which are like the most well-known DC superhero games. And like, uh, other than the Spider-Man, like it's that and the modern Spider-Man games are like the marquee, like franchise games, certainly for superhero stuff. Why waste all this on fucking like this bland ass Suicide Squad thing where if you're going to do Suicide Squad kills the Justice League, at least have the fucking balls to say we're going to have them kill the Justice League, not, oh, they're going to fight Brainiac infected versions of the Justice League members that they're obviously not going to kill over the course of that story. Like, if you want to fucking go hardcore with it, just make me murder fucking Superman and he's just Superman. And and I'm playing as a villain character and I'm working for the government and I do an awful evil thing by killing Superman and it's horrible, but it's like, do your nihilistic horseshit if you're going to do Suicide Squad or just get the fuck out of here because this havesy middle thing they're doing, I just... Trying to make a concept that's inherently supposed to be exist for shock value and doing it in a way that's like to be like palatable to broad audiences. I'm just fucking sick of it. Get the fuck out of here. And all the joke writing is just beyond terrible. The weirdest thing in the whole trailer to me, I, I don't actually, I have not looked this up. I don't know who's voicing Boomerang. It sounds like an American person doing a fake Australian accent. Mm-hmm. Like, it is so nails on a chalkboard bad. It, it sounds like uh, Jace in the Dragon Ball Z dub, where it's like, I'm Jace, just push some shrimp on the bobby, Goku. That sort of whole thing yeah. from the Dragon Ball Z dub. That's what Boomerang sounds like. I don't give a shit about Boomerang, but at least get an actual Australian? What is this? Yeah, and and it is also notable that, like, you know, we had... The only other time this game has been shown was a fully pre-rendered CG cinematic. This is all clearly in-game stuff 
but it's all in-game cinematics. We haven't seen a single fucking second of any of the gameplay or anything like that, which I think is weird. And it was something where, so like when this trailer came out a couple weeks ago or like a week ago or whatever, was closer to when I had like just finished Lost Judgment. And there was, I had this like incredible whiplash of looking at this like the pre-rendered C or the 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 in-game rendered C uh, cutscenes in this trailer and how just like bland and boring they look. And then you look at the cutscenes in any of the Yakuza Studio games, but you know, Lost, Lost Judgment was the one I had just played is like, there in no way is the Lost Judgment stuff as technically impressive as the Suicide Squad stuff is. Like the characters don't look as realistically human and stuff like that because the rendering isn't as good and all that shit. But my God, it just is like screams. I'm just looking at a super generic video game cutscenes, any shot in that trailer. And when I had just finished playing Lost Judgment where it's like, this is better than like most modern movies that are made in terms of the way the cutscenes are edited and directed and put together. Um, it just reminded me of like, man, most of the video game industry is very bad at that cutscene shit. And it's very uh -huh. obvious looking at that trailer, um, particularly when it's like contrasted with a game that does it so exceptionally well. Yeah. Um, let's see. There were really only two things I really liked out of Fandom. One was the season three trailer for Harley Quinn, yeah. which they just made a joke because they don't have any animation done. Animation takes a long time. They showed some storyboards, but mostly it was Kaylee Cuoco as Harley Quinn making jokes about how animation takes forever. It was funny, and that show is fucking great, so I'm glad that they gave it two minutes at the show. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just a good good concept for a, a done trailer. Very good jokes. I yes, you know Ron Funches's King Shark is fucking so funny. <laughs> um, it's very good. It really has ruined every other version of King Shark. Like yes. that's another like King Shark is in that Suicide Squad game, and I don't give a shit because he's not voiced by Ron Funches. Yeah, <laughs> he's so great. Then we did get the big thing was the trailer for the Batman, the new film directed by Matt Reeves, starring Robert Pattinson, which is coming out in March. Which is done. They finished it. It had like a million COVID delays because it was one of the first ones to go back to be. It, it was shooting. COVID hit. They had to shut down. They reopened. Robert Pattinson got COVID. They had to shut down. They reopened. They did finally finish shooting the movie. Um, and this is, I think, this two and a half minute trailer is better than most of the Batman movies we've talked about on our Batman series. Yes. Uh, yeah, I agree. That like <laughs> It's so good. Because this is the movie. This is, you know, it's been a long time coming. This is the reason why we've been doing that Batman podcast that we've kind of put a slight pause on because we've been Do doing other thing, topics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I'm very excited for it. It just looks like... It looks like it's this very nice blend of it's it's doing its sort of like gritty Batman year one-ish take on the character while maintaining a like interesting like gothic afflicted like uh, comic booky sort of style and aesthetic still. It's, it is the thing that like I had always wished that the Christopher Nolan movies had done and that you get like this precious little drops of in Batman Begins but that movie doesn't have nearly enough of it. And that movie's kind of all over the place at the beginning and ending. And this, at least just going on this trailer, which doesn't give you a lot of story stuff or whatever. It's mostly, I think, just like mood and kind of aesthetic. Um, it just feels like it is gripping um, as a live-action interpretation of Batman and his whole like aesthetic and tone in a way that Batman live-action movies just never can do. 
I mean, I think if you were to pull out... So we've done 10 episodes of our Batman on film thing. We've got a couple left to do, but we, we caught up to like all the stuff we hadn't reviewed on the podcast yet. So I think in those 10 episodes, Sean, I think if you were to pull out a theme, I think our overarching theme is that most live-action Batman movies, with the exception of maybe... Definitely Batman 66 and maybe Batman Returns, don't have a clear interpretation of Batman. Yes. They sometimes have a good aesthetic interpretation... Tim Burton's first movie does have a good aesthetic interpretation, but it doesn't really have a story for him. And then you have sometimes the opposite, where Chris Nolan has these big stories for Batman, but Batman is kind of a blank slate at the center of them, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's basically a vehicle for extremist white right-wing politics. And so it's just all these, you know, I think Zack Snyder had a pretty good visual interpretation, and Snyder is the only one who's had a good action interpretation of Batman, in terms of, like, Batman in movement in, like, action scenes, but obviously the story of Batman v Superman is all over the map. Yeah. And he so has, like, he didn't even make, like, a Batman Batman movie. No. It's, uh, yeah, he, you know, he's just he made two, two movies with movies. Batman in them, right? Right, Exactly. So, like, I think all of those are the big gaps we've had in Batman, and this Batman trailer is better at doing those things than most of those live-action movies. Like, it has a very clear visual take on Batman, but also a very clear, like, character take. I love what this trailer suggests of this being this guy who is just, like, this kind of incarnation of fucking, like, impotent rage who can't keep it under control. Like, mm -hmm. there's something very dark going on there that I really like, and I think it matches a lot of the aesthetic choices they're making. It is also just visually, it is a stunning fucking movie trailer. It looks incredible. Um, this is one where Matt Reeves actually did put up a full like lossless 4K version yeah. of it on Vimeo, which is the one you want to watch because it, it like uncompressed just looks incredible. It was very clearly shot on film, the lighting and everything. It has like so many images that are just like these iconic visual shots of Batman or Batman iconography that are, again, are better than anything in the Nolan movies, better than anything, obviously, in the Schumacher movies, and on par or better with a lot of the stuff in the Burton movies. So, like, it's just really cool. And then also, I think it has a very clear vision of, like, Batman in action as, like, a moving being in physical combat, which has been the giant limitation in Batman live action. Again, the only person who's done it halfway respectably is Zack Snyder in in Batman v Superman and Justice League because he can direct action but like otherwise Batman is always this just kind of hulking thing that like we've joked about in the Nolan movies he does this weird elbow based fighting yeah. that is the stupidest shit on earth in the Burton and Schumacher movies he can't move his body really so he's just got to kind of stand still and like move his arms a little bit um, and this just looks great and then Robert Pattinson is fucking killing it I love that Robert Pattinson his Batman voice is what Michael Keaton did, which is like a slightly deeper version of his own sleep speaking voice, but it's not this stupid like, I'm Batman, or like yeah. the mechanized thing they did with Ben Affleck. It's just him acting, which I like. Um, you get Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. You get Colin Farrell as as Penguin in there. You've got hints of the, the Riddler thing they're doing. You've got Jeffrey Wright as Gordon. We saw Andy Serkis in here as um, as Alfred. It, it looks so fucking good, Sean. Yeah, the cast is absolutely fucking loaded. And, and, and I'm just very excited about them doing Riddler as a villain. And, and it looks like their take is that he's like some sort of serial killer. Um, you can see like a couple of shots of, yeah. of stuff implying all that. Uh, and it's just Riddler is one of those villains that I think just, especially when you do that kind of darker take on the character, is such a fun, interesting villain. If you were doing this sort of like 
kind of action crime thriller thing, which is looks like is what this movie's going for. I think it's just such a smart take, and it's using a character we've never seen done in live action Batman other than in the 1960s TV show, which, you know, hey, Frank Gorsh's fucking Joker is amazing, or Riddler is amazing, but it's a very different kind of thing than what they're going for here. Right. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm just extremely excited. It just looks like it is a live action Batman movie that is hitting the things that I like about Batman from the things that I enjoy about Batman, which are the comic books, the cartoons, and like uh, um, the Arkham games. Because uh, it's like the live action, because I agree with you, like the overall theme to me across all of our Batman podcasts is even the good movies like Batman Returns in, in 1966 and stuff, none of them really feel like Batman, Batman to me. Um, and it just has felt like live action has never really sort of figured out what the fuck they actually want to do with the Batman-ness of it all. Whether the movie's good or not um, is kind of beside the point. This looks like it's looks like fucking Batman to me and that's very exciting to finally have like the same kind of feeling I got or I get when I see a lot of like the Marvel takes on their characters even whether or not I love the movie like the characters are always so well interpreted and so cool and it looks like and they, you know Iron Man and Captain America and Thor feel like those characters in a way that as a fan of those characters I get very excited about and I've just never been able to have that feeling for Batman even though other than Spider-Man Batman's probably the the combo character I've invested the most of like my life into enjoying his stories like there's just never been a live action movie that's really kind of grabbed that side of the character to me that made me excited and this looks like this might be finally the movie to do it the trailer is also just a reminder that Matt Reeves is a ludicrously talented filmmaker yes um I mean again if you have somehow missed his Planet of the Apes movies I know Planet of the Apes, haha, there's a bunch of moving apes. No, go watch them. The, the dude is a fucking, like, muscular filmmaker. Like, incredibly talented. And there's also, like, a lot of respect for him in the industry when you hear other people talk about him. Um, the, my, there's so many good shots in this trailer. My favorite one, I'm looking at my screenshots I took, is at the end of the trailer where Penguin's car has flipped and Batman is walking through the fire at him, but the shot is upside down from Penguin's yeah. POV. Fuck, one of the best images... Like, if that were a panel in a comic book, it would be one of the best Batman panels I've ever seen. Like, fucking amazing. Yes. I am, I am so excited for this movie. Yeah, no, that money shot at the end of the trailer. Because then also, they, you know, the, the logo comes in and sort of starts to consume the image. And that, that, yeah, it's a fantastic money shot. And also, this is, like, the sickest fucking take on the Batmobile. The Batmobile is just this, yes. like, raw fucking, like, American muscle car, basically. Um, I love that so much. That's such a cool take on something that, like, I think is a confounding thing to try to do uh, sometimes in live action because the Batmobile can come across as excessively goofy, I think. Like, the Burton movies get get away with it because the whole aesthetic of those movies is kind of odd. Um, but, you know, the Tim Burton Batma Batmobile in any other aesthetic would just be utterly ridiculous. Um, and then the Christopher Nolan movies are so afraid of doing the Batmobile, they turn it into a fucking dumb tank thing. Um, so them going, it's like, no, it's a it's a car, but it's just a cool, just like meaty fucking car. Like a car that if you saw that driving down the road, you'd be scared because the engine's fucking whirring and kicking up. And it's just, it's you, you don't want to be anywhere near that car, but it is just a car. Um, it looks like Bruce Wayne's dad had a classic car collection. And Bruce Wayne went and took the coolest one and souped it up with Batman yes. shit. And that's what it is. And I love that idea. Yeah, it looks like a car that I would drive in like a burnout game and just plow through every other fucking <laughs> yes. vehicle. Um, it just looks so fucking sick. 
Yeah, we need a we need a Batman game just for that car. Yes. Um. Anyway, no, it looks great, and also the music in the trailer is really good, and it is part of the score because Michael Giacchino has he because they worked on this for so long he started writing the score before they shot the movie so that matt reeves would know some of the music and so some of that is in the trailer and i think that's this indication of a i like the direction of the music so that's yeah. cool yeah um all right that's the news sean do you want to talk about dune for a little bit before we get to listener mail stuff i we need to talk for at least a little bit about the fucking uncharted trailer jonathan Oh, 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 fuck, I forgot. You know what? No, I didn't forget. I repressed. Uh I I bundled up in the corner for a little bit. I sobbed, and then I got up and I went, what was I? I don't know, and I went about with my day because I have repressed it. Yeah, Sean, thank you for reminding me of the... You know, it's it's not often that you get to, to wake up one day and feel like it's 10 years ago. But definitely, I, I woke up and the Uncharted trailer was on my phone, and I went, "Oh God!" I woke up in the year two thousand five. What is this shit? Yeah, it. The, I've casting is a thing in movies that you really take for granted, right? It's a, it's one of those things that like almost never goes wrong. Like it's never. It's sometimes it's not amazing. <laughs> But usually it's, like, acceptable. It's the kind of thing that, you know, it's like editing. Like, it's usually at a level of competence that you don't even think about it. You don't even notice it. Um, and then and then you only notice it if it's, like, you know, for casting. It's, like, so amazing. You're like, oh, my God, I can't believe. Like, Robert Pattinson for Batman this feels like inspired casting. It's unconventional. But as soon as it happens, you're like, oh, this is a really cool choice. But every once in a while, you do get something. <laughs> You know, like John Wayne playing fucking Genghis Khan in whatever that fucking movie was. <laughs> oh my um, god. <laughs> yeah, that's a real thing. Don't look at it. No, it is. Uh, every once in a while you get something where you just look at it and you're like, how the fuck did this happen? And one of those things is Tom Holland playing Nathan Drake. Which, I like Tom Holland a lot as Peter Parker. This is nothing about him as an actor. It's just horrible casting. And then Mark Wahlberg as Sully from Uncharted. Like, what the fuck was anybody thinking? Would you hear it or, like, read it on paper? Because this is a thing we've known for a while. You you know it, you see it, and you're like, well, that's a horrible idea. And it's one thing to see that, and then it's another thing to see a trailer where you actually see, like, what that is looking like, registered, like, on film. And holy shit, the casting is so bad. Like, that is utterly disastrous to the entire project. The, the, the two main leads are just utterly, horribly miscast. Beyond the point that they, even if the rest of the movie was really good, it still I don't think we'd even be able to recover. But the rest of the movie doesn't look good, regardless of how horrible the fucking casting is. Yeah, I mean, the rest of the movie, I made the 2005 joke, because this looks aggressively like a mid-2000s video game movie, which is like the Hitman thing, or... Prince of um, Persia was the thing Prince I immediately of, thought of. Yep, anything like that, where you just kind of strip mine the game for parts... So you can make a movie like something else. Like Prince of Persia was like a Pirates of the Caribbean takeoff. Um, you know, the uh, Hitman was basically like a Bourne takeoff. Just like you're strip mining the game and not really doing anything from the game. Um, and this does not look like the game. I know people have pointed out like, but there's the Easter egg where he's got the ring. And the action sequence at the end is kind of like that thing in Uncharted 3. And I'm like, see, the thing is, the thing in Uncharted 3 is is like all animated and looks good. This is terrible green screen CGI that is composited so bad, none of thing about it looks real to me. 
but in I digress it looks like a bad mid-2000s Hollywood movie like it's going to be like 85 minutes long and have no substance to it and it's you're going to be forgetting it while you're watching it but then you pile on top of that Tom fucking Holland as Nathan Drake and Mark fucking Wahlberg as Sully like maybe the maybe the two worst possible casting choices maybe like like Little tiny Tom Holland, four feet tall, you know, just like with his like kind of like small British voice that he does an okay American accent with. Great for Spider-Man. Nope, I don't buy it for Nathan Drake. I do not buy him as intrepid adventurer Nathan Drake. I it's it's not even like a standards of masculinity thing. He is perfectly fit and like buffed out in this trailer, and it looks stupid. And then fucking Mark. I, and I, we've known this for a while, because Mark Wahlberg was actually their first pick to play Nathan Drake, like, ten years ago when they started doing this, and they just moved him up to Sully now, but, like, I, there's nothing, there's nothing, I guess my overall reaction was just that you could have put the title of any video game at the end of this trailer, and it would have made as much sense. You could have said, Horizon Zero Dawn, Ratchet and Clank, you could have put fucking... Uh, Ghost of Tsushima at the end of this trailer and it would have had every bit as much to do with Uncharted because those two people are not the characters in the game they can't be there's nothing about this that looks like Uncharted to me and I guess I just really wonder why you make an Uncharted movie if you don't want to make an Uncharted movie yeah it's it's this thing of where like the ages of the characters are in this like dead space where they're just so horribly wrong where they're both too old for this to be a like the adventures of young nathan drake thing um which you know like you get those sequences in uncharted 3 and a little bit in 4 of him being very young which still would be like a dumb movie idea um but like but i could see that if you're trying to cast younger and you said we're intentionally doing some sort of vague prequelish idea of a very young nathan drake um they're both too old for that but then Tom Holland is both is not old enough, and also he reads a lot younger than he actually is still. Um, like, because he still just looks like he's like eighteen or something. Um, but either way, Nathan Drake has to be at least like thirty years old. Like he, the part, a part of the point of the character is that he has been on many adventures by the time you meet him. Like Indiana Jones, it's like the whole kind of trope of the like weathered adventure thing that this whole tradition comes from that you know is the stuff that like the the movie serials that indiana jones pulls from to create indy as a character like part of the essential concept is that the character has been on a lot of adventures and then when you make the movie if this is like the big one or whatever right uh there there needs to be a certain like knowledge and wariness to nathan drake and like a certain edge to him as a character where he needs to be charismatic and likable but also self-destructive and dangerous right like that's the thing that makes the character appealing and it's also the thing that makes indiana jones appealing um and there's just no space for that characterization in like what they have done to cast tom holland as nathan drake there's just no way to do the character and if you're not going to do that character like it doesn't look like they've set like up at least like well it's a very different take but it's interesting it's just like looks so bland and generic it is so unrelated to the source material or the inspiration and influences of the source material that all come from cinema it's just like almost like amazing level of incompetence on display of of the only reason tom holland is playing nathan drake is because 
he was cast as Spider-Man, right? Like it's the, it's, it is just this purely like, we think that somebody will recognize him on the poster and go see the movie. And that is like the literal only reason that he is cast as this character. And there's no other consideration other than that. He's like also a white dude. And that's the other thing that they, that he had the other amazing hurdle in Hollywood. He had to clear to be able to get this role. Yeah. I mean, it's because it's a Sony movie and Tom Holland is big for Sony with Spider-Man and basically, it was the success of Spider-Man Far From Home that kickstarted this because that was the highest grossing movie in Sony's history. And then they're like, well, if that worked there, let's just put Tom Holland on the Uncharted thing. And that's what finally got this movie made. And it's just dumb. It's like, can you imagine Tom Holland having like fun back and forth banter with like Elena or anyone in fucking Uncharted? Like, that's not a thing in his tool chest. Like, I like Tom Holland. That's he's like a kind of like twitchy, nerdy, like almost like Matthew Broderick in the eighties kind of thing. He's not like the, you know, quick talking, like back and forth Harrison Ford kind of guy. Yeah, I mean, here's like because here's like a really good example. I mean, you look at the character in that trailer, and like there's like a virginal quality to him, right? Like, which yes. is not something that the Nathan Drake character or Indiana Jones, right? Like, those are people who fuck, right? Like that's like yes. part of their characterization. Quite directly. I mean, they're women, they're womanizers, right? They like, it is problematic the degree to which they fuck because they d failed to create lasting attachments with people. And that's part of the thing that they have to overcome, right? Uh, it is just, it's a really sort of like basic level of the characterization that, again, like Tom Holland is a good actor. It's nothing on him. It's just like he's 100% the wrong actor for this part. Um, and, and it doesn't look like anything of like what they're trying to do with the direction is trying to even compensate for that. It just is like the most, like, we're just, we're just doing it. We're making a very cheap action movie with a bad cast that is like vaguely influenced by some scenes that were in trailers for the Uncharted games. Like the reason why they're doing the big plane scene from Uncharted 3 is because that's like the the scene that they showed in the trailers for Uncharted 3 that's probably like the most well-known sequence for people who haven't played those games because those trailers are fucking everywhere when that game was coming out because Uncharted 2 was such a big success that Sony marketed the absolute fucking hell out of Uncharted 3 so like even well before I had played those games that was like the main thing I thought of um Uncharted was that sequence because it was the thing that was in like a million trailers I had seen but again I want to go back to like it looks terrible. It's, yeah. I mean, and this is a thing special. I, uh, this is a conversation I'd like to actually have in depth at some point on the podcast, but special effects have fallen off an absolute goddamn cliff the last couple of years in Hollywood. Yeah. They've been terrible. All of the Marvel productions this last year have had abysmal, like a terrible special effects and compositing and green screen work. Even ones I've liked, like Shang-Chi does not look like a finished movie to me. Yeah. And like that scene in the end of the Uncharted trailer is just the worst green screen bullshit like it's a reminder of like video games can get away with things because they are fully animated and like there's control over the image that hollywood just you could do but they're not good enough and special effects has gotten so bad lately that like it's just a such a poor imitation of what's in the in the at this point 10 year old video game yeah and that also like those scenes in Uncharted are all inspired by scenes in movies. So it's like the, they're, they're, you've seen that kind of like big plane stunt 
in like a dozen big action movies, you know? Yeah, it's in it's in uh, the the first Timothy Dalton James Bond specifically yeah. does that. It's in The Living Daylights. I think there's a Jackie Chan movie at some point that does it. Like there, there's there's yeah. lots of anime. Like yeah. Mission yeah. Impossible has done it. And it's like it's especially that thing of like when you still have like Christian McQuarrie um, and Tom Cruise out there, you know, doing their best to to get Tom Cruise killed by doing these crazy stunts. Like as long as that's still happening and those kinds of movies are being made watching something like this where you know that a better team with more budget and is more committed to like a vision of executing a more kind of classic style of action would be able to do that scene and make it really exciting and interesting because there would be a degree to practicality to it like obviously that exact sequence you would never actually have tom cruise suspended in an actual plane <laughs> jumping from actual i'm pretty sure that would be physically impossible you would fucking die because the wind drag at that speed and at that height would just rip you away from it if you tried to let go of the box immediately so it's like you would be able to do that exact sequence 100 practically but you could do something very much like that with many practical elements that would sell like the spectacularity of the stunt, the danger of what's happening, the expertise of all the people involved to do this kind of sequence and make it really impressive. And the fact that we still have the occasional big cool action movie that does that and has that level of like commitment and sophistication and craft to do these with way more real reality to the way they're doing it and how they're filming it means that when you look at this cheap, like gross digital knockoff it's like offensive almost to the senses because why would you watch something that is such a poor 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 fakey imitation of something when you know that next mission impossible movie is like a year away or something yes so it's bad all right now should we talk about dune yes now now we can also we can talk about dune i'm gonna put like a hard cap here let's not go longer than like 15 or 20 minutes okay um but it's okay. I tweeted a bunch about Dune when I saw it on Friday. I, I think I'm mixed on it. Sean, you were much more militantly fuck this movie. So why don't you start? Yeah. I mean, I so I, I tweeted about it a little bit. I should say I watched it on HBO Max with my parents, um, which is, I mean, I probably wouldn't have seen this movie if it wasn't streaming. Because um, I think as soon as I saw the reviews, I probably would have lost interest. Because as soon as, like, you know that this movie just stops at the most haphazard, random fucking... We just literally opened up the book, divided the total number of pages by two, found the closest chapter, and said, well, I guess we're just ending there. Um, which is literally the thing that they do. They just go to the midpoint of the book without any consideration. Like, as soon as you know that that's what's going to happen, I, I would think I would lose interest in the movie. Um, so, so I watched on HBO Max... And, you know, for background, like, I've read Dune a couple of times. I really like the book. I've seen, obviously, the David Lynch movie, which we've talked about a couple of times. I've seen the, the old TV miniseries, which is, like, acceptable. Um, but the book is a classic. It's a phenomenal sci-fi novel. Um, I think it is a difficult sci-fi novel. Like, it's one of the more difficult sci-fi novels to adapt, for sure, because its sense of world building is very odd and esoteric. But it's also, I refuse to accept that it's, like, impossible. And I also refuse to accept that, like, the thing you have to do is to do, is to split it into two movies. Um, and so I feel like as soon as I started watching the movie, I started to, I, like, immediately get this sense of dread of, like, what the movie is so interested in depicting is entirely the setting and world building of Dune. And it doesn't care about the story it doesn't care and it doesn't care about any of like the symbols and the themes and the complicated ideas that come with the story and it doesn't care about the characters um and so it is this thing of like Dennis Villeneuve 
um, which the only other movie of his I've seen is his Blade Runner movie, which I think is better than this, but I also don't really love it that much. And I think it has a little bit of a similar quality to me of where it leaves me feeling a bit cold. At least that is like a full, complete narrative that it tells. With Dune, because it doesn't even have an actual ending point that it arrives at, the whole experience is you just sitting there watching what are often very impressive, well done, like really fascinating in terms of art direction and stuff like that. And the sound design of the music is all phenomenal. Like on a production level, it's all really well done. But you just get these very slow, long, drawn out, very like loving, almost kind of obsessive shots and sequences that are very fixated on the world and its aesthetic. And then lines from Dune and scenes from Dune, the book, happen along the way, but they feel like they like the movie's interpretation of the novel is entirely just a vehicle by which to look at this cool art direction and marvel at like the weird world of Dune. And no care is given to Paul, his journey, like what that means. There's nothing interesting about their take on the novel. There, You can't walk away from this thinking about like, the spice as a metaphor for oil, our relationship to Arrakis being like our relationship to the Middle East. There's so much about Dune that making a Dune adaptation of the 21st century should be really interesting and fascinating if somebody gave a second fucking thought about what anything in the novel actually means or cares about. Um, but instead we got this thing that is just like so in love with the aesthetic of it and doesn't give a shit about anything that is underneath it. And then it just stops because it doesn't care. Like, if there was any care given to the story, you would have at least ended the movie about 30 minutes earlier and gone to the end of the fall of the House of Trades and ended there, which would be, I would still think it would be frustrating, but would be a much better stopping point than to just keep on going for, like, the, like, 40 minutes to an hour they do wandering through the desert to meet the Fremen again just to reach some sort of quota of length of the book so that you have less to adapt if you get a fucking sequel. Um, and that is kind of my feeling on the movie is, like, Tell a fucking story. Don't just give me big loving shots of spaceships and shit. I think you're right. And, you know, I I do think there's a lot of brilliantly done stuff in this movie. And, and I think I had a different relationship with it, Sean, also, because my relationship with the source material is different. I've seen the David Lynch movie once, and that's it. I've, I think I've gone and like read the Wikipedia summary after I read the or watched the Lynch movie because I'm like, what actually happened in this book? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, but like I have not read the book. I have not seen any of the other miniseries. So I really, and I kind of at a certain point did that intentionally for this because I'm like, okay, this new Dune movie, I know Dune fans don't believe me here, but math is real. Most people seeing Denis Villeneuve's Dune have not read Dune. Yeah. I know Dune is a popular book. I don't think it has sold enough whereby if every man, woman, and child who has ever read Dune went and saw the new movie, that still would probably not be enough to get this movie a sequel. Like, yeah. books don't really sell that much. This isn't the Da Vinci Code. Like, and and the, majority of people, the majority of yeah. people who have read Dune, because Dune is, like, one of the most successful, I think it might actually be the most successful science fiction novel ever written in terms yeah. of its sales, but also its audience is too old uh, for like yes. the audience that pill that that they are selling with Dennis Villeneuve's Dune movie. So it's like regardless of like the popularity and like the widespread success of Dune as a book, like its audience is too old both because yes. of the the sophistication of the book and kind of what it's targeting and the age of the book itself means that naturally its audience is is in a much older demographic than what this movie would need to do for it to be successful. All right. So yeah, I'll amend this a little bit. 20 million copies is the estimated across the world Dune has sold. That is a lot. Obviously, that's high for a book. But again, 
even if everyone who's seen that went to see the movie, that is kind of low for movie attendance. Um, and not all of them, because the book was written in 1965. Many of those people are dead, yep. or as you say, old and not going to see movies. So, like, you need new people to come see Dune. And so, like, that is just a fact. That's a fact of any adaptation. Lord of the Rings was not dependent on everyone who went to see Fellowship of the Ring having read the book, right? Like, new fans came in. Um, so, like, this Dune does have to work for the uninitiated. And I will say, I have seen, and I had seen before the movie came out, a big split where fans of the book were regarding it as, like, a religious fucking experience, and people who weren't fans of the book or just hadn't read it were kind of cold on it. And so I wanted to go in cold and see, like, what is, does this work as a two-and-a-half-hour movie for someone who doesn't know Dune? And it doesn't. And it, the main reason it doesn't is because it's not a movie. It's two and a half hours of something, but it's not a movie. Because it doesn't finish. It doesn't have an arc. It doesn't really have a sense of pacing. It's, it's two and a half hours of story with, like, literally zero payoff. There is no idea introduced in this movie that pays off in this movie. And you might go, but Jonathan, that's because it's half the book. And in part two, which will definitely be made, they're going to do all of this and this and this. I'm like, okay, Fellowship of the Ring is one third of The Lord of the Rings. And it does not pay off on the ring being destroyed, but it pays off on a ton of character arcs that it sets up. That movie is a three-hour movie with a beginning, middle, and end. And even though it sets up other stories, it does a complete story. And in that case, they actually had made parts two and three at the same time. So, like, Dune doesn't get to make that argument. Right, Sean? Yeah, because I would also say, like, probably the worst of that I have seen this done is the Deathly Hallows split in part one, part two. And that's way better than what they do here. Like, that's, yeah. like, not great. Like, it's certainly not the level of, like, Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King in terms of those movies being very deliberate in building arcs that they pay off on within the confines of those movies, which we have talked about in our podcast on those films. But the Deathly Hallows part one, part two still feels like, okay, there is a lot of thought and care that went into what amount of story is dealt with and what is that story about in the first of those movies. And what amount of story and how much of the story is dealt with in the second movie. I don't love this. I like. I think it is like rough. But compared to what they do here with Dune, that experience was much more felt like they cared about figuring out what went into which film and where the split was. Even the, uh, the last Twilight movie did that with the part two-part split where they ended part one with Bella becoming a vampire and then part two, Jacob loves her baby. That whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is possible. This is not impossible. This is not like a huge ask. These are possible things to do. There is actually a scene, I think, in Villeneuve's Dune that would be a decent ending. And I think it's when they're in the tent and he's having the premonition of what's going to happen to him. And he's all freaked out. And I think if you cut to black there, it would be like a 100-minute movie. But it would be, like, that would be an impact to end the movie on. And, like, yeah. you would end on this low point. And then, honestly, the next hour of the movie, you could do in, like, 20 minutes at the beginning of part two. Because it's not that important but yeah there's yeah there's a lot of plot stuff that they choose to do in the movie like uh gurney's death and stuff like that or duncan's death um that is you know which is the the jason momoa character and all that it's like i have no idea why they decided to keep that in like in the book it works because the novel novelistic pacing is very different than movie pacing there's a lot of weird little things like that where like yeah these scenes existed in the book but there's no reason for them to... You don't... Just because they're in the book doesn't mean you have to do them in the movie, right? And there's or in a the same way like or that. in the same place, yeah. right? And what's interesting, Jonathan, about your observation, because I agree 100% that that is where I would cut. I would make the first movie about the fall of the House of Atreides and make that what the plotting and the arcing was. And the fact is that Dune was, as is most 
you know, science fiction novels of that time was not released initially as one full novel. It was serialized. And Dune is split into three books or three parts within the novel of Dune. And the scene you identify is the point where book one of Dune ends. Um, and it is like, it is a natural culmination point. It's the point where Paul's, the world that Paul has come from is destroyed. And he has a vision of where he is to go. And in fact, I, I, cause I was looking at the book last night because I, I was thinking about this split and where I would put it. And when I opened up to that section, figuring, well, the end of book one seems like a good place to split. The way that scene is done in the book is a bit different than they do in the movie where there's a lot more catharsis in that scene about like the death of Duke Leto. And then also there's a lot more kind of explicit talk and feelings around Paul and his awareness of him not really being the Kwisatz Haderach, but him being something different, something that the Bene Gesserit witches haven't really expected or anticipated, which is a really good culminating point for the character where he is, he grieves and has catharsis and leaves his old life behind and looks forward towards, towards the future, a future he wants to make that is different than the one that was laid out for him in what in the book is the very first scene of the, the book, which is the Gam Jabbar scene, which they do a little bit later in the movie, but is his like sort of, that's the moment where, you know, Paul's path is laid out for him by his forces above him. And this is where he's trying to break from that. And that's a good character arc for a movie. And they just, it, it's there in the book. They could have done it if, but they just don't like try to zero in on or isolate that storyline at all. In fact, they like really dilute it throughout the film. Well, because, I mean, you talked about grief and catharsis. There's no emotion in this movie. Yeah. There's no, there's none. And we can talk about that in a second. But, like, I guess to just, just back up a second, like, um, so there were things I enjoyed. As, like, a newcomer to Dune, I I do think it's an incredible production. I think it does particularly good stuff with the sandworms and the way, like, the desert, like, moves like water when they're they're mm -hmm. coming through and all of that. There's some very good sequences. And I did think, like, those first hundred minutes up until the scene in the tent... I was mostly on board. I really did like it. I think I was into the story. I the movie has such a weird sense of pace that I when I say like I thought it should end there, that's because I thought the movie was going to end. I mm -hmm. thought in the scene in the tent because I'm I'm not watching on HBO Max with a progress bar. I'm in the theater. I don't have a like watch on. I thought right. the movie was over and then it kept going and that was very weird to me. But like. Anyway, it, it I was on board. There's a lot I like. I think it's got incredible sound design. I think it is. We talk about bad special effects. This movie has the best special effects. Yeah. Like this is, it is a super solid, real epic looking movie on a scale that you just don't see from Hollywood anymore. And I love all of that. I think the cast is almost entirely phenomenal. I particularly liked Rebecca Ferguson because Rebecca Ferguson is the best part of every movie I've ever seen her in. Mm -hmm. um, and she's, I really liked her here as Jessica. I think she's really, com she's honestly one of the only characters the movie seems at all invested in. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really like what they did with Paul, but we'll talk about that in a second. I don't think it's Timothy Chalamet's fault though, I will say. Um, in any case, so there was a lot I liked. The, the last hour of the movie definitely started to take the sheen off for me because it is, the thing is, when you say Dune could be done in one movie, it really could because Dune the book has a pretty clear three-act structure. Yes. Like, it is the fall of House Atreides is the end of Act 1, where Paul is then sent on his journey. Act 2 is him, like, getting to know the Freeman and, like, building his legacy in the desert. And then Act 3 is the big confrontation with the Empire, where he leads the Freeman on their big jihad. I, I have the plot there, right? Right? Yes, yes. Like, 100%. And that is what the David Lynch movie does. Now, the David Lynch movie does it very quickly and weirdly and awkwardly because a bunch of production considerations, but, like... The David Lynch movie does have a pretty clear structure to it, and it is like it has a satisfying ending and all of that. 
And so what this movie does is it takes about 100 minutes to get through Act 1, which is all rising action. And then Act 2 always has falling action until like the midpoint. And so then what we get is we get 100 minutes of rising action. And then the last hour of the movie is falling action until this last little character beat where Paul does the fight. And we're, ri- and we're starting to rise back up. And then the movie ends. And that is the weirdest structure I think I've ever seen in a movie. And it is so disconcerting. And as a viewer, especially someone who came to see a movie called Dune and hadn't like wasn't invested in the property and all that stuff, it's a terrible, terrible structure for a movie. And like, I also want to say, you had to be pretty extremely online to know this was Dune Part 1 uh-huh. because none of the consumer-focused marketing at all in any way gave any indication that this was Part 1. It's always been called Dune. They market it like it's the whole thing. All of that. You would only know it's one half of the book if you've been reading interviews and stuff. And so they basically tricked people into the theater because there's a lot, there's just going to be a lot of people who go to see the movie who come out like, so that's that's Dune? That's what Dune is? Why nothing happened? And yeah, because in this first movie, none of them, like for me, knowing like the Lynch movie, none of the like the memorable images uh-huh. are in this part of the story. Like this is all set up. It's a terror, like if, if, I could forgive it a little bit if they'd like shot both movies and part two was coming out within the next year. I still think this would be a terrible structure, but it would be slightly forgivable. But especially when you have zero guarantee there will be more. This is like an unconscionably bad structure for a movie. Yeah, and if they do make a sequel, it's like, what, three years minimum before it would yeah, even be out? Yeah, three um, to five, yeah. Yeah, that it's, yeah it, it, it is an awful way to structure a film. And like to that point, Jonathan... On HBO Max, to like even it's just called Dune. Like you select it, and it just comes up as Dune in the, yeah. like the the track bar, or whatever. It's not until you get the title card that they throw in in small font, Dune Part One. Like it feels like you like signed up for like a contract, but you didn't le- read all the little tiny text at the bottom of the contract, right? It's like, oh yeah, I want to go watch Dune, and then you get you watch like five minutes of it, and the title comes up and says. Wait, what do you mean Dune Part 1 uh, is basically what it feels like they've sort of like shanghaied you into. Yeah, and it's just... Because I don't think breaking up the book is insane. I understand the reason why you would do it. It is a big story with a lot of stuff to introduce. And I do think I could see a version of this that ended with the fall of House Atreides and then you have a slightly longer second movie. But I also can see the version that is three hours and is the whole story. Yeah, and because it, it's, you know, like... It's that thing of where Lawrence of Arabia is one fucking movie, right? Like, and, and yes. I use that as a very deliberate comparison point because it's a big influence, both the actual life of T. Lawrence, but then that movie specifically, which came out two years before the book, is a clear, obvious influence on Dune. And it's like Lawrence of Arabia is a big, long, really complicated movie that is going through like a really complicated series of events in World War One related to England's involvement with the war in the Middle East, right? And that's one movie. It's like one of the best movies ever made. I'm not saying it's like easy to emulate something like that. But the point is that like Hollywood has made big epics that are long movies with big complicated plots that are adaptations of big complicated books and done them in one film because like because it's one story. Like while you could split up Dune, Dune isn't made to be split up. Like it is one long story and it feels like if you had a, a, a vision for the story you're trying to tell through adapting Dune, 
you absolutely could just do it in one film. The problem is it just doesn't feel like they have a vision for, like, why they want to use Dune other than the aesthetic reasons of it, right? Like, there's just... I don't get any sense watching the movie to be able to walk away from this, especially if you haven't read the book, with any ideas about any of the themes of the novel, right? Like, it's just... None of that shit is here other than the barest you can gleam through just like the aesthetic surface of Dune and the sand and the spice and stuff like that. But it doesn't dive into any of those concepts to any level of like sophistication or vision or care or like thought that you would want from an adaptation of a, a really interesting, complicated book like Dune. No, because like also like all the interesting ideas Dune has on its mind are dependent on what happens in the second half of yes. the story. Uh-huh. Like what happens in the first half is just about this little boy who like family dies and then he goes in the desert. Like there's and they hint at some of that in the movie. They give him the visions of like the future, but like I don't think the movie outside of those visions is invested in setting up like the the ways Frank Herbert subverts the white savior narrative and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Like this movie doesn't have that on its mind really yet. And you know, maybe they're, they will make a really good part too, but like that doesn't save this movie and movies do at a certain point need to be movies. Um, and just like, this isn't a movie. It's not a finished thing. It's not a, like it, it is all this setup with just no payoff whatsoever. Like I just think about like, there's several scenes with the Harkonnens and I was trying to think, like, what's the last scene Baron Harkonnen is in in this movie? And it's that one where he's in the, like, weird tub. Uh-huh. And then he sends um, the Dave Bautista character off to go do a mission on Arrakis. And that's it. That's just, just, like, it's just so haphazard in, like, where you end. Like, the only characters who get complete arcs here are the ones who fucking die. Yeah. Like, like Leto. Like, you know, Oscar Isaac at least gets to, like, finish something in here. Poor Javier Bardem gets two scenes yeah, he's kind the best of. part of the whole movie. He is. Well, he's the only one who feels like he's having fun with it. Yeah. Um, well, him and uh, Jason Momoa. I did really like Jason Momoa. I, I liked him as Duncan an awful lot, and I think he's really good. Um, but, like, yeah, you've got that uh, fucking Zendaya in all the trailers and stuff. Has <laughs> No, she's just in dreams. And then she's in, like, one scene at the end. And they've been doing, have you seen, they've been doing all this press with, yes. with Zendaya and Timothy Chalamet together. Like, and they're asking, like, what was it like on set together? And I want them to say... I don't know. We were on set one day. Like, what yes. are you talking about? There's, she's not a character in the movie yet. Yeah, they they literally, like, the scene they had the movie on is Chami, her character's introduction. Um, and, yeah. and it's hilarious <laughs> because while, like, Chami does show up in some of Paul's visions early in the book, like, he talks about her in chapter one in the Gamjabar scene and stuff, they put some of that in this film, like, this movie goes so hard on the visions of her to make it feel like, like, that's almost like the main reason he has visions in the first place is like this destined love story. And there's like elements of that, but his visions are way more about like, oh God, am I going to like become this scourge that like wipes out the entire empire that I come from by like trying to get revenge for my house? And he he has visions of these like multiple futures in front of him. And that's a little bit more what the vision thing is about and less about like, let's get the 700th shot of like Zendaya slow-mo walking through the desert and like slowly turning towards the camera, which they do over and over and over again in this movie. Oh, we got some thunder out there. Uh, we're having a storm right now in Iowa, so there you go. The 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 gods are mad about Dune also. Yeah. yeah, it's just, I don't know. I think this movie does some things very well. I think it does some things very haphazardly. Honestly, the thing that disappointed me by far the most was their depiction of Paul. I think... Yeah. I don't think Timothy Chalamet is necessarily miscast. I could, I like Timothy Chalamet and everything I've seen him in. I think he's a good actor. But 
he is generally a kind of quiet and dour actor and Denis Villeneuve has very clearly directed him to go hard on that like he mm-hmm. has been directed to have like it is a monotonal performance he is dour and quiet and in his own head the entire movie there are no other other than a couple of scenes where Jason Momoa is fun around him there's no other like sides of Paul in this movie and from what little I've read of the book which is like 50 pages at the beginning and then from the David Lynch movie Paul is supposed to be a kid right like who's like discovering the world and has some wonder for it yeah and I loved that in the David Lynch movie because Kyle MacLachlan is exactly the person you get if you want wide-eyed wonder and so he looks a little older than Paul is supposed to be but he plays it like a kid and Timothy Chalamet looks more like Paul's age but he plays it like an old man and I just don't find it compelling at all, especially when the number one thing this movie does well is like big visual world building. And you have a main character who doesn't seem interested in it. He doesn't have wonder in his eyes. He doesn't have like a vivacity to him. And I missed that because that's the best thing about David Lynch's Dune is what Kyle MacLachlan does. Yeah, I 100%. And I think like, like Kyle MacLachlan and David Lynch play up that part of the character even more because I think they identify rightly that it makes the character play better on film because you don't have any of the internal monologue. Well, I mean, they do do the internal monologue yes. and weird whispers in that movie, but you even then it's obviously like a tiny fraction of the amount of internal monologue because the vast majority of the book is told basically from Paul's POV and you have so much access into his mind because you are seeing and experiencing the visions basically along with him. Um, but they know that like in a movie, you need to accentuate and exaggerate a lot of those things, particularly for your protagonist, to make a stronger emotional connection with the protagonist. And then so that they have like clearer points to pivot around as they change throughout the story. It's, I would very much equivalent, like um, equate it to kind of like what they do with, with Aragorn's material in Lord of the Rings movies, where they say the character in the book, if you did it very straight, would be pretty flat, I think, in a movie. And so they accentuate some of his emotional journey. Um But yeah, like Paul's character is fundamentally, it is Hamlet. But what if Hamlet started before his father's death, right? Like, like, I mean, it is almost exactly that. And his whole characterization is supposed to be like Hamlet. He is these very smart, kind of kind, compassionate, very sensitive person who's very like kind of emotional, has a big emotional extremes, but tries to keep them bottled up. Um, And then this big tragic thing happens in his life and it kind of sends his life out of control and he knows he has this kind of fate to fulfill hamlet his destiny is being a tragic hero that he tries to resist paul the visions he has of becoming muadib and and you know joining the fremen and and starting the jihad and all that and they both resist the roles that they have to play and eventually have to succumb to them and become much colder darker characters over the course of the story and it's like it is it is intentionally a very hamlet inflected kind of performance it is very Shakespearean, and I feel like Timothy Chalamet is an actor that looks, seems like he would be able to do that really well, but I'm with you. He's not directed to do it because you don't have enough of like the happy start with the character, where he is happy with his father and mother. He he does kind of believe in the Atreides stuff at the beginning, is supposed to be how he's played. Is like He's supposed to be very much a part of that Atreides world with these visions that are kind of starting to pull him another direction. And in this movie, it just kind of feels like he's not a part of that world at all. He's 100% just in his head about his visions. And it doesn't give him a point to start changing as more extreme things happen in the plot deeper into the story. Yeah, so 
it just feels like there's kind of a gap at the center of the movie because this mm-hmm. also is a stretch of the story where Paul is not very active yet. Things are happening to him, yes. but it's not until they're in the sand at the end that he does anything active, and that's a hundred minutes into the movie. And so there's just kind of this blank at the center of the film, and I just think it's a big missed opportunity. Um, and and I think if you had a better version of Paul, I would be able to forgive a lot of the other things this movie is doing. But it's just because so many of the other performances I do find like vibrant and interesting. And it's like, I want the movie where Jason Momoa is among the Freeman learning their ways. Uh-huh. I want the movie about Oscar Isaac like doing politics. I want the movie about Josh Brolin like teaching his soldiers. Because all of that is very vibrant and cool. I want Javier Bardem out in the desert doing yes. crazy Javier Bardem shit. But like the person we're following doesn't seem interested in any of that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. This movie basically is like... What if you did Lion King, but the movie ended when he meets Timon and Pumbaa, is what oh this, this film is. <laughs> I want that on the box for this movie. Yeah. It's Dune, part one. Back like the Lion King, if you end it where he meets Timon and Pumbaa. Yeah. And it's just, like, are also, like, okay, will this movie do well enough for a part two is one question. But will audiences in four years be coming to Dune, part two? Like, I was so excited by the cliffhanger and what happened? What happened in Dune Part 1? I feel like that's going to be the main reaction from people, yeah. right? Because what's hilarious is I have seen people, because it's reflexive, use the word cliffhanger to describe the end of this movie. And it's, it's not. not. It's no. not a cliff. Like, it's just like, it's not a fucking cliffhanger. It doesn't end at this point of, like, oh, exciting mystery and, like, danger leading into the second part to make you excited to see what happens next it ends just with like a thud in the middle of a sequence that is not designed to be an ending point of the movie or to suggest great things on the horizon it just sort of stops like it it repeatedly goes past the point where it feels like you could stop it and have a cliffhanger and then just chooses in the middle of like one of those sequences where like if you went a bit further you could get a cliffhanger if you ended a bit earlier you got a cliffhanger and you just went right in the middle of those between the two points and decided to stop filming yeah it doesn't I just don't think it works as a as a movie, and I understand why some big fans of the book are like can turn off that side of it and are satisfied because it's like it's a chunk of this book they love adapted like cinematically very well. But um, yeah, I just don't as a movie see a lot going on here that's that interesting, um, and it's too bad. And I don't, I just have no sense of how this is going to go down with like larger audiences, you know. Yeah, for me, I, I definitely feel like this is a situation where my my love for the book hurt my enjoyment of this movie. But I do want to say that, like, I really love the David Lynch Dune a lot. Like, that movie yeah. is very all over the place. But, like, it's a very exciting and interesting companion piece to the novel because it does interesting, different things with how it adapts that material. Um, and it, it chooses to do, like, it you know, it cuts different stuff and it changes things to try to make it work with a movie. And this felt like my understanding of the book just made the whole thing very dull. Because mm-hmm. if the only thing you're doing your movie for is to present this world building to me, I already know all the world building of Dune, right? I know it's like this This movie feels like it's designed as a, like a lore delivery mechanism. It's like, fuck you, I read the fucking appendices. Literally, Dune has appendices. Like, I know the lore of Dune more than this movie would ever be able to express to me. It's like, that's not what I want to watch the movie for. I I want to see your take. I want to see an interesting 21st century take on Dune. Like, Dune as a post-9-11 movie should be fucking fascinating. 
this is a movie that or this is a story that repeatedly uses the term jihad in a right in an english language text that was written fucking 40 years before that became a common understood term in the west because of 9-11 and um you know isis and all that kind of stuff like there should be so much interesting material you can do with adapting the book now and there's just none of that in this movie i mean i do think it's utterly unforgivable that there are no arabic actors in this movie yeah like you have the whole Freeman Society are represented by a Spanish man and a black American woman. Yes, who speaks no in, in her American accent, which I find just hilarious. That, that, yeah. that they just like starts talking. It's like, when did an American show up amongst the Freeman Society? Like, there's no care to like give them a consistent accent. It feels like if you watch Black Panther and you show up to Wakanda and Shuri is just speaking like a Midwest American accent, you're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. No, I I agree with all of that. And I think the David Lynch movie is a mess in a million different ways, but it is also a movie. It has, like, a very clear take on the material, and it delivers you an experience that you will not fucking forget. And I felt like I kind of forgot Dune in the car ride home because, like, it doesn't give me anything. Whereas, like, David Lynch's Dune does give you very clear things. And, you know, but the thing is, Sean, you said, like, you know, what you want from an adaptation. The problem is... I think it's pretty clear what most moviegoers want out of adaptations of books is just the book adapted yeah. page for page as closely as possible with no, like, actual take. That's why people complain when, like, I remember fucking, like, Twilight came out and people were, like, in our classes, like, Twilight fangirls complaining about, like, this scene was done out of order from this scene and that was wrong. And, like, that's how people gauge adaptations and it's stupid and I hate it, but, like, that's the CinemaSins generation for you and, you know, I... Yeah, because I actually think this movie also has like weird like relationship to exposition because yeah. it has like this amazing visual world building, and then it doesn't do like a ton of verbal exposition for a two and a half hour movie, but it does Zendaya's opening monologue. Paul watches several scenes of a tape explaining the story to him, and you have the big scene where they explain the still suits, and all of those. You know, I remember we've talked about this before with Lord of the Rings, where Philippa Boyens, the screenwriter on Lord of the Rings, would say every scene in a script has to be accomplishing more than one thing. That's why you never. That's why, like, it was so hard to get Galadriel's opening narration in Fellowship right, is because they didn't just want it to be a lore dump, and yeah. that scene does do more than just a lore dump for you. All those scenes in this movie, I mean, some of them are literally just Paul staring at a wall while a narrator tells him the plot, and like nothing else is being conveyed and the problem is i actually think if you stripped zendaya's narration out of the opening scene of this movie it's a better opening scene i think if you just did it as a little visual poem on arrakis i think it would be utterly captivating and it's just like i don't it's it's the like yoshiyuki tomino fan in me it's like yes i don't give me this just tie my leg to a fucking anchor and throw me in the water and just build the world around me which David Lynch's movie does have a lot of formal exposition, but it is also done in whispers over other scenes, so it's at least fucking weird and, like, immersive. Yeah. 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 I did just, I will say, I did just buy, I had a uh, birthday gift card money left over, so I did buy the new Dune 4K set of the Lynch movie, and I'm very excited to watch that again and compare it. So that's coming in this week, and I'm, I definitely want to give that movie a, a revisit, because it's been several years since I saw it. It's very good. No, it's yeah. it's it's crazy as fuck. But you know, you get to the end of the movie and you have fucking Paul, uh, Kyle McLaughlin fighting Sting and Sting shouting, "I will kill him! I will kill him!" Uh, it's fucking great. That movie rules. 
you got Kyle McLaughlin riding a fucking sandworm. It's yep. awesome. That's I'm sorry, Timothy Chalamet will not look as cool riding a fucking sandworm. It's very true. Yeah. All right, Sean. Uh, let's move on. This is the 400th episode of our podcast. Um, it is. It's it's been a lot. We'll do some reflection here in a second. We have a fun interview thing we're going to do, but why don't we start, Sean, with the listener mail? Um, right. I've been asking and soliciting some listener mail for a couple weeks here. Uh, people asking questions, and I also wanted them to just give you give us like some of their like favorite memories from the show. So we got Sean. This is a, a great. This is maybe my favorite set of listener mail ever. It's you guys were so kind, and there were a lot of good ones. And I have some fun things to share with you all. So. Sean, we're going to start with Barry on Twitter. Uh, I don't need to say on Twitter. These were all on Twitter. That's the only social media I have at this point. Um, so that's how people reach me. Um, Barry writes, congrats on episode 400. I've got a memory, a question for each of you, and a suggestion. One of my favorite moments was the payoff to waiting years for Jonathan to get Dark Souls in episode 287. I was legit hyped. What a great arc. The Sekiro game counseling was great as well. I agree, Barry. Yes. Me getting Dark Souls, one of my favorite arcs on this show, and the Sekiro thing, um, I will never forget playing that game because it is also like recorded on the podcast with Sean doing game therapy for me. So yeah, it's pretty that's, great. Yeah, that was one of those of, of you know me being like the only person on the podcast that played any of these games for so long. And then finally you tried Dark Souls. And I remember it was like out of completely fucking nowhere. You're just like, yeah, oh, I just played Dark Souls. Because uh, I think it was when they did that like HD update or like remake or whatever. It was like, finally, we could talk about Dark Souls. And then, you know, we managed to do Sekido. Um, it's, yeah. And we got to talk about Demon Souls when that game came out. Like, yeah, that's definitely fun being able to have whole... That's one of those things that's like, it's hard to talk about on the podcast if you're not talking to somebody about it, because it's they're so different than most video games that you just can't, can't sit there and just talk about Dark Souls on your own for 30 minutes, or you just sound like a fucking maniac. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, Barry has a question for each of us. Sean, here's the question he had for you. Revisiting the big Godzilla episode finally got me watching the Toho Godzilla movies, and I'm fr frankly, this might be the best deep media well I didn't know I was missing out on. Mm -hmm. Do you have any updates on that ranking or thoughts on other Toho movies like Mothra or Gamera? Yeah, I think probably my ranking would, I'm, I would guess would be the same. Um... I, I, I would need to take a look at it again because I don't remember off the top of my head uh, like the the you know wave of Showa era movies. I will say that when I revisited those Showa era movies with the Criterion set, I don't know if like, like they would move necessarily in their ranking, but I think all of them would be higher in my estimation of the movies, but kind of to equivalent levels. Of all of those second half Showa era movies are better than I remembered them being, mostly because I remembered them being English language dubs on bad VHS tapes. So getting that Criterion set and being able to watch them in Japanese with the original Japanese audio and the, the original Japanese edit and watching it in nice quality, um, like all those, I think like there are very few Godzilla movies that I would say are like actually like bad, bad movies that people don't need to bother watching. Like Godzilla's Revenge would be the big one for me is like, that's the one that's like 50 minutes long and half of it is stock footage from other Godzilla films. <laughs> um, but yeah, Godzilla's great. Like, I'm glad, I'm happy to have other people watching it. In terms of Mothra, I haven't rewatched the Mothra movies in a long time, but they are very good. Um, and they are definitely worth checking out. And for Gamera, I will always bang my Gamera drum of that, um, the trilogy of movies from the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, Gamera 2, Attack of Legion, and Gamera 3, Revenge of Iris. Um, those are three of the best, uh, giant monster movies you can watch. I highly recommend them. I have been considering picking up that Showa-era Gamera 
um, big box set that they released because uh, I haven't watched any of those movies in a really long time. I was never a big fan of those old Gamera movies when I was a kid, so that's the reason I haven't gone back to them. But I have been getting a hankering for watching a giant monster movie, and yeah. I think I might end up getting that box set. Yeah, that's Arrow Video has a Showa Gamera and a Heisei Gamera set. The Heisei Gamera set is what you just mentioned with that yes. trilogy. Um, I've been meaning to get both of these two. They're on a wish list right now, so I would love to do that. Um, and Sean, I wanted to mention, I'm showing Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla this coming week to my students in my film club. And I also made kind of called an audible and switched up and last week showed them King Kong Escapes. Um, mm -hmm. And did a big like presentation on I it helped it, that was like an introduction to both King Kong Escapes and then this next one because I wanted to I started with like Godzilla versus Kong and has these three characters and we're going to be watching them over the next two weeks um, and so I did some fun clips and stuff but uh, I have to say the kids fucking loved King Kong Escapes the maybe the best reaction I've had to a movie all semester which kind of blew me away they thought it was great <laughs> then they're gonna fucking love Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla my god that's, that's what I was telling them all I'm yep. like you guys ain't seen nothing because King Kong Escapes is really good it's a fun yes. movie but it ain't no Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla <laughs> yep I'll stand by Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla is I guess that would be the third best Godzilla movie because I would do the original Godzilla Shin Godzilla and then Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla would be my top three nice uh, all right, Barry's question for me is, Jonathan, you've been writing about movies since you were a kid and podcasting all adulthood. I've noticed you change your opinion as the years goes on, as we all do, but I wonder if having a lifetime of opinions and writing online affects you in any way. Yeah, I fucking hate it. I fucking, <laughs> I fucking hate it. I, I thank you for giving me a chance to vent about this. I don't like it. I don't. Like, honestly, I just you might recommend, keep your opinions to yourselves, kids. Don't put them on the internet. I don't like that there are, like, old articles of mine, in some cases that I have no control over, out on the internet, written when I was, like, 19 or 20 or even younger. And I look at them and it's like, a different person wrote that. I'm yeah. just, I'm 29. I am not who I was at 19. I think that's true of everyone, except shitty people who don't grow up. Um... And I just, and sometimes it's opinions like I don't necessarily disagree with, but I would have reworded, or it's ones I like, man, I don't feel that way anymore, or I've learned more, or all sorts of things. I wouldn't have written it that way. I've grown up, whatever the case. And it's just uncomfortable because people online assume that if it's online permanently, that it's also your permanent opinion. And I mm -hmm. fucking hate that. And it is like this, it's such a weird thing. But then you also sometimes get weird hate emails. Sean, this is so ironic. Yesterday, yesterday, okay. as I was putting this outline together, as I put Barry's question on the outline, I get an email from a guy named Eric Wilson. His email, if you want to send him some spam because he's an asshole, is ewils91 at gmail.com. Again, that's ewils91 at gmail.com who wrote me an email saying, The Lorax 2012 is an A+. I give your writing an F-. And I went, what? This guy had fished up my review of the Lorax animated movie from 2012 that I wrote in 2012, nine years ago now. And he wrote, I'm going to read you his email. After reading your review of this movie, I felt it important to not only post a comment, but contact you personally about how <laughs> awful a writer you are. This movie is a modern adaptation of a classic that would otherwise not be introduced to young people at all. That they would think critically about the issues being discussed rather than be bored or uninterested. Again, not true. Dr. Seuss is the most widely read children's author. Yes. It, is Ted more worried about getting the girl at first? Yes, but this is a perfect embodiment of today's young people. 
Okay, I'm gonna. He goes. He rants. Today's on young it. people aren't even the the young people of no. 2012. Like, no. No. we were the young people of 2012. <laughs> You're yeah. like 19 years old All right. when we came out. So, so he writes. I've found this adaptation to be an incredible tool to introduce early school age kids to environmental issues, and I believe can be used to interest kids in the original as they grow up. I think your depiction of this movie is not only close-minded and ignorant, but disgusting. Jonathan Arlack, you disgust me, and you really need a solid fist to the side of your head. He has the fist emoji. The hole might let some sense in, probably not based on your retardation. Stop what you're doing and go oh. get a job bagging groceries. Keep your stupid-ass opinions about a kid's movie to yourself, fuckhead. What the fuck? Like, that's... <laughs> the Vorax! Yeah, for, again, a review that you wrote when you were 19 years old. And I still um, stand by it. By the way, that's one yeah, I stand by 100%. Movie. That movie is disgusting. Um, yeah, but you again... Don't need to, you don't need to show somebody, a kid, a bad kid's movie to get them aware of environmentalism. You can just have them read the Lorax without having watched the fucking movie first. It is a children's book. There also is a movie. There's an animated movie yes. written by Dr. Seuss that's great and just does the book. Or what if you, you want to get kids in, invested in environmentalism, you do what God demands and you show them Mobile Suit Gundam and say, you won't yes. understand this now. This might make you cry and traumatized, but trust me, you will understand the trauma and the dangers of the space noids and you will know that we need to drop this fucking asteroid when Char's out in space. Yeah, but anyway, that guy's email again is ewils91 at gmail.com. Do what you will with that. My point is... That's hilarious. Like... No, I don't really like having a lifetime of opinions online. And I'm not I'm not famous or anything, but enough enough out there that like this does happen sometimes, Sean. And uh yeah, it is, you know, look, is there upside about it? Yes. I like particularly the podcast, I like that it's been out there and we have listeners who've kind of grown up alongside us is cool, but yeah, I um I, you know, it annoys me. I'm definitely in a uh, a low ebb with, like, I if I could erase a lot of stuff from the internet, I would. <laughs> yeah, especially, like, anything that's text is um, dangerous because it's yep. easy to be searched, right? Like, so the podcast, like, you know, I, I don't think I would agree with, like, probably 90% of the things I said in any of the podcasts past, like, five years ago. Um, <laughs> certainly the ones that like, you know, we recorded either in like the basement in your old house in Colorado when we were in high school or any of the ones, you know, when we were living together at the condo, like that's such a long time ago. And I could barely listen to them because you can barely even understand what we're saying. Cause we recorded them on the like onboard microphone, your fucking MacBook that you bought in like 2010. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but the nice thing about those podcasts is that unless you go looking for it specifically, you're never going to find it. You can't like you know, Google reviews of the Lorax ended up stumbling on a podcast we did, right? You're not going to Google, like, reviews for fucking Prometheus and end up on top of our podcast because there's text that is going to get there first and not this podcast. Um, but that text you can just end up finding in weird ways on the internet. And, yeah, I all my sympathies for you, Jonathan, that that, that <laughs> shit is out there and outside of your control. All right, uh, Connor asks, do you two have any plans to discuss the Clone Wars animated series? I think you two would have plenty to say based on the prequels retrospective. Yes, but I would need to watch it first and we're still busy with Gundam, <laughs> is the short answer. I, I actually did try to watch Clone Wars like a year ago and I got through the first two seasons or so and then just, we watch a lot of Gundam and other yeah. things and I honestly have not had time to like binge the whole thing, but... You know, one day, yeah, and maybe maybe it'll have to be, like, we make time to, like, 
do one season an episode or something and just talk about Clone Wars. I do think it would be fun to do. Yes. Because, I mean, you know, I definitely have talked about Clone Wars a lot on the podcast, but, but you know, in my own fragmented way as, as I, I, I pick through that stuff. But yes. Yeah, I would love to talk about it. I think it is a really awesome show. There's a lot of cool stuff to talk about, but it's also a long show and we are currently, you know, we're doing both Gundam and Batman and The Matrix. So yes. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff to do. One day. Um, it, so their second question, Connor's second question was, any plans on apologizing for the slander you two made towards Century Color, which is the Turn A Gundam second opening? Uh, no, I will not apologize. That is the worst Gundam opening. Uh, I'm sorry, Connor, but facts are facts. Yeah, I, it's, you know, I, I respect your feelings on Century Colors. If you like it, I'm happy for you. But yeah, <laughs> it's definitely, you know, Turn A Turn is one of the best Gundam songs ever. Century Colors is not. Jimmy Jonathan Lee asks, Do you guys have any interest in doing an episode on Tom Baker's final Doctor Who season? It's an interesting transitional era about entropy and decay. I mean, I have interest in doing episodes on all the Doctor Who seasons. It's just I have interest in, like, there's there's too many things to do a podcast on. Uh, I have not seen that far into Tom Baker's run. I've seen his first four seasons, and I need to pick back up. But I know you've seen it. You've talked about that season a lot, Sean. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I've been thinking about revisiting that. It's one of the Blu-ray sets I want to get. So I, I've picked yeah. up over the, the past couple of years a lot of the big Blu-ray sets they put out. Whenever they go on sale, I get one or two. Um, and I would like to get that one. It wasn't my highest priority because I don't think that season is very inconsistent. But it is really interesting because it's this big transitional period, right? Because both is when Tom Baker's leaving and it's also when John Nathan Turner comes on the show. Um, so it is a really weird sort of like chimera of a season of Doctor Who between the like the 70s and the 80s um, kind of takes on the show. Um, so it would be a very interesting season. It, were we to do like a deep dive of a specific season of classic Doctor Who, that would be it would be like that or the key of time would be the two seasons of classic Doctor Who to look at. Um, because it is, it feels like the season was considered as a broader unit of storytelling, which was not particularly the case for almost any other season in that period of the show's history. Yeah. I, the next uh, Blu-ray box set they're doing is the Douglas Adams season, I, mm-hmm. which actually will include the animated reconstruction of Shada, which I have the standalone of. Um, so that's pretty cool. I'm excited yeah. for that set. Um, I do want to... I have the first Tom Baker season. I kind of want to... They've done most of his seasons at this point. So I'm, I want to get yeah. all of those. They're, I think this is the fourth or fifth they've done. Um, all right. Then he also asked, uh, let's see, this is for Jonathan. I don't know, this This is for both of us. Would you ever revisit Buffy the Vampire Slayer for a critical examination? Is there still merit to its legacy in spite of Joss Whedon? Uh, again, I don't know why he aimed that just as, at me. You've seen it also. Yeah. Um, no, I wouldn't. I, I, I think it's moment is very rooted in the 90s and early 2000s and I think it's a moment that's pretty played out and I also think the Whedon thing taints it in ways that just don't make me want to go back to it ever yeah like and I've I've and part of it is that you know we we're, we're like a little bit too young for like the Buffy like when it was at its height for its key demographic um so I think like for me, definitely, I, I, I revisited, revisited that. Sh- I didn't revisit that show. I visited that show as like a proper watch through when I was like probably 17 when it was on Netflix, even though I had obviously seen bits and pieces of it when it was airing. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. Like, I, I don't have a deep love for Buffy, even outside of the more recent like sort of clarifications on Joss Whedon being a piece of shit. 
Um, you know, I, I feel bad for all the other people that put a lot of really hard work and good work into that show. But I also think that Buffy was always very up and down. And I don't think I would... my I don't think my interest would sustain the, like, bulk of what that show is um, to even try to do a critical examination. I do think, like, our... Uh, collectively, not just you and me, but everyone's TV watching habits have been sh so warped in the streaming era. It's really hard to go back to 22 episode seasons. Mm -hmm. There are some shows I can do it with if I particularly love or if I'm watching them as just kind of a fun, like, on the side thing, like I was doing with ER when I binged all of that. But, like, I think people forget how long a 22 episode season is, and something like Buffy, a lot of those are not going to be good. <laughs> so Yeah, and it's not like something like the x-files or something where buffy does have lots and lots of standalone episodes but the structure and nature of the show with like the characters growing up over the course of it and stuff like that is like this awkward midpoint of it kind of being more serialized um but still having a lot of episodic elements i think that's part of what would make it hard to watch like i could very happily watch a bunch of x-files episodes because they're so standalone buffy it still feels like you kind of need to watch it in order in the season that it came out in right yeah, yeah. All right. Um, Vang on Twitter <clears throat> writes, Congrats on 400 episodes. I found your podcast through the Persona 3 review and have been a listener ever since. Thank you. Uh, my favorite moment is when Sean spent 30 minutes explaining Digimon Evolution to Jonathan in Cyber Sleuth, which led to a surprising game of the year. Vang, I got to tell you, that might be my favorite moment too. I uh -huh. adore Sean blowing my mind explaining Digivolution and then me getting into Cyber Sleuth and then eventually me... Calling an audible, because it wasn't even going to be my number one, and I decided yes. in the moment, you know what, fuck it. And I have never had less regret about a number one for anything on any list I've ever done. Fucking yeah, Cyber Sleuth game of 2016, I'm still I'm still on that train. Fuck, that game rocks. Yeah, I, I think about replaying that game all the time. Like, if, if I had, like, <laughs> infinite time, um, that would be, like, the first game I'd be like, now I just want to replay this. Like, if I don't mm -hmm. have to think about wanting to play stuff for the podcast or like new media coming out or and stuff like that it's just like if i could pause the world and just sit down and play digimon story cyber sleuth and not have to pay attention to anything else that would be the thing i would do because that game is such a delight and yes uh that was I, because that was for me like that that was such a like a bizarre mercurial thing that happened on the podcast because the only reason i played it was because i had been playing through the hd remaster of the 2013 tomb raider game and I had sat down for an evening. I had made like four hours for myself. I'm like, I'm going to finish this game. And I booted it up and the save was corrupted. And I was like, well, fuck. Like I had dedicated, <laughs> I made, because I had been very busy at that point. And I'd made specific time to like, just want to sit down and play a video game. And I was like, oh, fuck it. And then I remembered in the back of my head being like, I saw on Twitter that people like that fucking Digimon game. Fuck it. I'm just going to buy it. And I played it. I'm like, this is amazing. And then I ranted like a madman on that podcast trying to get you to play it. <laughs> I have the Nintendo Switch cart for the, the two Digimon Cyber Sleuths put together. Mm -hmm. I think about playing it all the time. I want yeah. to so bad. Maybe maybe we need to start Weekly Suit Digimon so we can just replay those games and talk about them like 10 hours a time on the podcast. Yeah, it's, they're great fucking JRPGs. So good. All right. Uh, Levi on Twitter says, Hey, in your response to request for episode 400, 
The best episodes you've done, IMO, uh, in my opinion, are the Persona ones, which is how I found the podcast because I just finished Persona 4 Golden and Persona 3 Portable on PS Vita and actively sought out podcast episodes while on that high. Your episodes were hands down the most in-depth, introspective, and thought-provoking, enough to make me stick around. The Persona 3 episode reflecting on the nature of death resonated the most. Even though Persona 5, for me, left a bad taste in my mouth, those episodes were great too, but the Persona OST lyrics dissection episode might be the greatest. Uh, they're the goat, as he says. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Levi. I think those hold a special place in our hearts. Levi also in a follow-up tweet asked, where's the Persona 5 Royal podcast? I know, I know, I know. We've not been the Persona guys for a little while, and that is too bad. One day, you know, we're we're coming up on finishing some of the bulk of Weekly Suit Gundam. I would, I would like to play Persona 5 Royal. I would like to play Persona 5 Strikers. I would like to talk about all of these just... There's only there's only so many episodes of a podcast we can make, um, and I I still am so touched that people still talk about those Persona episodes we did because they mean a lot to to me too. Yeah, I feel like that was like us getting into Persona was a big turning point. I feel like for the podcast. Yes, it was. Um, but I I have to ask you, Jonathan. Can I get your blessing to just let me fucking play Persona Five Royal? Can I just can I just oh. play it and then when you play it we can talk about it on the podcast. I didn't know you were waiting for my blessing. Of course you can. Yeah, you, you don't. You to. told me like a year ago that we should wait until we should play it at the same time, and I was like, okay. And then you fucking had a bunch of shit going on, and then you couldn't play it, and then I've been waiting. Can I just play that game? Yeah, you can play that game. Uh, okay, tell me if you're it. playing it, because maybe I'll just play it too. I don't know. I th I think I think I might just I think that might be the next game I play. Like I okay. I just it's been in the back of my mind for so long, and I really want to play Persona Five Strikers because I own Persona Five Strikers. I do too. But I want to play through. If I'm going to play through Persona Five Royal, I figure I might as well play through it before I play Strikers. So yeah, I think that's what I'm going to do. Okay. Well, you can maybe... do what you want with it, but you know I've got that fucking steel book. And I, I just kind of want to play that game. My brother asks me about it every day, too. So I, uh, I'll... Okay, yes. You have my permission, and maybe I'll do it, too. All right. Um, Silver. Hearing how you play Red Dead Redemption made me laugh a lot. I also really enjoyed the video game soundtrack episode, and I'd enjoy another episode like that. And then he sent up a follow-up tweet. Oh, and the Red Dead thing was slightly horrifying, too. <laughs> So, Sean, do you want to recap this very old joke on the podcast? Yes, this is one of my favorite, like, old running jokes. I mean, it's like, it was like eight years ago. It's probably the last time we referenced it. But yes, um, <laughs> it was it was right when we had moved in together into the condo in Boulder, where we were both going to college, um, and you were playing Red Dead Redemption, and I sat down to watch you play the game. Because this was like a year or two after that game had come out. So I had already finished and we it. And this would have still been 360. PS4 didn't exist. Yes. Xbox One didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah, it was the year before the PS4 came out. So so you were playing through it. And I, I remember you were like basically at the end of that game. And I sat down and started watching you play it. And you were riding around on your horse. And you were doing awful, horrible things because you played that game like a fucking psychopath. Um, you were, you know, ripping people up and, and like dragging them through cactuses and just shooting random people in the face and just like a complete utter monster. As we know that you are all, are all the time on the inside, but back then you expressed it more through video games. Now you just repress it all the time until it explode out and kill us all. Um, but the thing that shocked me the most and still, if I, if it ever like occurs to me, it puts a smile on my face is the fact that you had somehow missed the entire like economy of that game that you had never gone into a shop and bought something despite the fact the game fucking tutorializes it for you and the way i discovered that was because while you were playing it you were just running out of ammo 
constantly. And I was baffled because I couldn't remember ever running out of ammo a single time in the entire time I played that fucking game all the way through. And I realized that it was because you had never bought the fucking bandolier, an item that is available in the shop the first time you visit it, and that doubles your ammo capacity for every single gun in the game. And you had never bought it. You'd played like 50 hours of this fucking game and never bought that. Your horse was a piece of shit because you never bought any of the nice horses. You only had like half the guns because you never bought any of the guns that were available in the shops. You only got the ones that the game gives you as you play through it naturally. And I was just utterly flabbergasted that you had somehow played through that entire game without realizing that you could buy things. I don't know what you thought money existed for. Like, it's like you get Bounties. money through that game. And it's just, yeah, you, you, you just assume that's like, oh, you pay off your bounty when you do evil shit because you're doing evil shit all the time. Not thinking about money exists in video games so that you can buy items and stuff. You're forgetting about, like, man, I had more free time back then. What I would do in that game is run around and I would, like, lasso people and take them to the church outside yes. the town and put them on the altar and stab them. <laughs> yeah. I don't, like... I don't have time to do that in games anymore. But it was fun. Yeah, because you played Red Dead Redemption the way that I played video games like that when I was like 12. You know, <laughs> like it's like when I played Knights of the Old Republic when I was a little kid, I always picked the evil route because it's like, well, I don't want to be a good guy. I want to just murder everybody I run into because I didn't take the game seriously. And then to like encounter someone, you were like 18 at that point or something, or 18 or 19, yeah. and you're just murdering every single person you ran into without a care in the world. It's like, God, Jonathan, what the fuck? How I remember that game, Sean. All right. Uh, True Life Dude asks, Have you guys ever checked out other Gundam podcasts? And if so, did you find anything about their style or structure interesting compared to your own? Uh, like, I have listened to... I haven't listened to it in a long time. I used to listen to a podcast called The Great Gundam Podcast. Um, that's pretty good. Um, I would say it's, it's somewhat similar to ours. They go, they do, like, two episodes in an episode of the podcast. Um, so it's much, much slower. I think they're on, like... Victory or Tournay or something around that point at this point. I haven't listened to an episode of their podcast since they did, like, Shard's Counterattack. Not because I didn't like the podcast, but just because I ran out of time to listen to podcasts. Um, but other than that, I haven't listened to any others. Other than, like, it coming up on, like... I mean, one of the reasons I got into Gundam was when Austin Walker was on the Giant Beast cast, and he talked about it on there. And Austin Walker is kind of affiliated to the Great Gundam podcast, broadly speaking, because the people who run it are his friends. Um, and so he's on some episodes. So that's the only kind of world of Gundam podcasts I've kind of like touched outside of obviously you on our own. I have listened to none. My dirty little secret is I do not listen to podcasts, anything similar to ours ever. I don't listen to any entertainment podcasts. I don't listen to any movie, TV, gaming podcasts. I listen to a Hollywood Reporter TV podcast that's more on the business of TV, but it's American TV, which we don't even talk about. So like... I just, and it's not, it's not because like I think I do the best podcast and everyone else's shit. It's because I just, I do this and, and I don't, I don't have the brain space to like process other people's podcasts in the same vein as ours. And then I would wind up comparing. And so I just, all the podcasts I listen to are like pol politics and news um, and some comedy ones, but not, not anything like ours. And I've, that's been true basically since the start of this show. Yeah, the only podcasts I listen to regularly are now the Giant Bomb cast because the Beast cast uh, isn't around anymore. But like the Giant Bomb pod, like family of podcasts are the only podcasts I listen to um, regularly. Although I haven't listened to them much recently because I don't have like a commute anymore. That was yeah. like the reason why I listen to podcasts. So Awesome. All right. Uh, Alex on Twitter asks, do you guys have any interest in covering other anime series outside of Gundam and Kimetsu no Yaiba? 
Yes. yes. There's lots. But again, time. <laughs> I've I've you know, I've had I've watched a lot of anime and had a long time to think about recording anime podcasts and you know, my tendrils on this podcast are long and they go deep and I have seeded plans years ago like this Gundam podcast that will continue to come to fruition. So you know, Jonathan doesn't know it, but I've already set into motion multiple different podcasts we will eventually do on different anime series. Yes. And you know what? The Gundam podcast will talk about other anime too, and we do have yes. concrete plans for some of those. Um, which do you guys think is the best Studio Ghibli movie and why? That's hard. Don't ask me that. Um, my answer is, I mean, I tell people my favorite movie is Spirited Away, so I think I have to say Spirited Away. I think Studio Ghibli is unique in that almost everything they've ever put out is like in the A to A plus range. Their the level of quality is pretty much unparalleled in the world. Um, but I also study them slightly for a living, so I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I've seen most of the Ghibli movies, but I haven't seen all of them, and it's been a while since. I feel like I need to go back and watch them again because it's been a while since I rewatched them. I would say that like. I would say my head says Princess Mononoke and my heart says Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. That's a good... Honestly, those movies I, I've always thought of as kind of a pair because I think Mononoke is a kind of revisitation of the ideas of Nausicaa, you know, yeah. 15 years later um, and is the, the slightly less dark version of them. Um, okay, uh, what Genshin, Genshin Impact character do you have a crush on? <laughs> a crush on? Okay. Because that's different than, like, if you said my favorite, it would be Raiden Shogun. If you said, which Genshin Impact character do you want to serve, as, like, with her as your queen, it would be Raiden Shogun. But that's not the same thing as having a crush. Right. Uh, I would probably say Jean Doncho um, or Eula are the two, probably, that I would say, like, I have, like, a, a crush on that I like in that way. I'm weird, and I... I... I'm weird in that I'm not weird and I don't usually think about anime characters like this. So I guess my answer would be the one who is most my type is probably Beto. Um, and I, I am biased because I use Beto the most. But there, maybe there's a reason I use Beto the most. Because yep. she's a cool pirate lady who doesn't take shit, gives orders, and just drinks sake off of her fucking belt whenever she wants. That's my kind of lady. Yeah. See, it's Jonathan, it's not that you you don't think about anime ladies in that way. It's that you're just not aware of it. Um, because you do have a crush on Beto. I could have told you that. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Sean. All right. Um, he also gave us some Gundam topics that I will just say right now, we're not going to answer now because it would take too long, but they will definitely be lists that we will do later on. Like two of the ones Alex suggested were favorite shark clones and top five Gundam finales. I promise you we will be doing those on a yes. anniversary episode at some point because we definitely... You know, we're going to do our anniversary where we do all of our normal topics, but once we've reviewed all the Gundams, we want to do all the silly lists. So yes. if you want silly lists, let us know. We'll remember them. Yes, and, and yeah, we will definitely do those. And and any dumb list t Gundam topics, just we'll, we'll put them in our back pocket if anyone has any suggestions. Because yes, I am very excited for being at the end of the Weekly Suit Gundam train and just saying... Let's do the stupidest fucking things we can with this podcast, <laughs> like like what we did with like ranking the fucking Persona lyric songs or whatever. Yes, um, let's do, we should just do we that we could just do that forever. Yep, sexiest horrors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, George. Not really a question, but I just wanted to let you know that your podcast is the highlight of my Monday. Thanks to you and Sean for all your work. Thank you, George. That's really sweet. 
and yes, uh, thank means you a lot. Yeah. Malcolm, I think the hardest I laughed at the podcast was the Stardust Memory episode, that's a Gundam one, where y'all did a bit about what if Ko Iraki became Jared Mesa, and I haven't been wow. able to forget about it since. Congratulations on 400 episodes. You guys got me through some tough work days. Thank you, Malcolm, and that is also one of my favorite, especially of Weekly Suit Gundam funny moments, because I do think we, 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 we nailed it, Sean. Yeah, I, th- I feel like that's where Stardust Memory cracked open, uh, yeah. really, for us, yeah. All right, uh, Gundam Ever on Twitter had several questions for us, but they're pretty good, so I want to go through some of these. Uh, you have both been friends for 10-plus years at this point, and obviously have a really great chemistry on the podcast. In all that time, have you ever had a major falling out with each other? And if so, what was it over? My immediate thought, Sean, was it's the Man of Steel episode. <laughs> yeah, that would be like the close. I don't feel like we ever had a fall. No. You know, th- there was never like a point where we were like, Oh, we're just not going to record the podcast. I'm like, I'm not going to do the podcast because Johnson's an asshole. Like, no, it's never you know, um, that's never happened. But yeah, back in the day, we definitely were more kind of like aggressive with each other because we were dumb kids. Um, yeah. And the Man of Steel podcast is like is is I think like the most notable example of that. That's the worst episode of this podcast. It's the one I would strike from the record if I could, but you yeah. know the internet is forever, so I don't. Yeah. But yeah, no, we get along. <laughs> No, we get along. We've never, no, we've never had a, like, I don't, yeah, no, never. Um, he also asked, how did we meet and become friends? Because you said 10 plus years. It's, so I just turned 29. You're about to turn 29. Yeah. We met when we were 14. We're officially at the point where we've known each other for more than half our lives. Yeah. Sh- Sean, you just, like, put your head in your hands. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, that really puts it into perspective. I know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now we have known each other longer than we had not known each other. Like, uh-huh. especially if you if you throw out, like, the first four years or so where you don't even remember your life, so it, like, doesn't really count because you're not <laughs> you yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It is. And uh, we met in uh, eighth grade French class. I think we, we were in other classes together. That's where we, like, wound up, like, sitting next to each other and making fun of the class, which was our main, like, friendship language. Um and then we just started hanging out after that. That's that's pretty much the origin story. It's it's it was geographic proximity mostly. Yes, yeah, yeah. It was proximity. It was that I think neither of us liked or wanted to really be in that French class. Um, I French is the language. I don't remember much of my Spanish. I don't remember anything that I learned nope. in that French class. The only French stuff I remember is stuff that I knew before I took that French class. So. <laughs> Us being in that class together might be a big reason why none of that material sunk in <laughs> whatsoever. But also taking like a middle school language class, like it's when you when, you know when we took like Japanese at a college level is when you realize language classes in middle school and high school are kind of pointless because of how easy they are and how like gradually they introduce you to material. Because if it's not a certain level of strict regimen, you're not going to learn a language that way. So it's, no. You know, kind of wasted time. So we wasted that time talking about. I remember us talking about like, I got into the Halo Three beta. Um, and you had because I I bought Crackdown. I think you weren't in it, and so I remember like talking about that with you and like, the mongoose and the Spartan laser and oh yep. my god, you get drop power drains and they blow shit up. Um, like I remember those being conversations you had in that class. Yeah, and like just all sorts of things. I mean, it, honestly, this podcast exists in large part because you and I just hung out and talked about shit a lot when we were kids. Um, and like at lunch and like various things, we just talked about like movies and TV shows and stuff. And we liked having those conversations. And I really think that just kind of became the podcast at a certain point, yeah. you know? Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. We, yeah. we more or less just started recording conversations we were having during lunch in high school is kind of how this podcast yep. 
it began. Yep. Um, let's see. Um, you guys are somehow able to consume shitloads of media while having full-time jobs and social lives. I question that one, but uh, as well as religiously yeah. recording a weekly podcast... Do you have any tips for us regarding time management and scheduling that helps make that all possible? I'm sorry, one, I'm not... One, I'm unemployed right now, so <laughs> scratch that full-time job for, you know, for right now. Um, yeah, and scratch the show Social Life 1. I, I don't have much of a social life right now. Yeah. Um, but, you know... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing not at your question. The question's good. Um, no, I actually get this question a lot, when I, especially when I'm talking to colleagues and I tell them I do a podcast every week, and they're like, oh, did you just start it? I'm like, no, I've been doing it for 10 years, and we're hitting 400 <laughs> episodes. And they'll be like, how? Because a lot of, I think a lot of, especially in like education, PhD programs and stuff, are like, this is all you get to do, right? And I guess my answer has always just been, I just make the time for it. I just, you know, mm -hmm. it's always been a priority, it's we do it on Sundays. We know when we're going to do it. We don't generally give ourselves more than we can handle. Um, and we've been doing it a long time. So it's not like, I don't think I have to consciously think about how to fit it into my week at this point. Um, and it's, yeah. and I think also like a lot of the media we watch is the stuff we watch for the podcast. And, you know, sometimes that can be hard because there's not a ton I like watch or play that isn't in some way for a project. But also, I like talking about the stuff I'm engaged with, so it's my free time, but it's also, this is kind of how I want to spend it, you know? Yeah, because I think, really, I mean, if you think about what, you know, we were just talking about with us in high school and having these conversations, I feel like we would be having these conversations anyways, even if we didn't have, even if we didn't record them, right? Because it's yeah. like, we both like similar things, we watch similar things, it's fun to talk to each other about it. So it's like, you know, the podcast is is like our form of our like primary form of socialization with each other. Yeah. It's like it, it, we are just recording the things that we would be doing anyways. Um, so it's like because I, I generally don't think of it too much as making time for something other than like every once in a while, like we'll kind of go out of our way to watch a specific thing or play a specific thing exclusively to do it for the podcast. But a lot of this shit is like, you know, we'd be watching these movies like we didn't plan to both watch Dune. It was on HBO Max. I liked Dude and I saw it. You wanted to see it. You saw it in the movie theater. It's just like we both ended up seeing it at the same time. So we talked about it on this podcast. I think yeah. a lot of that stuff would be happening regardless. Um, and finally, uh, Gundam Ever just wrote, uh, thanks for taking the time to make these episodes 400 times now. That's an insanely high number, and I'm sure this requires a whole bunch of work each week, especially Weekly Suit Gundam. Whenever I try to make the push to get someone else into Gundam, I always recommend Weekly Suit Gundam as essential listening because I think you guys help so much in shining light on the depth of Tomino's work, but really any work. During the pandemic, I managed to sit my ex-Marine current general surgeon mom, who's, current, who's nearly 70, down to watch a little Gundam every day. At this point, she's seen 0079 twice, Zeta, Double Zeta, Shars Counterattack three times, F91, Unicorn, Hathaway, and Iron-Blooded Orphans. And after each one of those, we've listened to Weekly Suit Gundam together. Y'all are quite literally the only Gundam podcast she likes, and we're both looking forward to your first Iron-Blooded Orphans episode. Apologies if this stream of consciousness is hard to read. I'm trying to get across that you've got at least one huge fan that's presumably way outside your target demographic, and I think you'd get a kick out of that. I absolutely get a kick out yeah. of that, and I fucking love it, and thank you so much for that note. That is the coolest shit in the world yeah that's awesome yeah thank you very much for writing in and letting us know because that is that is it's 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 cool to imagine the different kinds of people who might listen to the podcast that's pretty cool our first ever confirmation of a female listener <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding but no most most of the yeah. notes we get are from guys and i get it it's you know we're two guys talking about 
things that obviously women enjoy too, but are sometimes masculine coded. But I do love hearing about your mom um, watching Gundam because Gundam is Gundam crosses all ages and barriers. Damn it! Yes, it is. It is the eternal. It is everything. It is Gundam. Yeah. All right, Jay Mitchell had a really nice note here. Congrats on 400 episodes. It's hard enough to regularly put out a quality podcast, but to do so with such consistency for so many years is an accomplishment to be proud of. The best thing about Weekly Stuff is at its core, the podcast is just two friends and occasional Thomas. I like it's not occasionally Thomas, it's just occasional Thomas. Yes, that should be his like stage name or something. And occasional Thomas. Talking about what they enjoy. It's very easy to jump in and out of episodes, whether they're brand new or six years old. You don't have any of the issues that plague other podcasts. Inside jokes that new listeners won't get, ad read after ad read, or a holier-than-thou attitude simply because you've been at it for so long. The Weekly Stuff is a chilled-out, breath-of-fresh podcasting air that harkens back to the beginning of the genre. It's reliable, entertaining, even occasionally enlightening, and easily my favorite podcast among way... spelled with lots of A's and Y's, too many. Here's to hundreds more. Thank you so much. That's super nice. And I guess this is a bad time to say we're now sponsored by Helix Mattresses. <laughs> and Audible. Yes. Um, no, we're not. Um, Brought yeah. to you by Squarespace. Yes. I got to tell you guys, podca- I know what he means because podcast ad loads have gotten fucking ludicrous yeah. the last couple of years. Some of the ones I listen to, because I just skip through them, and my button, it's like a 30-second button. I have to hit it like eight times or ten or like, I'm like, how many fucking long are these ad reads? This is longer than like old network TV ad breaks at a certain point. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate this comment because I do think it's something that like, I think it's why we both liked podcasts like back when they were like a fairly new thing. And it's why like the Giant Bomb ones are the ones I continue to listen to because I think they have a similar vibe of like, it's fun to listen to people hang out and have conversations and like sometimes a lot of podcast stuff it like it can get very corporate sometimes and when it gets very yeah. corporate it kind of loses the appeal so so yeah. yeah i it's it's something that like i enjoy about doing this podcast and i enjoy about the podcast that that i, I like to listen to you know I, I have to explain that to people sometimes because i think a lot of people now like are people who came into podcasts with like serial when that came out was like a mm-hmm. big inflection point and definitely since then there's been a lot of the more produced like podcasts with like a regular set length and segments and all of that stuff and ads and all of that and I like some of those but we both were inspired by podcasts from like when they were actually on iPods and that's yeah. where the name came from at where, that were like long hangout like and, and like the appeal I think to both you and me Sean is the ability to like work out thoughts at length with someone we're good at bouncing ideas off of. And that's why the podcast has sort of kept that format even while there's honestly not many podcasts like ours anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we're a dinosaur, but dinosaurs are cool, so I'm okay with that. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Final comment is my brother Thomas. Last night... Occasional Thomas. Last night, Occasional Thomas sent me a text saying, if I send you something for the podcast, will you promise not to read it until you're on air? And I said, oh, God, okay, it's a, it's not bad, right? And he said, no, no, no. Okay, so he sent me a PDF. I have not opened it yet. I just opened it. The first page is blank. It says, this page is left blank intentionally so you don't accidentally read it before the podcast. Please proceed to subsequent pages to read my fan mail. It's like the fucking SAT. This yeah, page is intentionally left blank. Yeah. It's just a big stop sign on it. Yeah. All right, first page. Hey there, it's Thomas. Big fan. We've spoken a few times, but you probably don't remember me. Anyway, I wanted to share some of my favorite memories and ask some burning questions. Continue on the next page. He left this page blank, too. (laughs) 
All right. It's like it should be a two-zero adventure. It's like if you want to read this yeah. question, go to page three. If you want to read this question, turn to page sixty-seven. All right. Thomas writes on page three. I really liked the top ten video game music two-parter. It was fun how you were able to share the things you were so passionate about in this one, since it's audio only. Speaking of great video game music. When are you guys going to talk about Persona 5 Royal or Strikers or Q2? Seems really weird that you haven't talked about any of that yet. Dot, dot, dot. I understand, Thomas. Yeah, I, think I feel like I've answered part of that question on this podcast <laughs> already. I now have permission and I'm going to fucking play that fucking game. I think your discussions of the Star Wars prequels were some of your best. So much of the internet is, here's why you don't like that thing you thought you liked. And you guys generally don't do that. You guys always talk about things you're passionate about, which is one of the main reasons I keep listening. Like that time you compiled your Persona 5 podcast into a 10-hour discussion. That was so cool. So cool that it strikes me as odd you haven't spent any time talking about Persona 5 Royal. (laughs) Maybe I just missed those episodes. We get it. Thank you, Thomas. Um... (laughs) Thomas writes, I also like when Jonathan shared one of his old reviews. You guys should talk about that, and he should do it again. I think it was episode 366 or something, and the review was Ang Lee's Hulk movie. Jonathan said the review was from 2018, 13 years ago. That's crazy. Hey, you know what else happened in 2008? The U.S. release of Persona 3 Fest and both the Japanese and U.S. releases of Persona 4. That's crazy. Almost as crazy as not playing Persona 5 Royal for almost two years. Can you imagine talking about the original Persona 3 and then not talking about Fest for almost two years? Think of all the amazing stuff you would have been missing from what Sean called his number two game of all time and Jonathan called his number one. Really makes you think, huh? Thomas, that's some really great um, like reverse engineering to get the 2008 reference in there. I'm impressed. Thank you for that. I think part of it is also because it's like he wants to make you share a lot of that writing on the podcast that you hate and, and you despise. Yes, because that was that Ang Lee's Hulk one was one of the few ones that I was not on. So you had like a filler week. Oh, um, right. I, I listened yeah. to that conversation and was very amused by hearing. Uh, I think you just read like the opening paragraph and it was hilariously bad. Yeah. Well, that stuff I have on fucking lockdown. It exists on my yeah. computer and nowhere else. So, all right. Uh, Thomas has questions. Um, how long has it been since you two were roommates? What has it been like to maintain a friendship primarily via recorded long-form discussions of visual media for all these years? Since we were roommates would have been 2015. That's when we graduated. Yeah, 2014 or 2015, yeah. Yeah, well, we... So we graduated... I graduated December 2015. I think you did, too. Yes. Uh, and that's when we moved out was after that. So it's been that long. Yeah. Um... And honestly, I thought it would have been harder to maintain a friendship primarily over, like, Zoom and stuff. But it's been fine because this is kind of how we, as you were saying, Sean, hang out anyway. Um, and we just do it this way now. Yeah, yeah. Like, the main, the big turning point was, like, you going to Iowa and us having to do the podcast remotely at all. And, like, once that became a thing, it's like, oh, this works. It's like, well, then it's forever. It's, it's forever now because if we don't even yeah. have to be in the same room. Yeah, like it, and and I was I was definitely nervous about doing the podcast re- remotely at first because I was not sure if like the timing and all of that stuff would work or if we would be constantly having technical issues. Which honestly, we have way fewer technical issues now than we did when we I know. were doing this podcast like in the early days. Because um, we have yeah, a method think, for it, you know. So it's like, yes. yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, I, I think it's like I was definitely nervous about that part of it. But I don't think it, it has not ended up being hard. And I think it's true of, like, a lot of people. I mean, a lot of times, like, it's true about a lot of the ways I've kind of always socialized a lot through digital media. Because it's also, like, playing games with people um, is all through, like, voice chat and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's it's I think it it's just kind of like the reality of a lot of, like, with the way that social relationships work in the modern world. Um, 
and it's worked fine for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I've and I think part of it also is that you and I knew each other for a long time before we started doing remote yeah. stuff. I have found I am not good on Zoom classes at all when it's like <laughs> new people and stuff. Yeah. But for you and me, there just isn't that we just know how to talk to each other. So that hasn't been a problem. It's it's I don't like this kind of thing when it's new people or like a class or something more formal, but this is fine. Um, I like this question from Thomas. If all your podcasts were erased from existence and you had to start again, what would you do for episode number one? Would you do anything different? What was our first episode of this podcast? It was the top. It was our top 10 movies 2012 edition. Yeah, I think we would also do the top 10 movies, but limit ourselves to movies that we had seen by the time we were however old we were in 2012. I think that would be the topic we would do. Oh, God. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's I like it, it worked once. It'll work again, baby. It would now be the weekly One Piece podcast, and we would review the manga one chapter at a time. <laughs> and And somehow we would finish that podcast and One Piece wouldn't be done. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Uh, he did ask if we have any ideas for another spinoff podcast, like a weekly Chihayafuru stuff podcast. <laughs> I, I want to watch Chihayafuru. I actually haven't seen that one. Um, it's a good show. I haven't seen the most recent season, so it would be okay. a good excuse. Uh, I mean, we do... There are two that I've actually... I have here on, on the desk behind me. I just got in the Zatoichi box set from Criterion. Yes. Because um, it had been out of print for a couple years. They put uh -huh. it back in. They had a sale this week. I finally nabbed it as soon as I saw it. Um, I do, at some day, want to do you know weekly Zatoichi podcast. And I also want to do weekly Godzilla suit. Because I know weekly Godzilla suit is the best idea for a podcast name I've ever had. Easily. So I at least want to do that one day. Um, but those two are ones that I think would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I... I, I I'm excited about doing like broader anime stuff also. Um, yeah. Just like getting to hit other genres. Like, you know, like Chihai Afudu is not like the first thing that came to mind, but <laughs> stuff like that, that, that like is outside the mecha and or shonen kind of like bubbles that we've only really kind of handled on the podcast in terms of anime. Um, but yes, yeah. obviously Zatoichi is one of those ones I've been pushing for a long time. Yes. Um, yes. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. And again, Weekly Godzilla Suit is just too good a name to, to, to mm -hmm. give up. So we have to do it at some point. Luckily, there's a pretty finite amount of Godzilla. There's a lot, but like there's, you know, it only grows so much over time. So that's nice. Yeah. Um, same with Satoichi, I guess. Um, yeah, they're not making any more of those. Yeah. Um, Unless we want to... Although there is also the fucking TV show at some point we'd have to get into. <laughs> you know, I wish we could, but that that is hard. Like, I've... I've yeah. The amount of that TV show I have watched, I think, is about the amount you can get without, like, going to Japan and going to a used video store and finding a used VHS copy somewhere in Japan. Like, that that show is phenomenally difficult to get. So, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, when are you going to do another top 10 best top 10 list from the Weekly Stuff podcast podcast? Oh, he didn't say another. When are you going to do that? So he wants us to do a oh, yes. top 10 best top 10 list we've done. Uh, I don't know. What's... Let's put it a different way, Sean. What is your favorite top ten we've done? Uh, I mean, it's. I feel like for that, it's like always the most recent one we've done, which would be books, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just feel like every time we do it, it's better because we've seen more stuff and we know more. So, yeah, I would say books would be my favorite of those. Love that one. I think in terms of a produced episode, the two-parter on video game soundtracks is probably mm -hmm. my favorite. I think that one turned out really good and had a lot of music in it and just was a ton of fun and and not a top 10 list 
that I feel like a million people have done. So yes, yeah, yeah. That's, the books that, one that was, was very good. Also, the books one was fun though because it was so different for us. Um, Thomas had a question here. Um, had us a couple questions that I think might come up in the interview segment. So I think I'm going to hold off on those. But I do want to note that Thomas at the end of this left several pages of lined paper like it's an SAT for an essay and then at the very bottom in tiny print I have to zoom in to like 150% to read also when are you guys going to talk about Persona 5 Royal <laughs> we get it it's like you know listen to me Thomas I know you listen to this podcast you're the, you are the occasional Thomas it's not me man it's fucking Jonathan like get, <laughs> get your, your, his family you get on, on his ass about this shit you make him fucking play that game I'm going to start playing it tonight okay so this is we we are together in this. <laughs> okay, I feel like I'm under attack. Uh, now I might have to play Persona Five Royal just out of fucking spite. Sean, uh, final thing, our main topic for our 400th episode, just as a fun, different kind of thing to do, is I gave you the assignment and me the assignment uh-huh. of coming up with 20 questions for each other. So we both interview each other because we've never done anything quite like this, and I thought it would be fun. And I also thought it was an open enough assignment that neither of us really know what to expect from the other. Yeah, I have I have no idea because also because you're part of your like inspiration for this is there's some sort of segment on Stephen Colbert's show that I have never seen an episode of. Okay, uh, I've, I've seen episodes of his show, but I've never seen this segment, so I had no preconceived notions at all. I you just said twenty questions, and I said okay. Yeah, so that's it. Um, who should go first? So do we flip a coin? Do you want me to go first? What who, what should we do here, Sean? Yeah, I don't know. Because also, do you want to just have one of us go through our questions all the way and the other one go all the way or go back and forth? Like, I, I have no idea. I think we should put someone in the hot seat and have it like that. Okay. So I'm going to flip a coin on Google. Google has this flip a coin button. So, Sean, why don't you go ahead and, and call it and whoever gets the call goes first. Okay, heads. This animation takes forever. It was tails. <laughs> All right, I will question you first. All right. Okay. So, Sean, you're in the hot seat. All right. Yes. My guest today is Sean Robert Chapman, uh, 28, from uh, Houston, Texas, formerly from Golden, Colorado. He, uh, not, this is so weird. I'm suddenly, I'm trying to do a joke-like host thing, and I don't know how to introduce you, which is weird. But, uh, you are, Jonathan, literally the host of this podcast, so. Yeah. You don't, it doesn't have to be a joke. That's just what you are. You're the host, too. All right. But you're like the you're the one who does all the technical shit. You're the one that opens this show. I'm the host of the weekly stuff or the weekly suit Gundam because I do the first thing. You're the host of the weekly stuff podcast because you do the first thing. There you go. I mean, I also do all the technical stuff on that one. Anyway, yes. you're in the hot seat. I delegate mother. that to you. For all right, you're in the hot seat. I have twenty questions. They are arranged totally randomly. Um, but Sean, I okay. think this will allow us and the listeners to get to know you a little better. Sean. Number one, yes. if you could have sex with one Doctor Who, which one would it be and why? This can be however you want to interpret it, the performer or the actual fictional character, like the fifth Doctor or Peter Davidson, however you want to define it, which Doctor Who do you have sex with? I mean, Peter Capaldi. I mean, but in <laughs> both, like, both. character, actor. I mean, Peter Capaldi is by far, I think, the most attractive of all of them. Um, I don't think it's any surprise that I have, like, a massive crush on Peter Capaldi. He's amazing. He's very charismatic. He seems like a very kind man. He's also married. Um, but, you know, that hasn't stopped other people before, so. <laughs> other people in life, you don't mean, like, other people in Capaldi's life. We don't know that. <laughs> no, no, no. He yeah. seems like a very kind, dedicated family man. 
Um, but you know, he's he's from yes. that fucking rock and roll generation, baby. He can roll some shit. All right. Uh, number two. Why did you decide to go into teaching high school English, and what's your favorite thing about it? Oh, um, why I decided to go into it. I mean, mostly it's I think um, I I enjoy education, right? So it's like I enjoy thinking about in the process of learning, the process of gaining knowledge, of critical thinking, um, that kind of stuff. And then English is like the most specific kind of realm that I have a, a larger amount of expertise in, which is why I went into the English side and allows me to hit more those kind of critical thinking, analytical skills, which are the things I'm most interested in. And I enjoy having those kinds of conversations as I've despised doing 400 episodes of this podcast. Um, and yeah, and my most, the part I enjoy the most about it is the moments when you're in the classroom with students and everything is vibing really well. Um, and being able to do dumb, funny shit, like, you know, when we did uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, I had a little extra um, whiteboard that another teacher kind of hoisted on me because they're like, I don't know what to do with this. There's this little roll around like tiny whiteboard <laughs> and it was in their classroom and they're like, your classroom's bigger than mine. You take this. And I was like, okay, I didn't know what to do with it. So I just drew on it a scale on one end of the scale, it said war is rad. On the other end of the scale, it said war is bad. And we charted media as we're looking at different examples of depictions of war in media of this issue of how do you depict war without glorifying it? How much is our media saying that war is rad? How much of it is saying that it's bad? And that's the kind of stuff that I enjoy doing in the classroom is being able to have fun conversations that are interesting, that kind of can be thought provoking both for me and for the students because they come up with ideas that I hadn't thought of but then also have it be through a filter that is extremely stupid because that's my sense of humor. I love it. And uh, I, I kind of a follow up to that, I guess. This, this isn't my next question, but what's your least favorite thing about the job of teaching? Like grading and administrative type work is easily yeah. like grading would be probably the number one because like it's like, as, as you like to say, Jonathan, is a synecdoche for the whole thing, right? You really enjoy that word. I so, do. It's a good word. Yes. Um, but yes, like grading, it's it's a thing I don't believe in. I think it's like toxic and um, just utterly del deleterious to the education process. I think the entire mindset around grading is completely wrongheaded. And it is, if I were like to pick one thing that is like symbolic or emblematic of the way that thought through considerate pedagogical approach and scientific-based research around pedagogy or the, the idea of teaching is not followed through in like the ancient structures that we still use in education, grading would probably be the number one thing because I think it is both emblematic of like the ways that capitalism like dominates the way that the education system works. And then it also like changes a student's attitude from something that is a pursuit of an intrinsic benefit, which is knowledge and the betterment of yourself as a person and pursuit of an extrinsic benefit, um, which is a grade, which is to set you up for an idea of like performance and competition in the marketplace that is destruct like destructive and it will be the end of our species if we don't curb it in some way. So that's the thing I like the least. That was a much deeper answer than I was expecting, but I completely agree with it. Um, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about of, uh, I'm doing some Japanese classes right now and just going back and doing a class that's sort of at the undergrad level at this point in my life makes me realize how I actually think against the purpose of the whole thing. I think the grading uh -huh. part of that class makes it a much weaker class mm -hmm. and that's not the teacher's fault. She has to do that. But like, I just, I'm 29 and I'm getting my PhD. I, I want to go just learn Japanese and it's the tests and all of that shit that just wastes time. 
Um, and, you know, at, at my level of education, you know, there's, there's not a lot of focus on the grading for like my stuff. Of course, I have to do it for my students. And then I agree with you. Um, you know, it's just something I, I try to be as fair as I can, but it sucks. So, yeah. And it's yeah. something that like no, almost no teacher agrees with. Every teacher hates it, but we just don't like, there's not enough momentum to actually get it to change. And yeah. it's very frustrating. All right. Number three, what do you think happens when we die? Nothing. We, you die like it's it's that, that like a classic thing of it's the same thing as what existence was like before you're born there's nothing that happens um, that's sad yeah. no it's this what i think i just i trust you i wanted you to tell me it'll all be okay i mean it will be all be okay <laughs> you will have no existence you will you know this was a thing that like you know so so i i had when i was very young like six years old I had a classmate who was a friend of mine who died. It was the first like encounter with death I've ever had. So I was fascinated with the idea of death from a very young age. I remember vividly lying awake at night and trying to imagine because I was I've never really sort of believed in any kind of religious concept, especially around death, um, and trying to imagine the idea of being nothing and what that is and that like freaking the shit out of me as a little kid. But it's never freaking out enough for me to think that that's not what happens because it's what makes the most sense. So it's fine because you'll be nothing and you won't experience it and you won't be there as a conscious entity to understand that you are nothing. And so it's great. You know, it sounds relaxing. If so you were a conscious entity <laughs> enough to be able to feel relaxed, which of course you wouldn't because you would be nothing. Man, I am really surprised that you, Sean Chapman, have been fascinated with death from a young age. <laughs> Yes. Knowing what we know about you. Go back and listen to our Top 100 Stuff podcast if you want to hear about that. Um, yeah. All right, number four. Um, <clears throat> let's say you you are not literally Thanos, but you are a Thanos-like being. You have collected the Infinity Gauntlet. You've got all six uh -huh. Infinity Stones. You've fucking killed Thor and Jarvis and all of that. Um, I guess he's Vision in that case, but you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. So you have the Infinity Gauntlet. No one can stop you. You can do a snap. What do you do with that snap? In the system of capital, in return, the means of production to laborers. <laughs> I love it. All right. How, I'm kind of wondering what the what does the world look like when that happens? I don't know. It's what what does the world look like after the Axis flash? I don't know. That's a good something. point. Because the Infinity Stones will figure it out, right? So like yes, yeah. So like basically, you're holding the Communist Manifesto in one hand, in the other, you f snap the fingers and like this thing gets destroyed. Boom. Yes. All right. I'm, I'm down with that. I'm totally down with that. All right. Number five. If you could retract one thing you've ever said on this podcast definitively as if it never happened, what would it be? The world forgets. It literally stricken from existence. You forget it too. It's just gone. Oh, geez. Um, hmm. That's a really good question. Like, part of me just wants to say, just get rid of the Man of Steel podcast. I mean, I don't dis necessarily disagree with my feelings on that movie. Like, I don't, I still don't yeah. like that movie. Um, but, yeah, that podcast is definitely very bad. Uh, yeah, something like that. Or, like, like some of our, like, old top tens where I look back on some of those lists and I'm like, God, what the fuck was, like, I had, like, I just had not seen anywhere near enough anything to be able to make a top list of any sh shit, you dumb 18-year-old idiot um <laughs> any of those you know yeah. i would just like erase those like we it's the doing the updated versions of those lists was effectively our means of erasing the old list to say it's like it's that very true invalid we have a new one and so if i could just like help that process along by also getting rid of the old ones that's what i would do 
So you don't want to get rid of the one where you were really mad about the Black Stormtrooper with the Force Awakens trailer? Yeah, I, you know, I stand by that. You know, I just don't think it makes sense. You know, if you logically think about the Star Wars universe, it just makes sense to me, you know, that, that black people aren't there other than, than Lando. Like, it's him and Mace Windu. I just don't think other black people should exist in Star Wars. You can't clip that out and not <laughs> take it out of context and make me sound like a horrible racist. I'm so sorry, Sean. I, I, okay. I now have a new one to use that on. That thing I just said as a joke, but that would be taken out of context. I'd get rid of that one. Okay, there we go. I pushed you towards it. To be clear, yes. Sean never had that opinion about The Force Awakens, <laughs> and I want to be really clear for people who are irony challenged. That was a joke. All right. I think we already kind of know it, but number six, tell me what you think is your most like radical political belief, however you want to define radical. Because um, I actually don't know if destroy capitalism is that radical. That the only way that that like capitalism can be destroyed is through radical violence, and that people will have to die for like the change that we need in the world to occur. That's that's my belief. Yeah, that I would say is the most radical. That I don't think there's such a thing as a pacifist revolution that could bring the amount of change we need to save human society as we understand it with the challenges that we are faced with. That would be my most radical political belief. Yeah. So kind of a if we're going to do the Gundam metaphor. Not a Shara's novel, kill everyone, but maybe a Hathaway Noah. Some people are going to have to bite it. Yeah, like be Shar, but not an idiot. Like Shar, Shar. I think the thing that's interesting about Shar and about like lots of violent revolutionaries is that like some of their ideas are correct, but the person themselves is often played with, and I think it's something that you have to be to be the, that person sometimes is like these delusions of grandeur and ego and like feelings of incompetence and fragility that they're trying to overcome that then get projected through the revolution as it becomes more successful um and so yeah like char loses sight of like his ultimate goals because he's too self-absorbed and kind of inhuman a person and a bit too sociopathic for it but if you had someone who could keep sight of their goal and accomplish it like i do think that violence is necessary yeah, I you know, it's something that I actually think is one of the things I find most interesting about the portrayal of Thanos in Marvel, in, mm -hmm. in the movies. I, his thing about erasing half of all existence is stupid when you actually think about it, because population growth would just happen again. Um, yeah. But, like, if you erase that for a second, in Infinity War in particular, I think they dilute this in Endgame a little bit. I like that he is not... He's exactly what you're describing, which is his whole goal is to do the thing and then walk away. And it's not a, like, bid for power... Um, and I think there's a little too much in Endgame of, like, kind of putting him on the, like, egotistical bid for power path that I think dilutes some of what's so terrifying about that character. Mm -hmm. But it is, it's one of the more, it's what makes him an interesting villain is because it's one of the only times I've seen that idea actually kind of portrayed in mass media, um, which is interesting to me. But yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying you think Thanos is right, but yes. No, yeah. no, but yeah, it is a compelling thing because you you tend to make villains easier to swallow by just making them like megalomaniacal power grabbing yeah. monsters and yeah thanos is like and is like kind of like char in that way of like he has a very specific goal or char and char's counterattack specifically he has a very specific goal he wants to accomplish his only objective is to accomplish that goal if he is able to accomplish that goal nothing else matters and that is a much more compelling and interesting character than just like you know, a classical version of Lex Luthor or something, which is just the, like, megalomaniacal villain that wants to rule the world kind of thing. Right. All right, number seven. Within the boundaries of whatever you're willing to share, what's the thing about you and your life, your tastes, whatever, 
that you think would most surprise listeners of this podcast? Something you're into or interested in or do or whatever that they just probably don't know from, from listening to the show? Um, interesting. I'm trying to think of like, I've got a couple of answers of things I definitely haven't like talked about on the podcast, but I'm trying to think of like, what would be something that would be very surprising. Like maybe like, I, I don't know about this, sort of like, like exercise that I exercise very regularly that like that, you know, I take lots of walks now that we're in Texas. Uh, my parents' house has a swimming pool. So I swim um, every day. I lift weights. So it's like, that is like a part of like my life that I'm interested in is like, being like physically active and it's kind of almost like a slightly meditative thing um that like for obvious reasons doesn't come up on the podcast because like there's not a conversation to be had about like right. and then and then i went for a walk at as i do every single morning um but we haven't yeah, done top like, 10 guess, walks yet <laughs> yes the top 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 10 walks um top 10 biceps exercises here on the weekly step podcast um, never doing that <laughs> no yes um, because also like the exercise I do is very basic. Like I'm not yeah. some, I'm not, you know, I'm not fucking Chris Hemsworth over here or some shit. Um, but, but yes, but that is like, you know, like when I was in Colorado, I went on hikes and stuff like that. Um, so in Texas, it is obscenely hot. Um, it is like 85 degrees outside and it's at the end of fucking October. Um, so yeah. it's like, I've not, I like that part. I'm, I'm still figuring out how to be physically active in Texas without dying. Um, that doesn't involve a pool. But yeah, that would probably be, I guess, my answer to that question. Yeah, that makes sense. That's something I know about you. But yeah, I think that wouldn't have come up on the podcast before. This is probably the first podcast, by the way, Sean, we're recording, where because of now the places we're both living, my heat is on, and I'm guessing your air conditioning is on. Yes, my air conditioning is on, and I have a fan <laughs> yep. behind me, yeah. So that's probably going to be a regular thing going forward, and that's so funny to think about. Um, but yeah. now it's cold here, it's hot there, different systems. Um, all right. Number eight, other than anime music, what do you listen to in terms of music? I actually realized I've known you forever, and other than stuff I knew about you in high school, I don't know this anymore. Yeah, I don't listen to music as, like, an active thing a lot. In terms of, like, I don't seek out music particularly actively. Like, it's, I think one of the reasons why I listen to a lot of anime music is because, in, like, video game music, is because I discover it very naturally by doing a hobby I already enjoy. So it's like, I don't... I, I'm not. I, I wouldn't describe myself as like adventurous, adventurous with my musical tastes. Um, so yeah, like like the main stuff I listen to is honestly a lot of the main stuff I listened to in high school. I just listen to more of it and have like I think a deeper relationship to it. But I just really love a lot of like the music of the '60s and '70s, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say my favorite band is probably Pink Floyd. Um, either like them or the Who, the Beatles, like obvious ones like the Rolling Stones, stuff like that. Um, um, Bruce Springsteen, which I know that you really love, like like that that's kind of like the music that I got into mostly. I think well, the '60s stuff is more what I grew up on. I more kind of discovered the '70s stuff as an extension of that, but that has always been my musical wheelhouse. Um, I think it's one of those things of where I would like to listen to more music and be more adventurous with it. But that's one of those pieces of media that I've sort of almost made a conscious choice of. There's only so much time I have in my life. I spend all this time on media in these other realms. And I would have to cut back more on that to do more music stuff. And I kind of like music being a thing that is entirely comfort. It's not a thing I'm seeking out to be like to challenge myself with. Um, it is a, like it's the same way of like me playing guitar. I'm very happy with like me being like average at guitar and just playing the songs that I like to play. And I don't play it for anybody else. And it's just a little comfort food thing for me. It's something that like we don't talk about very actively on the podcast outside of a couple of episodes. 
And that's kind of what my relationship to music is. But in terms of non-anime or game stuff, it's definitely Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, The Who, that kind of stuff. Awesome. So I actually did know the answer to this question. The answer is it hasn't yes. changed since high school. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't changed. Yes, that, is, that would be the answer for anybody who knows me. It hasn't yeah. changed. All right, two-part question for number nine. If you were a Jedi, what color would your lightsaber be? And which Sith Lord, Sith Lord would you want to be the one who kills you? Okay, this is a weird question. Um, <laughs> I had to come up with 20. This is a long number I didn't realize. Yeah. Um, God, what color? Like, I for it's hard for me to answer that question because, like, I think of it so in terms of, like, characters I've role-played as. I mean, I guess I would say I would have two lightsabers. I would do the thing that this has, like, been my, like, version of what I consider, like, the main character of Knights of the Old Republic um, that is, like, the playthrough I enjoyed the most and I, this is what the character I made was use two lightsabers. The one in the right hand was purple. The one in the left hand was blue. Um, and I have a whole headcanon reason related to spoilery shit in KOTOR that we don't need to get into about why the one is purple and one is blue and where those come from and at what point that character got those lightsabers because I'm a massive fucking nerd. Um, but that's what, that's, that's, I guess, what I would say for my lightsaber colors. I think the purple-blue combo looks incredibly cool. Um, and what Sith Lord would I like to be killed by was the question? Uh-huh. What a weird fucking question. That doesn't even occur to someone. Um, I mean, mine would be Darth Tyrannus because I want to meet Christopher Lee. <laughs> sure, that's that's. If a I have good to die answer. to do it, that's pretty good. Um, you know, in Nice the Old Republic two, there's a character, there's a Sith Lord called Nihilist. I believe he just sort of like basically uses the Force to suck your soul out. I don't know if that's, like, more painful or less painful, but I think I'd maybe bet on that one because I don't want to get, like, tortured to death with force lightning or, like, cut into pieces <laughs> by a lightsaber. That sounds like that would be physically awful to experience. I would think I'd roll the dice on maybe just having your soul magically, like, deleted out of your body by this, like, evil wizard man that might just not feel like anything. You might just be dead in an instant. So I'm going to bet on that one and say uh, Darth Nihilus from Nice Elder Republic 2. I like this. I, I'm actually really glad I asked this stupid question. All right, number 10. You have one book that you get to make everyone in America read. They, everybody has to read it. And you have one book that you get to erase from the time stream of human existence. What are they? The one I would erase would be Harry Potter. Just get rid of it. I mean, I feel very confident in that now. Like, I probably would have said that before the J.K. Rowling stuff because, you know, I have, like, some weird sort of, like, personal... Like, trauma is way too big of a word to use, but, like, I definitely was very frustrated as a kid that I just didn't like Harry Potter. I thought it was so dumb and lame and stupid, and everybody was into it so much. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Um, and, like, I feel like my life would have just been much richer as a young person if Harry Potter had never existed. Um, I know that other people felt enriched by it, but they're not me, so fuck them. Like, no, this is for you. Book. You don't have to feel guilty yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read the, the, the fuck those people. They would have found a better book if Harry Potter hadn't existed. Um, in terms of a book to get everybody to read Romance of the Three Kingdoms so I could talk to somebody about it <laughs> because it's like this is one of the things about being an English teacher is that like I do read but the books I read are like weird for no like normal people you know like if you listen to our top 10 books episode right like all my the books I like are like hundreds of years old so I don't, I, when I talk to English, other English teachers, they're all like, oh, what do you like to read? And I can't say 
Romance of the Three Kingdoms? Because they don't know what that is. And then if I say, well, it's like, well, it's a thousand-year-old historical Chinese novel that is based on a 2,000-year-old war of three different factions, and it's it's like 10,000 pages long, so it's like they look at me weird and they never want to talk to me again. So if everybody had read Romance of the Three Kingdoms, that would solve that problem. So I just, I'm now trying to think of like, how different would American society be if every man, woman, and child had read all thousand fucking pages of Romance of the Three Kingdoms? I mean, the other answer is you could just go to China or something. But I do like the idea of just in America, everyone has read it. You know, it would give people a much, I think, better historical perspective to realize, like, America is this tiny blip. Not in the history of, like, the world, but in the history of, like, human civilizations. America is, like, shit. It's just, like, another corrupt deteriorated empire that is spinning lives out of control and causing misery across the entire planet if you knew that that's a thing that's happened over and over again maybe was people would have the wherewithal to try to not do it this fucking time that's a good answer that's a really good answer yeah absolutely we did actually have a, a listener comment um i skipped over because we had a lot of these um but one of them was a suggestion for doing a show called weekly three kingdoms where we just do a chapter of uh three kingdoms every week um <laughs> which would be if we had the time would be fun i do that's a book i want to read one day um but it's a lot of reading that that would be a long fucking podcast that that <laughs> would that would take years if we were doing it um by like a couple of chapters oh my god yeah all right, uh, number 11, Fuck, Mary Kill, Char, Amaro, Captain Bright. This is fucking hilarious, Jonathan. I didn't put this in my 20 questions. I had this exact idea, and it's one of the ones that made the cut on my 20 questions list. And that is the most specific, stupid fucking thing. <laughs> I can't believe that there's some crossover that we both at least had those ideas. Because um, I know my just, answer. Yeah, so it was Fuck, Mary Kill, Amaro, uh, Bright, and Char. I mean, you gotta fuck Char. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's no... It's like, you probably should kill him. He's hurt a lot of people. He's done some bad shit. But look at that guy, you know? Did you see his fucking arms when he's Quattro Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, I would marry Bright and kill Amuro, you know? It's like, I don't... Like, at least if you marry Bright, you never have to see him if you don't want to. You know, he's <laughs> off in the military service. I feel like I love Amuro. You're married to Ma'amro. That's a miserable fucking marriage. You know? Like, there's... You can't... Like, he's a he's an incredible character. But you wouldn't want to be married to him. Like, he's just... You you know, saddled with all the trauma of the death of Lala Soon. It's like... I'm sorry, buddy, but, you know... I mean, you're gonna die, like, 25... 25 anyways. Like, you know, it's a little bit earlier. Sorry, buddy, but I'm taking you out. I'm fucking Char. And then me and Bright are getting hitched. Sorry, Mirai, or Mirai, uh, you're, you know, I like you, but you've got a bunch of prospects, so. Yeah. Uh, mine would, mine would definitely, you've got to fuck Char. There's no question yeah. about that. Um, I think I would marry Amaro and kill Bright. I think Amaro is, you know, he is soulful and he is sensitive, and I think he has some trauma, but I think we could work through it together. I think I could fix him, Sean. That's, you know, that's what they all say, and it's, you know. Yeah. No, you can't. The problem is I would kill Bright, and then the entire history of that world would change because he's the guy who wins all the wars. So yes. that's the one problem. You know, Amuro would not be alive for very long if you killed Captain Bright. Um. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> all right, number 12. How do you think your life would be different if we'd never started doing this stupid podcast? 
I have almost this exact question. I have a slightly different version of okay. my top 20. This is interesting. Um, so yours is, if we hadn't started doing this podcast, how would my life be different? Um, like, I would like to think that we would have done stuff like this anyways, whether or not it was recorded or not. Like I said, like, mm. I think we just enjoy our company in the back and forth enough um, and, like, the enrichment of these kinds of conversations that I think we would have found another avenue to have them, whether or not we did the podcast specifically. I think the podcast, like, in the format and all of that, like, makes these conversations more interesting because there's, like, a, a project or something that you can kind of put together, like, a thing you put out. There's a bit of, like, showmanship to it that's very fun that you would lose. Um, but I don't know if my life would be, like, dramatically different. Um, um, I think, I just think, like, I, I like that we do the podcast, but I think we would have found something to replace it if it wasn't this. Yeah. Interesting. All right, my number 13, this is my gift to you, Sean. This is your chance to make fun of me on the 400th podcast. What was the worst thing about having me as a roommate? Oh, I mean, oh, Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's legitimately, it's so much. I mean, the fact that you're a fucking child, like, you didn't do anything. Like, you didn't clean, you didn't take out the trash, you didn't, like, I mean, you basically didn't do the dishes. Like, you might have done the dishes occasionally, but not as, like, a regular thing. Like, I basically did all the fucking chores around that place when you were there. Um, so it's just that, you know, like you turned me into like some sort of like cliche 1950s housewife that does all the fucking chores that you come in and is like, oh, what's for dinner? And then just throw shit on the floor, just fill the trash up. And then we had, I think we've told the story on the podcast that when we were in that summer Japanese class, we were having like a practice conversation with each other. And I, somehow the conversation came up about, like, taking out the trash because I think it was, like, the vocabulary we were, le were learning was about that. And then I told you this, like, you never take out the trash. It's like, oh, well, I never thought about it. I'm like, what do you mean you never thought okay, about it? It's, I, I just, dispute it's, this. It's just gone. It's just, it's like, it's just not there anymore. I'm like, because I fucking take it out because it gets full. And it's what a fucking reasonable human being does is if the trash gets full... You take the trash out. You don't just, like, keep piling trash on top of it until it gets to the point of fullness that someone else in the area is going to have to deal with it. When it's a reasonable amount of full, you fucking take the trash out of the goddamn dumpster. I, I, I dispute some of this, um, but, you know, this, is, this, is, this was my gift to you, so I won't dispute all of it. You can't dispute any of that shit, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, that's all 100% true. All right, Sean, number 14. Tomorrow you die... Turns out you led a terrible life. There were secrets yeah. that I did not know, our podcast listeners did not know. Uh, and it turns out also that you were wrong about what happens when we die. There is indeed an afterlife, and it is binary. There is heaven, there is hell. You are sent to hell. What would your version of hell be? Eternal damnation tailored by the devil to you. What is your hell? Uh, so, so, yeah, so, like, what is, like, the worst possible existence? Yeah. Yeah. For um, Sean Chapman, yeah. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> I thought you were just going to say being my roommate again. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. You know, it was it was annoying, but... Um, that's This is an interesting question. Like, I don't know if I have, like, a good, like, goofy personal answer or something of, like, then everybody reads Harry Potter to me every single day for the rest of my life. Like, you know, I'm annoyed by Harry Potter, uh, but it's... You know, it's not that. 
like here's the sad part of trying to answer this question jonathan is like we just look at the state of the world today it's like well <laughs> you know it's like in an existential sense it is kind of hellish of this like slow train towards apocalypse that we're all on and you can see that like nothing is being done to stop it um so it's like to give like the utterly horrifying answer it is you know basically the equivalent of having your brain removed and somebody just stimulating the pain the pain sensors of your brain for all eternity um that would be the most awful thing i could possibly imagine that transcends all like human existence and thought in your sapience and who you are and it's just pure feeling and it's just the feeling of pain forever that would be the worst thing i could possibly imagine that's a very Sean answer. I really should have seen that yeah. one coming. All right, number 15. You're out walking one day, as I know you are wont to do, and yes. you see a dog run across the road. You run uh -huh. out, you save the dog just before a car would have hit it. The dog, you know, it's having fun, it doesn't see. So you call the dog's owner, and you find out the dog is owned by Mr. Kevin Feige, the producer of Marvel. Now, Mr. <laughs> Feige... An elaborate scenario. He is so grateful... He, he was down in Texas location scouting or something. That's how this happened. Now, Mr. Feige is so grateful, he immediately offers you, Sean Chapman, the opportunity to write and direct a Marvel movie on any property Marvel has access to, so long as they haven't done it yet. could also be a Disney Plus show. What do you do? You, just, you get $200 million and you get to make a Marvel movie. What is it? Yeah, so they have the, 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 the they haven't done it yet is definitely, like, the stickler there, right? Yeah. So, like... I know that this is in production, so I don't know if this counts, but, like, my immediate thought would have gone to Moon Knight. Like, I can't... And it's, like, it's beyond belief that they're fucking actually doing Moon Knight and they're, like, doing it. And they... It's Oscar Isaac is playing Moon I Knight, I think so, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's either him or Pedro Pascal. Um, I can't remember which now. Um, but... It's Oscar Isaac. Yeah. It's Oscar Isaac, yeah. Okay, so... Because that's... The, like, that would probably be my normal answer because it is so obscure. I couldn't believe that they're doing it. And I really like Moon Knight. And Oscar Isaac is such good fucking casting for that character. Um, and just, like, assuming that they do that the way I want it to, that they, like, go the weird with it and they do the multiple personalities, I'm going to say that Moon Knight is off the table um, because cause they're actually doing it. Um, which leaves, man, like, really, what have they not done? Because they're doing fucking She-Hulk would be another one that's more obscure. But that's also going to be like a Disney Plus show or something. Um, fuck. Like, they really have plumbed most of the depths. Because they're obviously going to do Fantastic Four. They're going to do the X-Men Squirrel Girl. I, they haven't done that yet. Squirrel Girl. There she is. They tried. Um, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, 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 they did that pilot where uh, there was Kevin Beagle did it for it was abc family and milana Weintraub was playing squirrel girl and i've i'm still mad that never happened because that's perfect casting and i would love to see that happen one day that might be my answer if i were able to do it i would do the squirrel girl show with milana Weintraub. that would have been really good yeah because there's definitely i think there's like a space for what would almost be like a more like kind of emotive and wholesome version of Deadpool, you know, that has, like, it's very comic, it's very goofy, it's fourth wall breaking, but it's not as, like, sort of violent and edgy or whatever as, as the Deadpool stuff is. That's kind of what Squirrel Girl is in, in a nutshell. Um, pun intended. Uh, so... <laughs> would that be the I name of the I show? I, that would be the name of the show on Disney+. Plus. Squirrel Girl in a nutshell. That'd be so perfect. Yeah. No, it, but it is Squirrel Girl in a nutshell and then in parentheses it says, pun intended, that's what I would make the title of the show. <laughs> 
That's perfect. I yeah. was kind of hoping that your answer to this question, Sean, would be a Venom-style Spider-Man villain solo movie about Paste Pot Pete to go back to a you know, very old joke on this show. Yes, yeah, and you get Daniel Day-Lewis to play Paste Pot Pete. Yes. You know, that would also be very good. I guess I definitely was limiting my thinking to um, heroes, but yes, you could definitely make a good Paste Pot Pete movie. I mean, no, you couldn't. But you could. <laughs> Same way you couldn't make a good Venom movie, but they've done it twice. Yeah. Yeah. All right, number 16. Sean, you wake up tomorrow, and suddenly someone, for some reason, I didn't fully work out this scenario because it was too hard, has dropped a baby on your doorstep, and for whatever reason, you now have to be this child's parent. What do you think would be the best thing about having you as a parent, and what would be the worst thing? Oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) The best thing about having me as a parent is that I'm not, like, a ignorant, racist piece of shit, you know? It's like... You know, I wouldn't, you know, raise them to think that they're, like, better than certain members of other genders or races and stuff like that. I would like to think that, I, you know, would keep the their thoughts open and broad-minded and stuff like that. Um, worst thing is that, like, you know, I'm personally not particularly interested in the idea of being a parent. So I think it's, like, there'd be a lot of, like... Well, fuck, uh, I guess this is what I'm doing now, kind of energy to the whole affair that I would like to not exude, but I think it would be impossible not to. Um, and I think that, that there would be, like, some real friction there between this, like, but this is how I thought my life would go, um, especially because I didn't give birth to this child. I didn't do anything to give birth to this child. This child was handed to me by God, apparently. Um, and I just got to make do, and I think it would be hard. I think it would be hard to get over that. I'm I'm very much imagining the the therapy meeting from the kid when they like when they're like 25 being like my dad you know he just he was good he was a good dad he just had real big I don't want to be there energy and I could never get yes. over that <laughs> like that's I think that's what it would be um, yeah you know he'd be he'd be showing me how to build gunpla and then he'd just take it and build it himself <laughs> all right number seventeen. What do you think has changed about you the most in the 10 years since we started doing this podcast? Not necessarily because of the podcast, but just as a person yeah. since you were 19. Mm. I, th- I think, I just think like my horizons have broadened a lot. Like at that age, I hadn't thought, I think much big picture about political stuff. I think I was very interested in like philosophical ideas to a fault. Um, and it's like, it's like the classic white dude thing of like ignoring the practical realities of what the world is like and what the world is like for other people, because you're very interested on some sort of idealized enlightenment era perspective on the way the world should work and these sort of abstract concepts that are interesting. And I think necessary to think about, but are just one part of like what it is to live and what it is to think and what it is to be like active and that is definitely like the part of me that has changed and grown the most since that age is that is is finding that balance both between the idealistic and the philosophical and the the world of like the ideas um and then the more like kind of practical what does this actually mean how does this connect to like the world and history and people and their lived experiences and their perspectives and what they value versus what i value um and that's like I think that's where I've grown the most. And it's also, I think it's like the area where there's still like growth that needs to be done is like, is, is always trying to 
walk within that like weird liminal space between those two kind of um perspectives on thinking um i think that would be my answer that's a really great answer i would have also accepted you're nicer to me now um but that's okay it's true <laughs> yeah i mean you're just an easier person to be nice to so i don't know if that's me changing um so yeah well i take back what i just said no, I'm <laughs> number number 18 I didn't write this into a question. I just wrote down the words. I think I forgot to actually write a question out of this. I just wrote, biggest mistake you've ever made in your life. I don't make mistakes, you know. Um, <laughs> That's really in line with your last answer about growing and changing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, I think it's this thing of where, I try to think of, of what I feel. It's because this is like a, like, thing of where I've definitely done things that weren't like the right thing to do but were inevitable that I did them that way right so it's like it's hard like yeah I think it's kind of my perspective on the ideas of like regrets and stuff like that of of where it's hard for me to frame it as a mistake because I don't think there's anything generally that I could have done differently because I wouldn't not because there isn't anything that could have been done in a philosophical sense but I wasn't the person to be able to think of other ideas um yeah that man of steel podcast those <laughs> top 10 lists you know like and that's the kind of thing i mean okay. of like were those lists mistakes from a certain perspective because you know like the best tv show in the world is doctor who so that one was right was one of the ones that was very dumb wrong it was like claymore or whatever as like one of the best 10 tv shows i'd ever seen so i like that show that's a fucking stupid thing to put in your top 10 best tv shows ever seen is that a mistake it's wrong like anybody with half a brain that's seen like any number of tv shows would be able to tell you this like that show's good but not amazing um but i hadn't seen that many tv shows so it's like was it a mistake from one perspective yes from another perspective no i think that's a good answer uh i will tell you the origin of this question is while i was thinking of questions i some of like my brainstorming process i was looking online and i found this list of like like really deep first date questions this was on there. This was like a. Can you imagine, Sean, going on a date with someone and sitting down and being like, "Hey, hey," I was going to say, "Hey, girl, what's the biggest mistake you ever made in your life?" But like, can you imagine that? Just like you're having your first date conversation, and just at the, you know, you're talking about like your dogs or something, and then like, so what's the biggest mistake you think you've ever made as a human being? <laughs> it's like. Oh, well, you know, it's when I, you know, I slit that man's throat in the alley five hours ago. Yeah. And, I've, and then I didn't dispose of the knife. And they just stare, like, meaningfully into their eyes. And then you look at the knife they're cutting the steak with. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, then you, and you eat the, the steak like fucking Mads Mikkelsen in the fucking Hannibal show. Yes. Yeah. Well, that would just make me turned on to them. So, you know, yeah. that would be good. All right. Number 19. Great news, Sean. You are the doctor's new companion. The doctor ran into your classroom one day because one of your students was a Zygon. You got that sorted out, and now you I know who it was. <laughs> I had, I thought, I thought, yeah. Yep. Yep. That person was a Zygon. Anyway, now you two are buddies. So first trip in the TARDIS, doctor gives you the controls. What's the first place and time you go and why? I'd go to the future to see what happens, probably. Yeah. Just like, I gotta, you know... I don't give a shit about spoilers. I'll look up the fucking synopsis of whatever I want on Wikipedia. So fuck it. Like, let's go see. I want to know the ending. Because sometimes I want to know the ending to see if it's going to be worthwhile to, like, watch the whole movie. So it's like, let's go see, like, how this shit goes. Um, 
And then that'll give me an idea of like, oh, it all works out horribly. Now I need to find a way to like manipulate the doctor to like break the laws of time and fix things, even though probably we shouldn't because it'll be a greater existential crisis for like all of reality itself. But I care too much about my fellow man just to like leave us in this horrible state. So that's what I would do. I thought the answer was going to be like 50 years America in the future. Is it still okay? Or is it on fire as we expect it to be? And then the next place is, all right, doctor, let's figure out where you're going to drop me off. Cause I'm not living there anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What period of human history or what alien planet do I want to go live on? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I would be utterly terrified to get to an alien planet. Like, I mean, in the doctor who universe, it would be fine because it'd just be a bunch of people like green makeup and wearing like some styrofoam on their shoulders yeah um but in reality it would be like utterly horrifying to visit an alien <laughs> world because it's like you have no idea what the fuck life even would be on any other world that doesn't have like the shared dna that all life on earth has so yeah yeah all right my last question i just I'm... i just say hey peter capaldi can we just make love and in, in the tardis <laughs> and just stay in there and it's all fine um to go back to the first question well good so my okay my number 20 this question is kind of about me, but it's kind of a, a game that we're going to play. Okay. So I think it's going to be funny. In 2019, while I was at University of Iowa, I wrote a feature-length screenplay in a screenplay writing workshop. It was 140 pages long. I put my heart and soul into it, and I've never told a soul about it. Is this real? or are you? No, I did, this, I did this. This was real. Okay. I did this. Okay. And Sean, because you didn't know this, and I've never told you no, about it. No one in my life really knows about it. I kept it very private. So, Sean, I'm going to give you five guesses to guess what the subject of that screenplay was. And if you guess right, I'm going to give you $100. I am very confident you will not get it right. And you wrote this in 2019. Uh-huh. I mean, is it, you know, some sort of story that is connected to your, like, childhood and growing up in some way? No. Okay. That's um, one. How, how many guesses do I get? Five. So you've got four left. Is it a fantasy-type story in the realm of a Lord of the Rings-esque thing? No. No. Okay, that's two. Is it is it a Wild West-type story um, that is has the word bushwhack in the title? No. <laughs> no, it's this is, not. This, this is a deep dive in me pulling out some shit yeah. that I remember you've written before. Is it here's I know that it's not going to be this. I'm just going to say it for the fun of it. Is it something called Dumbtopia? No. Okay. Damn. I was really hoping it's just like that's that's a deep cut for you and me and nobody else. Nobody else. Um um I really have no idea how to even try to guess at this. Um That's why it's fun. Is it, is it a screenplay that is all about the way that you fantasize murdering me while we record our 400th podcast, the Weekly Stuff podcast? No, it's not, but that would be funny. Damn. Yeah. Okay. All right. What is it? Do I have to tell you now? Yes. <laughs> no, like, I don't. It would be a shit question if not. No, I know it would be. All right. It was, uh, it was um, a story about a very depressed young woman, uh, like 25 or something, because her best friend uh, killed herself a year earlier, and she is trying to communicate with this dead friend again through uh, Reiki energy healing and dream work, uh, and ends up, it's a very dream-driven story, um, and also they're in love, um, and it's very sad. I should have guessed a dream thing. That's 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 what I should have. That that I was trying to think of, like, what stuff that Jonathan's very interested in. 
I couldn't think of like what would you turn into a screenplay. Yeah, I, I would obviously would not have gone exactly there, but dream something playing with dreams is something I probably should have guessed. Yeah, uh, it was called a dream ping after the Robert Frost poem. All right. Anywho, that's mine. So Sean, I guess we get to swap seats now. Thank you. You've been a great guest. That actually went really well. I was really happy we did that. Uh, I feel like I know you better, and I think the the audience does too. So applause for Sean. And uh, now, you now you take take the reins, and I sit in the hot seat. Hello and welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I'm Sean Chapman, and I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here for an, an extra special episode of the show um, because we are commemorating the 400th episode of our sister show, The Weekly Stuff Podcast, uh, by doing a fun interview. Um, so if you go and listen to The Weekly Stuff Podcast, you will hear Jonathan asking me 20 questions. And now I am here to ask you, Jonathan Arlack, 20 questions that I have come up with. You do not know what these questions are. We didn't communicate anything about these questions whatsoever to each other. Um, so I think this is going to be very exciting. I think the conversation we had on Weekly Stuff episode 400 was very interesting. I'm very excited to ask you some of my questions. What are your thoughts, Jonathan? I think that's great. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to do some fun editing stuff here. So I'm just writing down notes for myself on that. But I am ready <clears throat> to take whatever, whatever you have to throw at me uh, on this right. episode of Weekly Suit Gundam. Yeah. All right. So question number one, Jonathan, what is the best breakfast cereal and why? I'm so fucking boring. It's Raisin Bran Crunch because Jesus Christ! <laughs> Should have picked a different first question. All right, um, all right, because Raisin Bran, which has all the benefits of fiber and all that good stuff, it's got a good flavor, but it's fairly healthy for you. Does not have enough raisins, and the bran is just too like kind of brittle and just doesn't have a lot of crunch to it. Raisin Bran Crunch is crunchier. They put more raisins in it. It's just all around more flavorful. And if you, like me, don't drink milk and so you don't have milk on your cereal, Raisin Bran Crunch is the one you want. Um, there are tastier breakfast cereals like Cinnamon Toast Crunch and stuff. But in stuff, in terms of stuff I actually eat and makes me feel good about myself, um, that's the one I, I buy. I should say for the record, I do also enjoy Raisin Bran and Raisin Bran Crunch is the preferable version but yeah, I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting this. This isn't this isn't one of my twenty questions. I just have to ask: How old are you again? I'm twenty nine. Oh, I thought it was sixty. Um, Thanks. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this Moving is a roast. I see. Yep. Moving on to number two. How are your Japanese studies going? Bad. Um, Can you elaborate? Uh, yeah, I will elaborate. Um, it's it's hard because I am trying to do this Japanese three class. And I find a lot of it interesting and everything, and I'm, I'm trying my best, but I also work a full-time job, and I am teaching mm -hmm. two classes. I am teaching this Intro to Theory class where I have 25 students, but it's three classes a week, one of which is a screening um, and grading and all of that, and I, I'm flying totally solo on that one, you know, writing the exams and, and, and right. doing, you know, I'm doing big, you know, 30 to 40 slide lectures every week, and it is an incredible amount of work. And then I have office hours, and then I have this 100-person or 70-person class with the film clubs. That adds up to, you know, 100 students, and then, you know, just living and podcasts and all of that. And I, I, I realize how much of, like, undergraduate study is built for that being the only thing you're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's it's been hard to fit that into my day and do as well as I would like. I am pretty constantly frustrated in myself that I am not 
doing better. I also know it's it's a hard class and probably a point in language acquisition that is just frustrating naturally. But uh-huh. um, it is tough. I've fallen behind on my kanji practice with uh, Wani Kani is the app I use. And I've got about a thousand reviews piled up that I will have to at some point Oof. like turn on a movie or something like a really long movie and just have that and see how many kanji I can get through during that fucking movie. But yeah, I am, you know, I, I don't think I, so I will say right now, I've always been jealous of you, Sean, because I think you worked really hard on Japanese, but I also think language skills are something that come a little more naturally to you than they do to me. I think it's a Mm -hmm. talent you have. um, And I don't think I particularly have that talent. I'm, better at the reading side of things. I am pretty good at reading and remembering kanji and all of that stuff. I am very bad at speaking and forming sentences. And that I don't care about too much because I my interest is not to go talk it. I, I want it for research purposes and stuff. But it is a, a frustration I have with myself. Um, so And some of that is in my control and some of it's out of my control. But there you go. That's my honest, uh, brutal answer to, to how stuff is going. Yeah, but I think you you are right that you are like that Japanese kind of three level is is like the big turning point I think of like it's the hardest point because you're not quite there to where it is comfortable to be able to engage in the language in as like a recreational activity um but you're almost there, right? Yeah. So it's like once you can get to the point where you can engage in it comfortably in like a recreational sense, which is a big hump. Like it takes a long time. You have to like work pretty hard at it. In my experience, to be able to be like sit down and read a manga in Japanese, you it takes a while. Even when you're at the level of aptitude for it, the mental block is pretty intense. Um, but once you get over that, then it's something that like you can just do as a matter of fact, and you just start getting better at it the way one does in their mother's language. But it is definitely where you're at right now. Is is I think like yeah the hardest point because it is like the turning point where you have to like deal with these feelings of like you feel like you have worked very hard and come very far and yet you now know enough to see how far you still have to go to reach a like a higher level of mastery that you really wish you had that's a good way to put it i think and uh yeah it's uh it's you know it's a tough one and um but it is you know i'm trying to stick with it and i think you're probably right that this is probably a hump that's worth getting over so i will i'm doing what i can uh, it's it's good stuff to have, and you know me working on some of this stuff for my own like PhD research does encourage me to try to stick with it. And my hope is to do more of an immersion thing next summer that I can probably get a scholarship for, um, and and that'll just be my summer. We'll be focusing on that, and that probably would would go a long way to help. So so we'll see mm-hmm. how that goes. But yeah, that's that's my answer. Interesting. All right, number three. <clears throat> What's something about you that I do not know? I mean, there's a lot of stuff, but what do I want to say on the podcast? No, I'm kidding. Yes. Um, um, I, how much do you know about my actual like tastes in music, I feel like? That I listen to a lot of modern pop. Um, I know that. You know that? Okay, so, so you're not surprised I have a Taylor Swift calendar on my wall? No. Okay, all right. That's shit. Well, that was my easy answer. Um, the screenplay thing would have been great. Yeah, um, too bad. You yeah. Used, you used that up. I did use that up. Um... What is something you don't know about me? Um, this is really hard. We've known each other too long for this question. Try to think. You can try to think of something about you from before we met. That might. That might. There might be something there. In the dark times. In the dark times. Um, yes. Yeah. I don't. There's not a lot. Um, 
Yeah, I guess something you don't know about me. Um, I have, and I guess, I don't know if I've talked about this that much. I have pretty heavy anxiety and depression symptoms. Uh, I am medicated for that. I am currently in therapy, in good therapy the first time in my life, which is nice. Um, finding a therapist is hard. Um, and part of that, and, and I think I have some concentration issues that stem from some of that, which you definitely know I have that. Um, <laughs> you probably could have told me that before I could have told you that. Um, so I do listen to like a lot of like ASMR and stuff. That is something I do a lot of. Um, and that is a big part of just like my daily life. It's something I work on, uh, listen to while I'm doing like notes and making PowerPoints and stuff like that because it helps keep me focused and relaxed. Um, the reason why my script that I wrote in 2019 deals a lot with Reiki energy healing is I wound up write, watching a lot of videos about that and I find it very interesting. Even if I, I do have the distance to, uh, it's a pseudoscience and all of that, obviously. There are, there are people who are crazy about it and people who are not about it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, I don't know. Is that a decent answer? Yeah, I think, obviously I knew about the anxiety and depression stuff. I didn't know, I'm happy you have like a good therapist um, that you're working with. And then I didn't know the ASMR thing at all. So, okay. yes. Yeah, that no, that's, that's a big, that's like, I definitely, the like app I use on my phone the most is just YouTube. Uh, and I do pay for YouTube. I've paid for like, I guess it was called YouTube Red at first. Now it's YouTube Premium. That's like the only video subscription I've had for like the life of that service. And I watch other stuff on YouTube too, but I do watch a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and I find it helpful. And I, and I feel like the culture is such that I can admit that now. Because <laughs> yeah. people thought it was weird at a certain point. <laughs> Maybe it you is know, still weird. I, I have like this very stubborn thing of where like I watch more than enough YouTube in situations where like with ads and stuff like that, that it absolutely would be worthwhile for me to get YouTube, whatever, super YouTube, whatever the fuck they call it. Um, but I'm so, I'm such a stubborn, cheap bastard that I'm like, <laughs> I feel like they're like threatening me or something. It's just like, no, it's like, because you, I can watch it. It's just my own impatience of having to go through the ads is the only thing I have to overcome. And I just get annoyed about it every time. And then I think about buying the YouTube thing. And it's like, but that just means I'm losing. That just means they're beating me. I hate, I hate the idea of having a service specifically to avoid ads even though there's nothing wrong with it i think it's like, great it's i know yeah. the people i'm watching are getting more money from my streams than they're getting from like someone just watching ads because it's yeah. actual money in the bank and it's it's worth it to me to pull the ads off and you get another couple of good little features but i just it's like a no-brainer for me and i i'm to the point where like when i have to log into youtube at work um and show a video and an ad pops up i'm so like viscerally surprised because, like, I forget it exists. Yeah. You're doing the right thing. I, I should, <laughs> I should okay. just get that service because it is stupid that I don't. Um, yeah. All right. Question number four. What is the earliest memory that you have? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, I have a pretty clear memory of at least the layout of the front of our house in Des Moines. Like, when you would come in through the door, I remember there being, like, I remember an image of, like, there being, there's a staircase pretty close right when you came in through the door of that home and for reference i we moved out of that house when i was three years old so i that's that's an early memory that i remember that um in terms of more concrete like events it would be stuff from when i was in so we lived in des moines until i was three and a half or so and then we were in washington dc for two years we lived actually in alexandria virginia which is right outside of washington dc my dad worked in dc um and i have a lot of like early memories from there like 
honestly, it's one of the reasons why that movie, uh, The Tree of Life, resonates so much with me, is the neighborhood mm-hmm. in that looks a lot like the neighborhood I grew up in for a couple of years in Alexandria, Virginia. And, like, bike riding and stuff like that. There's a very visceral memory I have of the first time I was stung by a bee uh, at a party. And it was, like, in the ear. Almost like the bee was Ooh. trying to, like, pier- pierce my ear. Um, yeah, that hurt really bad. Um, so I remember stuff like that. Um and then my most vivid early memories are from when I... So then we moved when I was like five to Golden, Color, or Arvada, Colorado, because my mom's parents, my grandpa and grandma, were sick. We lived with them for a couple of years. So I lived with my grandma and grandpa for a couple of years until they died. And I do have a lot of vivid memories like that. Like I have a very, very vivid memory of visiting my grandpa in the hospital a couple days before he died. He had had a stroke. Um, and I remember that floor and the, the room and all of that very, very vividly. Those are probably the ones that collect into like my most vivid early memories. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. You could have said any of that stuff also could have been the answer to the previous question also. I didn't. I, other than I obviously knew you were in Des Moines yeah. and stuff. But all those were things I didn't know. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Number five. What movie have you seen the most? That's a good question. I think about this sometimes. It might be The Fellowship of the Ring. Mm-hmm. If I, I just like that is the one that I can like confirm in my mind. I can like do the count of like so Come many on. times I have seen it. Um, and I've definitely seen it at least a couple times more than Two Towers or Return of the King by simple virtue of it's a year older. And I know I saw it like 10 times that first year. So yeah. Um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone would be up there because of all the times I saw it as a kid and then uh, I haven't seen it in quite a while now. Both of those movies came out a month apart 20 years ago this year. So there you go. We're old. Um, yep. Those those are probably the honest answer. I, I can't think of... like Original Star Wars I've seen many times. Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark I know is the movie I've seen the most times in a theater. Because I used to go every time I could find a, a like a, a screening of Raiders, usually on film, I would go see it. And I haven't done that lately because there's not as many of those kind of showings anymore. And it's just digital, so it's what you would have at home anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So those would be the answers. Yeah. I think for me it would probably be Star Wars or Godzilla. I think it's probably mm-hmm. like... Like Fellowship would also be up there because, yes. Yeah. Like Fellowship... I'm with you that like Fellowship is the one that's like easiest to remember... Like, I can remember the specific times I watched it because I think that movie is very, so memorable. And then also, I think both of us have, like, a very kind of regimented relationship almost. So like, a certain amount of time has passed and then one must watch through the Lord of the Rings movies again. Uh-huh. It's like, it's just, there's, like, a biological element to it. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Let's move on to question number six. What is your favorite memory about this podcast? Damn. Damn. Definitely. So, one of our listeners flagged it. Um of when you told me all about Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth and yeah. then I got crazy about it and over that period of time we started doing like weekly check-ins and just the show became a Digimon fan cast for like a half a year yes. and then I decided to name it my game of the year on the game of the year list that is definitely up there um in terms of my favorite memory of like the a, this isn't a specific one podcast I think the maybe most Before Weekly Suit Gundam, I think the best period this show ever had was spring 2017, where simultaneously we had Doctor Who Series 10 airing, which was Capaldi's last year. We had Twin Peaks The Return airing. Mm -hmm. We did both of those weekly. And Persona 5, we did weekly spoiler casts on. And then mixed in with all of that was the launch of the Nintendo Switch. 
And that is just like this mixed in set of episodes where we have those Twin Peaks conversations, those Doctor Who conversations, Persona conversations. Like, I feel like that was in some ways like the like pinnacle of a certain version of this show. And since then, it's changed a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's good. Things should change. But I really love that period of the show. And man, Twin Peaks The Return. I've been intimidated to go back and watch all of Twin Peaks The Return again. Because yes, it's too. such a big thing. But I want to at some point, And maybe even re-listen to some of our conversations. Because I remember those being some of our best conversations ever. They were just so fun. Yeah, I think that's a very good call. That Yeah, I'm with you. That there's something about that period that feels like... like in, in almost like an ending to a version of this podcast because it also was like coming at like a little bit after we had both graduated college and like beginning the process of like moving on to like all the stuff we're doing now um yeah it's definitely it's like there's just like a lot of media that was hitting right at that point that was like you know it, it just felt like home run after home run after home run of like things that we were interested in that were like extremely good and extremely fun to talk about um yeah that's i think that is a really good pick all right all right number seven this is a fun one you are put into a room with an opponent who is exactly equal to you in physical and mental ability in every way you must fight this shadow jonathan to the death you are presented the choice of a weapon either a bat or a knife whichever weapon you do not choose will go to your opponent which weapon bat or knife do you choose and why knife knife is the one i would be more scared to be cut like the idea of being cut and like pierced that way, that's visceral. I I don't want that. I don't want to be stabbed to death. I don't I don't want to be cut like that. I would be doing the cutting. Um, and I don't and I just know I don't think me and therefore my shadow double probably does not have the upper body strength or like training to use that bat particularly effectively. I think I would be much more deadly with a knife than I would be with a bat. Which means if I had to fight myself, I would use the knife and not the bat. This is the correct answer. It's always knife. I think the people who say bat to this kind of question are lunatics. It's like, you know, you can get a good swing in with the bat, but, you know, someone can you block that with your body and you can take that. You get in with a knife, it's fucking over. Look, so, there are some people pictures. who would be more deadly with the bat, no doubt about it. They're making a lot of money in the MLB. <laughs> so, like, yes, you know. Yeah. It's, it's much easier to do a lot more damage with a knife than it is with a bat. There's a certain level of skill one has to have. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Good answer. Good question. If I had to kill you, I would also use a knife. Thank you. Number eight. If a tree falls in a forest and there's no one around to hear, does it make a sound? Yes, but it doesn't, um, like, epistemologically really matter because no one's around to hear it. It would still make a sound. The forest would still... It's a vacuum. It's its not a vacuum. It's a, its an enclosed space where things would vibrate and bounce off each other. It would make a sound. It just doesn't particularly matter. Good answer. Number nine. If you were reincarnated as something other than a human, what would it be and why? So is this what I would want to be or what I think karmically I would be put into? It's how you interpret it. You know, it's either one. This is, this is probably a weird answer. It would be a human, but it would be a human woman. I would, like, that would be fascinating to relive life as the other mm-hmm. of the two major sexes. Um, because, like, I will never really know what that's like. Like, I am cisgendered. I am, you know, I was going to say comfortable in my own body. I'm not comfortable in my own body. But I don't have that particular, like, I don't have, like, a, a gender dysphoria thing. But I uh-huh. would be fucking fascinated to actually, like, live life as a woman. Um, because that would be different in significant and interesting ways. 
Um, if I wanted to be something, I think it would be fun to be a dog. I love dogs. Dogs are good. Dogs live relatively happy lives if they have good owners. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but if, what, what's another good animal in the in the kingdom? A bear. I would. I think it would be cool to be a bear. Bears don't give a fuck. And I, you know what? And if I had any of my human intelligence left over, I would know. Don't go steal the picnic baskets, and you will not be fucked with. I will. Uh, I'll just do my bear thing. Bear is a great answer to this question. That's not one I would have occurred to, but then as soon as you say bear, I'm like, yeah, that seems like a good fucking life, being yeah. a bear. Just eat a bunch of shit. As you say, nobody fucks with you. You're very much at the top of your food chain. Um, and you get to just scare the shit out of people who are camping, you know? Yeah. Just, like, completely freak them the fuck out because bears are smart. Bears can open doors and shit. The bear can get wherever the fuck it wants. You can't keep anything away from a bear that wants to get it. So... It's a good answer, and I like the 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 woman answer. I think is also interesting because I I've always felt the same way that when you get those like when you know at like job interviews and whatever like you know personality quizzes things like that that people end up giving you they sometimes have those kinds of questions of if you could be a historical figure or whatever like who would you want to be or like stuff like that and I would always say it's like well I want to pick something that's interesting also something that's a woman so I cross both those off my list because I think I'm with you that's like. I want to see what that experience is like and how it would be different. This is one of the many reasons I find the Chris Chibnall Doctor Who era so frustrating is like Yes. You could you can do so many things with the idea of a two thousand year old being who is now a biological woman for the first time in their existence. But like one of those is I firmly believe the doctor is the kind of curious person who would be fucking fascinated by that, right? Like mm-hmm. who would be like, yeah. Oh my god, I've never regenerated into a woman's body. This is really interesting. Like, that alone would be something the Doctor, I feel like, would be excited about. So, yeah. Yeah, very good. Number 10, do you believe in free will? Yes, but I I think it's more limited than a lot of people think it is. I heard a really good description from this once on uh, Ezra Klein, the writer who was at Vox, now he's at the New York Times. And he was having a conversation with on free, about free will on his podcast, and he said, like, People do have free will, obviously, in, in so much as choices are possible, but it is limited by, like, biological instincts more than we probably think about. Like, I have mm-hmm. a cup of water here on my desk. This was Ezra Klein's example. And, like, I can choose while I'm talking to you to take the bottle of water and, like, you know, drink from it. But the main motivating factor of that will be whether or not I'm thirsty. And I think that's a very low-level thing, but there's a lot of things like that that determine how much free will you have. Um, I think it's absolutely real. I think we probably ignore how many ways it is boxed in by all sorts of things from just basics of what your body is doing to your circumstances how you were raised what thought patterns have developed because of that what your socioeconomic condition is there's a million considerations like that yeah i'm 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 i think i'm actually leaning a little bit more on the no side but i think with you that like 100 people take I don't take for granted it's maybe a weird way to phrase it, but I think people assume they have far more capacity to express their will or like sentience than they actually do because I think people don't realize how much external stimuli causes them to behave in the way that they behave. And and it's like you don't think of it as being like that's not your free will, but it's not your free will. Like you're if you're put into the same situation and given the same stimulus, you would never make a different choice because the thing that's causing you to make the choice is the stimulus that's prompting it. Yeah. So do you have free will? Because could you ever make a different choice in that same scenario? Um, yes. Yeah. It's interesting question. It is. That all also is ultimately fruitless because if you come to the conclusion that you don't have free will, it doesn't matter. 
because you can't <laughs> do anything with that. True. All right. Question 11. You are walking quietly down a long and solemn path, which suddenly comes to a fork. One branch in the path leads to paradise, the other leads to damnation. In front of each path stands a guardian, completely identical in every way except for one. The guardian that stands before the path to paradise will always tell the truth. The guardian that stands before the path to damnation will always lie. To determine which path you should take, you must ask one guardian one question and one question only. Jonathan Lack, what do you ask? Fuck, I hate this. Um, I'm so bad at this kind of thing. Uh, there's a there's a chapter in Yu-Gi-Oh, which I reread the whole manga <laughs> of last year, where Jinochi actually like susses this out, and I'm trying to remember what his answer was because it was good. Um, okay, so one of them always tells the truth, one of them always lies. Yes. One of them leads to hell, one of them leads to heaven. I ask them both the same question. You can ask one of them one question. One of them one question. Okay. I guess it doesn't matter which one I go up to, though, right? It doesn't really. I mean, you could ask them both. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter, honestly, the number of questions you can ask. It's just more interesting to phrase it that way. Right. So if I ask them something like, do you tell the truth? And they say no, that would mean nothing to me. Because I, unless I heard what the other one said, too. No, that wouldn't work either. Um... Fuck it, man. Um, how much money do I need to pay you to let me into heaven? That would not help you solve this. Okay. It's a question. All right. Yeah. What's the answer? I feel like I'm being tested. It's yeah. So the so yeah. This is your classic logic puzzle. The answer is you ask one of them. If I were to ask the other one, which gate you're guarding, which what would they say? Oh, okay. And so if you play them or some variation of that, you basically have to play them against each other um, because then the one that tells the truth would end up saying lies and the one that says lies would end up saying the truth. That, the main thing is you just have to have them play against each other is the answer to that question. There are... Have you ever had to take the, the GRE, Sean? No. When you take... You might. I know you, you might get your master's at some point. Um, if you ever have to take the GRE, the math portion of the GRE devolves into a lot of kind of like logic puzzles like that and that is definitely the point where my eyes glazed over and i skipped through all the questions and left early realizing i'm not going into math it does not matter what my <laughs> score here is so yeah 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 i remember specifically being in a middle school math class and having this question and eventually figuring it out and being very stubborn about it and i've never forgotten it since then because i was so <laughs> fucking stubborn about trying to solve this dumb thing when i was like 10 um, well now you've humiliated like me so years. thank you for yes that. it's you know it's one of the you know if you didn't this was i knew this would either be you remembered what this was before um, so you remember the answer or you wouldn't be able to answer it because there's, there's no way you're going to answer it live on the podcast and like unravel the logic of the scenario um, so the next one I'm actually going to go to I have a bank of backup questions I came up with because my next question is one you've already answered um, somewhere else so for number 12 I'm going to go with Jonathan how are babies made people fuck but, right this is a trick question I don't know. Do you, you tell me? I, mean, I don't know. I've, I've, you know, I've been going through my life surrounded by this mystery. Just like nobody will tell me how are babies made. Uh, uh, ma well, so okay. In the in the heterosexual or heteronormative reading of this, it would be man penetrates woman, comes inside, <laughs> sperm impregnates egg, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff, all that good stuff, right? Um, yeah. 
You could also, you know, uh, it, it does not have to be a lovemaking scenario. There are other ways babies are made that way. I, I understand there are also scientific ways of doing that outside of the normal parameters now. Um, but uh-huh. I am not a uh, fertologist or whatever the actual term for people who study. I, th- I think you hit it. It's definitely fertologist. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. It's just that. I feel like this was humiliating to me, but I don't know how. The, the real answer, Sean, it is the stork. I know you thought that was a joke, but it is the okay. stork. It is. I, I thought it seemed right. You know, in my heart, I'm like, all this fucking stuff. The, I, that just doesn't make sense. How would that make a baby? That's the, the reason. The silliest. The reason yeah. why people have to have sex to get the baby is you have to send the sex tape to the stork. He's a very horny <laughs> stork. He won't bring you your baby unless he can look at your sex tape. So, and this works for everyone. This is how gay couples get babies too. Stork yeah, don't it care. Is, and it's not just humans. It's not just humans. No. It's all animals in the animal kingdoms except for storks. Storks are the only animal that actually sexually reproduce, which is why they need all the sex tapes yeah. to fuel their sex drive. Exactly. They're like pandas. They've got a very low sex drive, but they're really important to keep around, so they have to watch porn. Yep. I I think we really cracked that one open. All right. All right. Question 13. What is the piece of media that you most feel like you should have seen, read, listened, played, etc. by now, but you haven't yet, and why haven't you? I mean, in, in like my profession, it's probably like the bulk of Alfred Hitchcock's films. Which I just, Mm. I generally act around people like I've seen them. And I think, I've seen Psycho. I've seen Rope. That might be it. I have not seen most Hitchcock. Um, Rear Window is very good. I know, and I should watch it. And I've talked confidently at students like I've seen Rear Window. And I haven't. (laughs) Um, But for whatever reason, that's my big blind spot is is most Hitchcock stuff. Outside of that, though, I mean, there's a lot of books, you know, I wish I I had read. Um... But I guess there's wish you had read and then there's an actual blind spot, right? Um, and with books, that's harder because books encompasses all of human history. So it's really hard yes. to say what should you have read um, versus what you would like to have read. Like, I would really love to read the Robert A. Caro series on Lyndon B. Johnson, but it's not like society will judge me for that. I would like to read uh-huh. Romance of the Three Kingdoms, but it is not like a highway, like a gate into high society is to have read Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Um, so I think the Hitchcock answer is is probably right, uh, at least in terms of the stuff I do. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. I also want to note for the record, uh, Occasional Thomas, he didn't say fucking Persona 5 Royals. So, you know, there we go. All right, number 14. (laughs) Jonathan, why is the sky blue? Because the water's blue and it reflects. (laughs) Everyone knows the sky is just extremely reflective. You know, it's like looking to a mirror. Um, it's crazy, you know? I actually, I don't think I could give you the scientific explanation for why the sky is blue. I'm sure I have heard it explained to me, um, but I do not know off the top of my head. Do you want the explanation? Or yeah, give it to me. Okay. Is it the, yeah, is it no, the water I mean, thing? <laughs> no, no. It's, I mean, because also not all water is necessarily blue. No, it's not. Um, is water blue because so, the sky is blue, or is... That's a good question. I think I think we sometimes we have that impression. Yes, I think like why we have like a distinct like it, like yeah. the color of blue that water is. I think sometimes that is more because when like you're actually out on water, like when you're on a lake fishing or something, water is clear. It's often looks black more than it looks. Yeah, blue. and it's yeah. only and actually one of the reasons why you perceive water as blue is similar to the atmosphere, but it has to be a certain quantity of water. Um, but so the sky, we see the sky as blue during the day because. You, you understand that light has different wavelengths, right? Yeah. 
Okay, so blue light has very, very short wavelengths. It's high energy, short wavelength. Red light is longer wavelength right. spectrum. Because blue light has a shorter wavelength, it's easier for it to be refracted because if you kind of think of it as a wave, it's moving up and down faster in shorter waves. So it can be bounced and refracted. So what you're seeing is that as the sunlight comes in, it hits atmospheric particles, reflects off, reflects off of those, and keeps on reflecting off of more particles until it hits you, whereas red light is far more likely to just come through the atmosphere into your eyes directly. So you're seeing blue light scattered across the atmosphere, and eventually some of that blue light is getting scattered and eventually going to your eyes, and you're seeing that as blue. Now that you say it, I think I've had that explanation before in like my astronomy class in, in college, but that is very cool. That is very cool to think about. And it is better than my explanation. It's because the water yeah. is blue and it reflects. Yeah. How does the Earth being flat play into this? Because that I should have told you earlier. I'm a flat earther. That's the thing you don't know about me? I'm kidding. Moving on to question 15. <laughs> you may have one superpower, but it cannot be a superpower already used by an existing fictional character. So basically, you can't just have like invisibility or super flight or something like that. It has to be an interesting superpower. What is your superpower and why? I want the superpower of the... Does this count, though? Because this is a fictional character, but it's not a superhero. I basically want the abilities of the babblefish in your ear in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where I can just understand all languages coming at me no matter what. Just perfect translation of everything. That's the superpower I would want. I'll, I'll, I'll count that. Like, you know, it's, it's at the very least, it's not a common superpower. You know? Yeah. Because I didn't want the answer to this question to just be... I want to fly because that's always the answer. It's like, I want to fly or I want to run very fast. And it's always boring. Yeah. Um, that's a better answer. Very good. All right. Number 16. If you made a top 400 stuff list, like what we did in the 100th episode, <laughs> what would be number 400? So the bottom, the least yes. of the 400. But this is, this is you know, still in the top 400 of all things that exist in all of the universe. So yeah. it's while it's at the bottom of the list, it's still high up in the scope of all of creation. So keep that in mind. Boy, that's pretty good. Um, man, I'm just trying to think relatively what would be on the list and what wouldn't be. I, I like... Uh, this is... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think and, and come up with a good one that's not like completely shallow. But you know what? I think I have a really nice mouse pad. I think it it's mm -hmm. it's a good balance of cost and efficiency. I have the Razer Pro Glide. It's like a $10 mouse pad, but it's perfect for my size. It's great for gaming. My mouse, I was thinking about saying my mouse, because I, I game and like do all my work with a Razer Death Adder Pro, but I think that would be higher in my top 400. Mm -hmm. It's, it's yeah. really important, and I really love this thing, and I spent a lot of money on it. The mouse pad, though, is also very important. It works very well with the feet I've got on this mouse. But it also only cost me $10, and it's already getting a little frayed. But if I need to replace it, you know what? It's only $10. I like that answer. That's, that is exactly the kind of dumb thing I was looking for. Okay. <laughs> Number 17, Jonathan. What does the word nonplussed mean? It means uh, pro-subtracted. But I'm, I'm kidding. It doesn't mean that. Nonplussed means you're not like affected by something, right? So you're not um, significantly like perturbed by it. That's that is not what the word nonplussed means. All right, what that's is, what that's what everyone thinks the word nonplussed means. This this is a running joke. If people want to go back and listen to our top 100 stuff list episode, the number the 100th episode of the podcast, 
in there, I do say that one of my one of my top 100 things is the feeling of smug satisfaction I get out of people using the word nonplussed incorrectly. So I thank you, Jonathan, for giving me that right now. Uh, the word nonplussed means to be confused by something. It has nothing to do with plus as in positive. Just has nothing to do with what the word is. But everybody thinks it is because it's what it sounds like. It's just not what the word is or where it comes from. Well, now that you've shown off, um, <laughs> good for you. I think it's important because the word nonplussed, the reason why I get a smug satisfaction from it is because it makes people sound smart when they use it, but, but nobody wrong. ever yeah. uses it correctly and they're always wrong and it makes me feel very smart and like you're an idiot. And now you get to now be, join me and you will now encounter people who say when nonplussed and they will think they sound incredibly intelligent when they say it. And you're like, you're a dumb, stupid piece of shit. You have no idea what you fuck you're saying, and then you don't have to listen to that person ever again. So it's great. Sean's internal monologue is foul moving through the world. (laughs) It is. It is. All right. This is this is the the most intense question of my top twenty. Jonathan, you might want to make a space in like a word document or something to type some of this down because I'm going to ask you to make a top ten list. Okay. So it might be easier for you to make these. I want you to try to make the top ten list quickly. This should just be like gut. Like you got to do it. Okay. But you have to make a top, a ranked top ten list out of the following items. Okay. The Mario franchise, the Persona franchise, Doctor Who, the complete works of William Shakespeare, The Lord of the Rings, the filmography of Yasujiro Ozu. Okay. The films of Studio Ghibli. Fucking hell. The paintings of Vincent Van Gogh or Van Gogh. Bruce Springsteen's discography and the Gundam franchise. Thanks, Sean. (laughs) This is the most brutal thing I could possibly come up with. I want to point out, this original question started from me, a dumb thing I wrote of like, Metroid versus Legend of Zelda. And I was like, that's stupid. And then it turned into this fucking... That's Metroid. I mean, that's... I love Zelda, but that's Metroid for me. Um, Okay, I am putting Shakespeare at the bottom, number 10. Shakespeare's great, but I, I don't care about him as much. This is for me, right? It's, it's your ranked top ten list. Okay. So, yeah. Um, all right. Then, <laughs> that was the only easy one. Fuck. <laughs> um, okay. I mean, I guess if I'm going on impact in my life, I feel bad that I'm putting the people with by far the most impact on human history at the bottom, but Vincent Van Gogh is going at number nine. I'm sorry. That's why I put those two in there, is to make you put them at the bottom, <laughs> just to, like, really drive the knife in. All right. Um... Let's see everything else. So I'm I'm gonna do what I often do with top tens, and I'm gonna kind of put these into into tiers. Um, Ozu, LOTR, Studio Ghibli, Gundam, I think are gonna be near the top. Uh, and then you've got Doctor Who, Persona, Mario, and Bruce Springsteen. Um, yeah. Fuck. Um, now I could try to do the quibble and say that I actually prefer Bruce, Bruce's live stuff way over his actual studio albums. So, that, but that's that, a that cop gets, out. That gets thrown in. Yeah, yeah that, that gets thrown, thrown in with the okay. Bruce Springsteen stuff. Yes. Um, okay. So I, <sighs> I fucking hate this. Mario is going at number eight. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, Persona. I cried on the podcast. That goes at number six, and Doctor Who goes at number seven. This is hard. This is really hard. Uh-huh. Um, um, the 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 complete works of Yasujiro Ozu go at number five, uh, and then we are going to be hitting um, Lord of the Rings at number. F- is that right? 
No, we're going to do... Here's the thing. I don't anymore listen to Bruce Springsteen like every single day. But when that man dies, I'm going to be broken in a way. Mm -hmm. There are very few people in my actual life I would feel that way for. Uh, has gotten me through some really rough times. He has to be at a certain height. Studio Ghibli is going to be at number one of all of this. That's that's okay. a pretty easy call for me. And I think I'm going to put Lord of the Rings at number four. And I think Gundam is new. And so I'm just, to me, so I'm just yeah. going to resist the pull a little bit and Gundam's going to go at number three. Okay. And Bruce Springs is going to go at number two. Uh, and I think that is probably the best representation of me as a person. Um, All right. And that is, so 10 is Shakespeare, 9 is Van Gogh, 8 is Mario, 7 is Doctor Who, 6 is Persona, 5 is Ozu, 4 is Lord of the Rings, 3 is Gundam, 2 is Springsteen, 1 is Ghibli. I'm as comfortable with that as I can be with this fucking <laughs> just mean question. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was very pleased with myself when I had the idea to write this question. It was very fun because uh, it is it is the meanest question I could have possibly done for this uh, section segment. So thank you for answering it um, and having to just like rank all these things that are unrankable and are like really important and personal and touching to you in terms of the world of media. Um, number nineteen. This is similar to a question you asked me, but it's slightly different. What do you imagine life would be like if we had never met? If we had never met, I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I think there is a better chance I wouldn't have gone to Golden High School because I was hmm. actively thinking of. You might not know this about me. I was actively I trying to get the hell out of Dodge. I did not want to go to Golden, and one of the things that probably pulled me back was like knowing people there. But you were my best friend at the time, still are. So like. That probably was a significant factor, but I was thinking about like I was looking at like the the like Denver School of the Arts and some stuff like that that I was considering because um, I had a really bad time in middle school at at the public middle school there. Golden was better. Golden we we grew up in a piece of shit school district, but you know there were some nice people yeah. at Golden. Um, yeah, no Bell Middle School. I was just gonna call it out. Yeah, the fucking place is fucking hell. Place is fucking like, hell. My I, God, I drive by there sometimes when I'm home and I just. I put my middle finger up and flip the place off and it's the only yeah my dad had one place like that in his life and I do that for Bell Middle School and sometimes I get weird looks from parents I'm kidding I don't do it when their kids out but you know I fucking yeah fuck that place so, so I, I do it especially when the kids out. I go all the way out the window both birds and just shout fuck you as I drive by and I crash into a tree because my hands aren't on the wheel <laughs> yeah, you're not looking at the road all right yeah. no but uh, so okay I think it's possible and then the fallout from that would be like so massive I have no idea what the course of my life uh -huh. would be in that sense um but yeah, I mean, if, if I've never met you, I don't think I would be as into anime and Gundam and all of that. Um, I don't... I mean, honestly, I don't know if I would have had the, the kind of... If I didn't meet you, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. And if I didn't have this podcast, I think my just like level of like mental health would be much lower. And I don't think I would have stuck with academia as long or with film studies and stuff like that. Because I think it would have started to just feel like all work with no healthy outlet for that. And I think I would have been doing something very different by now. Because um, my my pithy response to, if you had asked the question, what if we'd never done this podcast, would be, I'd be fucking dead because this is what keeps <laughs> me sane. And I would have driven off the fucking road by now. Um, so that's kind of a version of that. Is just I, I think I would have just a very, very different outlook on things because this is like a part of my life that is like more controlled and like, 
fun, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, and it's like a healthy outlet for getting ideas out there. So all of that, yeah. I would never yeah. have learned how to play Batman Arkham. I was I would still be button mashing. True. And if I had if I had never mastered Arkham, I certainly would have never been able to do Dark Souls. So you know, my video game taste would be very different. Would have never yeah. played Persona. I think that's probably was the most important influence I had on your life was just that time I saw you just be garbage at Batman and be like, hey, dude. You gotta, you gotta calm down. You gotta, it's a rhythmic kind of thing. Just press the button occasionally. You don't have to jam on it super hard. Um, There's a lot of that from that period of Jonathan, buy the bandolier. Jonathan, stop butt bashing in Arkham. It's not that kind of game. Jonathan, take out the trash. I'm like your like video game mom. Like basically <laughs> was what that period of our relationship was like. It's just like, Jonathan, come on. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I think that's good. You know, I would I would have had less credit card debt in college from buying the PS Vita when I had no money because you described <laughs> yeah, Persona sure. Four to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's there's some good answers for you. All right, very good. And number twenty is a question that I think is going to be more pressing than we think because it always is. Jonathan, what the fuck are we going to do for episode five hundred? God, I don't know. Uh, I mean, the the big one we've been putting off. In part because I feel like it's weird. It's gonna be weird to do in the middle of our Gundam project is our top ten favorite anime, which uh-huh. I really want to hear. From, and I could do it right now. I I have seen plenty of anime that I could do a top ten. You would have the harder time because you've seen all the anime. That'd be a motherfucker of a list. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like that is one that is on the horizon. It doesn't have to be five hundred. The big question, Sean, is less five hundred for me than in June of twenty twenty two will be our official ten year anniversary. I didn't even think about that. That one is yeah. going to be, what do we do? Because this topic would have actually been pretty good for the 10-year anniversary. Yeah. But I don't know. Do we Do we just, ra- we're going to rank all 400 and some podcasts from worst to best <laughs> live yes, on air. I'm, obviously, we would have the time to listen to them. And I would not be able to listen to anything, again, that's like more than five years old. And I'd just be like, I want to murder this person that is speaking in my voice. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. would be a hard one to do. But for 500, yeah, I know. Five, that's, that's a big one. That's at least two years off, so we don't have to worry about that yet. You know? We don't have to you worry know, about that until the next Trump presidency. Uh, don't even say that. Just don't, you know, it might be true, but I don't even want to hear it or think about it. Yeah. That's why you gotta, you gotta spoil the ending, Sean. Get in the TARDIS, go to America in 50 years, and see if the Abe Lincoln Monument has been replaced with Trump taking a shit or whatever he would be modeled as. Yeah. Seems probable. All right. Well, that was 400 episodes of the Weekly yep, Stuff yep. podcast. I'm, gl- I'm glad that's the, the, where you took my what are we going to do for episode 500 jokes. Or that, I thought that was a very good question to kind of end on, and then you made it dark, which is usually the thing that I do. Yeah, that's okay. Next week, now that we are firmly in the 400s, which does... I don't know. I For a while, Sean, I didn't think 400 would be that big a milestone, and then it hit, and I'm like, that's a big fucking number. There was something about it yeah. that, like, landed on me. It's like, we're just, like, outside of the realm of, like, raw episode counts of most episodic things that exist. Like, you almost never get anything that gets to 400. We're like, so this is like some soap opera shit that we're on right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and there's been so much, you know, soap opera kind of, like, passion plays between us. We've betrayed each other. Yep. You know, we've loved each other. We've yeah. taken each other. I mean, other's I'm lovers. actually my... Yeah, I'm my, like, evil twin brother right now. Yeah. Like, that happened, like, at episode, like, 282. Yeah, I know. But next week for episode 401, we will be getting back on our Matrix bullshit with The Matrix Reloaded. That's exciting. I'm very excited yes. to watch that one. 
You know, I think I am... Sean, what's so crazy, and I think maybe this is a good place to end it. I don't know what episode 500 will bring, but I feel like there's more steam in the tank now than there's ever been. There's something about that. Uh-huh. And after 400 episodes, I know that's a crazy thing to say, but like Weekly Suit Gundam has been going so strong and has opened up so many avenues. We have the Matrix thing we want to do. We have the Batman thing we want to do. We have so many other ideas for projects. I think one way this podcast has shifted is it's become a little less like of the moment and more getting into all of these things we want to talk about almost like for the record. Um, and there's just so much of that to do. I just... There's no finish line, and that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I really enjoy, as you say, like kind of... Because what's sort of what we were talking about that around that 2017 point is where we hit this point where, like, everything was so interesting that was, like, of the moment of, like, the things we were really into, like Persona 5, Doctor Who, Twin Peaks The Return. And then after that, it kind of feels like this thing of, well, there's, you know, Doctor Who went to complete shit. Um... Twin Peaks The Return is was so amazing, but is this like miniseries thing and nothing can fill quite that void. Um, and then it, it slowly shifted into this more kind of project-based thing that we do with a podcast now that we did occasionally, but feels like more of an, uh, like a specific emphasis. Uh, and that's really exciting because I'm with you. I feel like I have so many ideas of podcasts I want to do and I'm seeding my sort of secret schemes constantly <laughs> to bring them eventually that you will watch stuff that you don't even know that I'm sort of planting like suggestions of right now. Um, but like that's very exciting to eventually get to revisit old things or watch things for the first time or watch things like that are so removed that like you get to kind of rediscover it like we did with the prequels. And that process is so fun, and I'm very excited to continue to do that. And, like, the next episode, Matrix Reloaded, is going to be a big one of those, because I haven't watched that movie since, like, a year or two after it was in the theaters, which was probably the last time I watched it when we got, like, a DVD that we rented. Um, so this this is... The podcast is still going strong, um, and I'm, I continue to be very excited for what we do on the show. <laughs>